This is Audible. Listening Library presents The Heroes of Olympus, Book Five, The Blood of Olympus, by Rick Riordan. Read for you by Nick Chamian. To my wonderful readers, sorry about that apology for the last cliffhanger. I'll try to avoid cliffhangers in this book. Well, except for maybe a few small ones, because I love you guys. Seven half-bloods shall answer the call. To storm or fire, the world must fall. An oath to keep with a final breath, and foes bear arms to the doors of death. Chapter One. Jason. Jason hated being old. His joints hurt. His legs shook. As he tried to climb the hill, his lungs rattled like a box of rocks. He couldn't see his face, thank goodness, but his fingers were gnarled and bony. Bulging blue veins webbed the backs of his hands. He even had that old man's smell—mothballs and chicken soup. How was that possible? He'd gone from sixteen to seventy-five in a matter of seconds, but the old man smell happened instantly, like boom! Congratulations, you stink. Almost there, Piper smiled at him. You're doing great. Easy for her to say. Piper and Annabeth were disguised as lovely Greek serving maidens. Even in their white sleeveless gowns and laced sandals, they had no trouble navigating the rocky path. Piper's mahogany hair was pinned up in a braided spiral. Silver bracelets adorned her arms. She resembled an ancient statue of her mom, Aphrodite, which Jason found a little intimidating. Dating a beautiful girl was nerve-wracking enough. Dating a girl whose mom was the goddess of love, well. Jason was always afraid he'd do something unromantic, and Piper's mom would frown down from Mount Olympus and change him into a feral hog. Jason glanced uphill. The summit was still a hundred yards above. Worst idea ever. He leaned against the cedar tree and wiped his forehead. Hazel's magic is too good. If I have to fight, I'll be useless. It won't come to that," Annabeth promised. She looked uncomfortable in her serving maiden outfit. She kept hunching her shoulders to keep the dress from slipping. Her pinned-up blonde bun had come undone in the back, and her hair dangled like long spider legs. Knowing her hatred of spiders, Jason decided not to mention that. We infiltrate the palace," she said. We get the information we need, and we get out. Piper set down her amphora, the tall ceramic wine jar in which her sword was hidden. We can rest for a second. Catch your breath, Jason. From her waist cord hung her cornucopia, the magic horn of plenty. Tucked somewhere in the folds of her dress was her knife, Catoptris. Piper didn't look dangerous, but if the need arose. She could dual wield celestial bronze blades, or shoot her enemies in the face with ripe mangoes. Annabeth slung her own amphora off her shoulder. 
She, too, had a concealed sword, but even without a visible weapon, she looked deadly. Her stormy gray eyes scanned the surroundings, alert for any threat. If any dude asked Annabeth for a drink, Jason figured she was more likely to kick the guy in the bifurcum. He tried to steady his breathing. Below them, a fall-less bay glittered, the water so blue it might have been dyed with food coloring. A few hundred yards offshore, the Argo II rested at anchor. Its white sails looked no bigger than postage stamps, its ninety oars like toothpicks. Jason imagined his friends on deck following his progress, taking turns with Leo's spyglass, trying not to laugh as they watched Grandpa Jason hobble uphill. Stupid Ithaca, he muttered. He supposed the island was pretty enough. A spine of forested hills twisted down its center. Chalky white slopes plunged into the sea. Inlets formed rocky beaches and harbors where red-roofed houses and white stuccoed churches nestled against the shoreline. The hills were dotted with poppies, crocuses, and wild cherry trees. The breeze smelled of blooming myrtle. All very nice, except the temperature was about a hundred and five degrees. The air was as steamy as a Roman bathhouse. It would have been easy for Jason to control the winds and fly to the top of the hill, but no. For the sake of stealth, he had to struggle along as an old dude with bad knees and chicken soup stink. He thought about his last climb two weeks ago, when Hazel and he faced the bandit Skyron on the cliffs of Croatia. At least then, Jason had been at full strength. What they were about to face would be much worse than a bandit. You sure this is the right hill? He asked. Seems kind of, I don't know, quiet. Piper studied the ridgeline. Braided in her hair was a bright blue harpy feather, a souvenir from last night's attack. The feather didn't exactly go with her disguise, but Piper had earned it, defeating an entire flock of demon chicken ladies by herself while she was on duty. She downplayed the accomplishment, but Jason could tell she felt good about it. The feather was a reminder that she wasn't the same girl she'd been last winter, when they'd first arrived at Camp Half-Blood. The ruins are up there, she promised. I saw them in Catoptris's blade, and you heard what Hazel said. The biggest... The biggest gathering of evil spirits I've ever sensed, Jason recalled. Yeah, sounds awesome. After battling through the underground temple of Hades, the last thing Jason wanted was to deal with more evil spirits. But the fate of the quest was at stake. The crew of the Argo II had a big decision to make. If they chose wrong, they would fail, and the entire world would be destroyed. Piper's blade, Hazel's magical senses, and Annabeth's instincts all agreed. The answer lay here in Ithaca, at the ancient palace of Odysseus, where a horde of evil spirits had gathered to await Gia's orders. The plan was to sneak among them, learn what was going on, and decide the best course of action, then get out, preferably alive. Annabeth readjusted her golden belt. I hope our disguises hold up. 
The suitors were nasty customers when they were alive. If they find out we're demigods... Hazel's magic will work, Piper said. Jason tried to believe that. The suitors. A hundred of the greediest, evilest cutthroats who'd ever lived. When Odysseus, the Greek king of Ithaca, went missing after the Trojan War, this mob of B-list princes had invaded his palace and refused to leave, each one hoping to marry Queen Penelope and take over the kingdom. Odysseus managed to return in secret and slaughter them all, your basic happy homecoming. But if Piper's visions were right, the suitors were now back, haunting the place where they died. Jason couldn't believe he was about to visit the actual palace of Odysseus, one of the most famous Greek heroes of all time. Then again, this whole quest had been one mind-blowing event after another. Annabeth herself had just come back from the eternal abyss of Tartarus. Given that, Jason decided maybe he shouldn't complain about being an old man. Well, he steadied himself with his walking stick. If I look as old as I feel, my disguise must be perfect. Let's get going. As they climbed, sweat trickled down his neck. His calves ached. Despite the heat... He began to shiver, and try as he might, he couldn't stop thinking about his recent dreams. Ever since the House of Hades, they'd gotten more vivid. Sometimes Jason stood in the underground temple of Epirus, the giant Clytius looming over him, speaking in a chorus of disembodied voices. It took all of you together to defeat me. What will you do when the Earth Mother opens her eyes? Other times, Jason found himself at the crest of Half-Blood Hill. Gia, the Earth Mother, rose from the soil, a swirling figure of dirt, leaves, and stones. Poor child. Her voice resonated across the landscape, shaking the bedrock under Jason's feet. Your father is first among the gods. Yet you are always second best to your Roman comrades, to your Greek friends, even to your family. How will you prove yourself? His worst dream started in the courtyard of the Sonoma Wolf House. Before him stood the goddess Juno, glowing with the radiance of molten silver. Your life belongs to me, her voice thundered. An appeasement from Zeus. Jason knew he shouldn't look, but he couldn't close his eyes as Juno went supernova, revealing her true godly form. Pain seared Jason's mind. His body burned away in layers like an onion. Then the scene changed. Jason was still at the wolf house, but now he was a little boy no more than two years old. A woman knelt before him, her lemony scent so familiar. Her features were watery and indistinct, but he knew her voice, bright and brittle, like the thinnest layer of ice over a fast stream. I will be back for you, dearest, she said. I will see you soon. 
Every time Jason woke up from that nightmare, his face was beaded with sweat. His eyes stung with tears. Nico D'Angelo had warned them. The House of Hades would stir their worst memories, make them see things and hear things from the past. Their ghosts would become restless. Jason had hoped that particular ghost would stay away, but every night the dream got worse. Now he was climbing to the ruins of a palace where an army of ghosts had gathered. That doesn't mean she'll be there, Jason told himself. But his hands wouldn't stop trembling. Every step seemed harder than the last. Almost there, Annabeth said. Let's... Boom! The hillside rumbled. Somewhere over the ridge, a crowd roared in approval, like spectators in a coliseum. The sound made Jason's skin crawl. Not so long ago, he'd fought for his life in the Roman Colosseum before a cheering, ghostly audience. He wasn't anxious to repeat the experience. What was that explosion? He wondered. Don't know, Piper said. But it sounds like they're having fun. Let's go make some dead friends. Chapter 2 Jason Naturally, the situation was worse than Jason expected. It wouldn't have been any fun otherwise. Peering through the olive bushes at the top of the rise, he saw what looked like an out-of-control zombie frat party. The ruins themselves weren't that impressive. A few stone walls, a weed-choked central courtyard, a dead-end stairwell chiseled into the rock. Some plywood sheets covered a pit, and a metal scaffold supported a cracked archway. But superimposed over the ruins was another layer of reality, a spectral mirage of the palace as it must have appeared in its heyday. Whitewashed stucco walls lined with balconies rose three stories high. Column porticos faced the central atrium, which had a huge fountain and bronze braziers. At a dozen banquet tables, Ghouls laughed and ate and pushed one another around. Jason had expected about a hundred spirits, but twice that many were milling about, chasing spectral serving girls, smashing plates and cups, and basically making a nuisance of themselves. Most looked like Larry's from Camp Jupiter, transparent purple wraiths in tunics and sandals. A few revelers had decayed bodies with gray flesh, matted clumps of hair, and nasty wounds. Others seemed to be regular living mortals, some in togas, some in modern business suits or army fatigues. Jason even spotted one guy in a purple Camp Jupiter t-shirt and Roman legionnaire armor. In the center of the atrium, a gray-skinned ghoul in a tattered Greek tunic paraded through the crowd, holding a marble bust over his head like a sports trophy. The other ghosts cheered and slapped him on the back. As the ghoul got closer, Jason noticed that he had an arrow in his throat, the feathered shaft sprouting from his Adam's apple. Even more disturbing, the bust he was holding, was that Zeus? It was hard to be sure. Most Greek god statues looked similar 
but the bearded, glowering face reminded Jason very much of the giant hippie Zeus in Cabin One at Camp Half-Blood. Our next offering, the ghoul shouted, his voice buzzing from the arrow in his throat. Let us feed the Earth Mother! The partiers yelled and pounded their cups. The ghoul made his way to the central fountain. The crowd parted, and Jason realized the fountain wasn't filled with water. From the three-foot-tall pedestal, a geyser of sand spewed upward, arcing into an umbrella-shaped curtain of white particles before spilling into the circular basin. The ghoul heaved the marble bust into the fountain. As soon as Zeus's head passed through the shower of sand, the marble disintegrated like it was going through a wood chipper. The sand glittered gold, the color of ichor, godly blood. Then the entire mountain rumbled with a muffled boom, as if belching after a meal. The dead partygoers roared with approval. Any more statues? The ghoul shouted to the crowd. No? Then I guess we'll have to wait for some real gods to sacrifice. His comrades laughed and applauded as the ghoul plopped himself down at the nearest feast table. Jason clenched his walking stick. That guy just disintegrated my dad. Who does he think he is? I'm guessing that's Antinous, said Annabeth one of the suitor's leaders. If I remember right, it was Odysseus who shot him through the neck with that arrow. Piper winced. You think that would keep a guy down? What about all the others? Why are there so many? I don't know, Annabeth said. Newer recruits for Gia, I guess? Some must have come back to life before we closed the doors of death. Some are just spirits. Some are ghouls, Jason said. The ones with the gaping wounds and the gray skin, like Antinous. I've fought their kind before. Piper tugged at her blue harpy feather. Can they be killed? Jason remembered a quest he'd taken for Camp Jupiter years ago in San Bernardino. Not easily. They're strong and fast and intelligent. Also, they eat human flesh. Fantastic, Annabeth muttered. I don't see any option except to stick to the plan. Split up, infiltrate, find out why they're here. If things go bad... We use the backup plan, Piper said. Jason hated the backup plan. Before they left the ship... Leo had given each of them an emergency flare the size of a birthday candle. Supposedly, if they tossed one in the air, it would shoot upward in a streak of white phosphorus, alerting the Argo 2 that the team was in trouble. At that point, Jason and the girls would have a few seconds to take cover before the ship's catapults fired on their position, engulfing the palace in Greek fire and bursts of celestial bronze shrapnel. Not the safest plan, but at least Jason had the satisfaction of knowing that he could call an airstrike on this noisy mob of dead guys if the situation got dicey. Of course, that was assuming he and his friends could get away. And assuming Leo's doomsday candles didn't go off by accident. Leo's inventions sometimes did that.
in which case the weather would get much hotter, with a 90% chance of fiery apocalypse. Be careful down there, he told Piper and Annabeth. Piper crept around the left side of the ridge. Annabeth went right. Jason pulled himself up with his walking stick and hobbled toward the ruins. He flashed back to the last time he'd plunged into a mob of evil spirits in the House of Hades. If it hadn't been for Frank Jong and Nico D'Angelo... Gods. Nico. Over the past few days, every time Jason sacrificed a portion of a meal to Jupiter, he prayed to his dad to help Nico. That kid had gone through so much, and yet... He had volunteered for the most difficult job, transporting the Athena Parthenos statue to Camp Half-Blood. If he didn't succeed, the Roman and Greek demigods would slaughter each other. Then, no matter what happened in Greece, the Argo II would have no home to return to. Jason passed through the palace's ghostly gateway. He realized just in time that a section of mosaic floor in front of him was an illusion covering a ten-foot-deep excavation pit. He sidestepped it and continued into the courtyard. The two levels of reality reminded him of the Titan stronghold on Mount Othrys, a disorienting maze of black marble walls that randomly melted into shadow and solidified again. At least during that fight, Jason had a hundred legionnaires at his side. Now all he had was an old man's body, a stick, and two friends in slinky dresses. Forty feet ahead of him, Piper moved through the crowd, smiling and filling wine glasses for the ghostly revelers. If she was afraid, she didn't show it. So far, the ghosts weren't paying her any special attention. Hazel's magic must have been working. Over on the right, Annabeth collected empty plates and goblets. She wasn't smiling. Jason remembered the talk he'd had with Percy before leaving the ship. Percy had stayed aboard to watch for threats from the sea, but he hadn't liked the idea of Annabeth going on this expedition without him, especially since it would be the first time they were apart since returning from Tartarus. He'd pulled Jason aside. Hey, man, Annabeth would kill me if I suggested she needed anybody to protect her. Jason laughed. Yeah, she would. But look out for her, okay? Jason squeezed his friend's shoulder. I'll make sure she gets back to you safely. Now Jason wondered if he could keep that promise. He reached the edge of the crowd. A raspy voice cried, Iros! Antinous, the ghoul with the arrow in his throat, was staring right at him. Is that you, you old beggar? Hazel's magic did its work. Cold air rippled across Jason's face as the mist subtly altered his appearance, showing the suitors what they expected to see. That's me, Jason said. Iros. A dozen more ghosts turned toward him. Some scowled and gripped the hilts of their glowing purple swords. Too late. Jason wondered if Iros was an enemy of theirs, but he'd already committed to the part. He hobbled forward, 
putting on his best cranky old man expression. Guess I'm late to the party. I hope you saved me some food. One of the ghosts sneered in disgust. Ungrateful old panhandler. Should I kill him, Antinous? Jason's neck muscles tightened. Antinous regarded him for a three count, then chuckled. I'm in a good mood today. Come, Iros, join me at my table. Jason didn't have much choice. He sat across from Antinous while more ghosts crowded around, leering as if they expected to see a particularly vicious arm wrestling contest. Up close, Antinous's eyes were solid yellow. His lips stretched paper-thin over wolfish teeth. At first, Jason thought the ghoul's curly, dark hair was disintegrating. Then he realized a steady stream of dirt was trickling from Antinous's scalp, spilling over his shoulders. Clods of mud filled the old sword gashes in the ghoul's gray skin. More dirt spilled from the base of the arrow wound in his throat. The power of Gia, Jason thought. The earth is holding this guy together. Antinous slid a golden goblet and a platter of food across the table. I didn't expect to see you here, Iros, but I suppose even a beggar can sue for retribution. Drink. Eat. Thick red liquid sloshed in the goblet. On the plate sat a steaming brown lump of mystery meat. Jason's stomach rebelled. Even if ghoul food didn't kill him, his vegetarian girlfriend probably wouldn't kiss him for a month. He recalled what notice the south wind had told him. A wind that blows aimlessly is no good to anyone. Jason's entire career at Camp Jupiter had been built on careful choices. He mediated between demigods, listened to all sides of an argument, found compromises. Even when he chafed against Roman traditions, he thought before he acted. He wasn't impulsive. Notice had warned him that such hesitation would kill him. Jason had to stop deliberating and take what he wanted. If he was an ungrateful beggar, he had to act like one. He ripped off a chunk of meat with his fingers and stuffed it in his mouth. He guzzled some red liquid, which thankfully tasted like watered-down wine, not blood or poison. Jason fought the urge to gag, but he didn't keel over or explode. Yum! He wiped his mouth. Now, tell me about this... What did you call it? Retribution? Where do I sign up? The ghosts laughed. One pushed his shoulder, and Jason was alarmed that he could actually feel it. At Camp Jupiter, Larry's had no physical substance. Apparently, these spirits did which meant more enemies who could beat, stab, or decapitate him. Antinous leaned forward. Tell me, Iros, what do you have to offer? We don't need you to run messages for us like in the old days. Certainly you aren't a fighter. As I recall, 
Odysseus crushed your jaw and tossed you into the pigsty. Jason's neurons fired. Iros, the old man who'd run messages for the suitors in exchange for scraps of food. Iros had been sort of like their pet homeless person. When Odysseus came home, disguised as a beggar, Iros thought the new guy was moving in on his territory. The two had started arguing. You made Iros... Jason hesitated. You made me fight Odysseus. You bet money on it. Even when Odysseus took off his shirt and you saw how muscular he was, you still made me fight him. You didn't care if I lived or died. Antinous bared his pointed teeth. Of course I didn't care. I still don't. But you're here. So Gia must have had a reason to allow you back into the mortal world. Tell me, why are you worthy of a share in our spoils? What spoils? Antinous spread his hands. The entire world, my friend. The first time we met here, we were only after Odysseus's land, his money, and his wife. Especially his wife. A bald ghost in ragged clothes elbowed Jason in the ribs. That Penelope was a hot little honey cake. Jason caught a glimpse of Piper serving drinks at the next table. She discreetly put her finger to her mouth in a gag-me gesture, then went back to flirting with dead guys. Antinous sneered. Eurymachus, you whining coward! You never stood a chance with Penelope! I remember you blubbering and pleading for your life with Odysseus, blaming everything on me. Lot of good it did me. Eurymachus lifted his tattered shirt, revealing an inch-wide spectral hole in the middle of his chest. Odysseus shot me in the heart just because I wanted to marry his wife. At any rate, Antinous turned to Jason. We have gathered now for a much bigger prize. Once Gia destroys the gods, we will divide up the remnants of the mortal world. Dibs on London, yelled a ghoul at the next table. Montreal, shouted another. Duluth, yelled a third, which momentarily stopped the conversation as the other ghosts gave him confused looks. The meat and wine turned to lead in Jason's stomach. What about the rest of these... guests? I count at least two hundred. Half of them are new to me. Antinous's yellow eyes gleamed. All of them are suitors for Gia's favor. All have claims and grievances against the gods or their pet heroes. That scoundrel over there is Hippias former tyrant of Athens. He got deposed and sided with the Persians to attack his own countrymen. No morals whatsoever. He'd do anything for power. Thank you, called Hippias. That rogue with the turkey leg in his mouth, Antinous continued. That's Hastrobal of Carthage. He has a grudge to settle with Rome. Mm-hmm. 
said the Carthaginian. And Michael Varus. Jason choked. Who? Over by the sand fountain, the dark-haired guy in the purple shirt and legionnaire armor turned to face them. His outline was blurred, smoky, and indistinct, so Jason guessed he was some form of spirit, but the legionnaire tattoo on his forearm was clear enough. S.P.Q.R., the double-faced head of the god Janus, and six score marks for years of service. On his breastplate hung the badge of praetorship and the emblem of the fifth cohort. Jason had never met Michael Varus. The infamous praetor had died in the 1980s. Still, Jason's skin crawled when he met Varus's gaze. Those sunken eyes seemed to bore right through Jason's disguise. Antinous waved dismissively. He's a Roman demigod. Lost his legion's eagle in... Alaska, was it? Doesn't matter. Gia lets him hang around. He insists he has some insight into defeating Camp Jupiter. But you, Iros, you still haven't answered my question. Why should you be welcome among us? Varus's dead eyes had unnerved Jason. He could feel the mist thinning around him, reacting to his uncertainty. Suddenly, Annabeth appeared on Antinous's shoulder. More wine, my lord? Oops. She spilled the contents of a silver pitcher down the back of Antinous's neck. Gah! The ghoul arched his spine. Foolish girl! Who let you back from Tartarus? A titan, my lord. Annabeth dipped her head apologetically. May I bring you some moist towelettes? Your arrow is dripping. Be gone! Annabeth caught Jason's eye, a silent message of support. Then she disappeared in the crowd. The ghoul wiped himself off, giving Jason a chance to collect his thoughts. He was Iros, former messenger of the suitors. Why would he be here? Why should they accept him? He picked up the nearest steak knife and stabbed it into the table, making the ghosts around him jump. Why should you welcome me? Jason growled. Because I'm still running messages, you stupid wretches. I've just come from the House of Hades to see what you're up to. That last part was true, and it seemed to give Antinous pause. The ghoul glared at him, wine still dripping from the arrow shaft in his throat. You expect me to believe Gia sent you, a beggar, to check up on us? Jason laughed. I was among the last to leave Epirus before the doors of death were closed. I saw the chamber where Clytius stood guard under a domed ceiling tiled with tombstones. I walked the jewel and bone floors of the Necromantion. That was also true. Around the table, ghosts shifted and muttered. So, Antinous, Jason jabbed a finger at the ghoul. Maybe you should explain to me why you're worthy of Gia's favor. All I see is a crowd of lazy, dawdling dead folk enjoying themselves and not helping the war effort. 
What should I tell the Earth Mother? From the corner of his eye, Jason saw Piper flash him an approving smile. Then she returned her attention to a glowing purple Greek dude who was trying to make her sit on his lap. Antinous wrapped his hand around the steak knife Jason had impaled in the table. He pulled it free and studied the blade. If you come from Gia, you must know we are here under orders. Porphyrion decreed it. Antinous ran the knife blade across his palm. Instead of blood, dried dirt spilled from the cut. You do know Porphyrion. Jason struggled to keep his nausea under control. He remembered Porphyrion just fine from their battle at the wolf house. The giant king, green skin, forty feet tall, white eyes, hair braided with weapons. Of course I know him. He's a lot more impressive than you. He decided not to mention that the last time he'd seen the giant king, Jason had blasted him in the head with lightning. For once, Antinous looked speechless. But his bald ghost friend, Eurymachus, put an arm around Jason's shoulders. Now, now, friend! Eurymachus smelled like sour wine and burning electrical wires. His ghostly touch made Jason's ribcage tingle. I'm sure we didn't mean to question your credentials. It's just, well, if you've spoken with Porphyrion in Athens, you know why we're here. I assure you, we're doing exactly as he ordered. Jason tried to mask his surprise. Porphyrion in Athens? Gia had promised to pull up the gods by their roots. Chiron, Jason's mentor at Camp Half-Blood, had assumed that meant that the giants would try to rouse the Earth Goddess at the original Mount Olympus. But now... The Acropolis... Jason said. The most ancient temples to the gods in the middle of Athens. That's where Gia will wake. Of course! Eurymachus laughed. The wound in his chest made a popping sound, like a porpoise's blowhole. And to get there, those meddlesome demigods will have to travel by sea, eh? They know it's too dangerous to fly over land which means they'll have to pass this island, Jason said. Eurymachus nodded eagerly. He removed his arm from Jason's shoulders and dipped his finger in his wine glass. At that point, they'll have to make a choice, eh? On the tabletop, he traced a coastline, red wine glowing unnaturally against the wood. He drew grease like a misshapen hourglass a large, dangly blob for the northern mainland. Then another blob below it, almost as large, the big chunk of land known as the Peloponnese. Cutting between them was a narrow line of sea, the Straits of Corinth. Jason hardly needed a picture. He and the rest of the crew had spent the last day at sea studying maps. The most direct route, Eurymachus said, would be due east from here, across the Straits of Corinth. But if they try to go that way... Enough! Antinous snapped. 
You have a loose tongue, Eurymachus. The ghost looked offended. I wasn't going to tell him everything. Just about the Cyclopes' armies massed on either shore, and the raging storm spirits in the air, and those vicious sea monsters Keto sent to infest the waters, and, of course, if the ship got as far as Delphi... Idiot! Antinous lunged across the table and grabbed the ghost's wrists. A thin crust of dirt spread from the ghoul's hand, straight up Eurymachus's spectral arm. No! Eurymachus yelped. Please, I... I only meant... The ghost screamed as the dirt covered his body like a shell, then cracked apart, leaving nothing but a pile of dust. Eurymachus was gone. Antinous sat back and brushed off his hands. The other suitors at the table watched him in wary silence. Apologies, Iros. The ghouls smiled coldly. All you need to know. The ways to Athens are well guarded, just as we promised. The demigods would either have to risk the straits, which are impossible, or sail around the entire Peloponnese, which is hardly much safer. In any event, it's unlikely they will survive long enough to make that choice. Once they reach Ithaca, we will know. We will stop them here, and Gia will see how valuable we are. You can take that message back to Athens. Jason's heart hammered against his sternum. He'd never seen anything like the shell of earth that Antinous had summoned to destroy Eurymachus. He didn't want to find out if that power worked on demigods. Also, Antinous sounded confident that he could detect the Argo too. Hazel's magic seemed to be obscuring the ship so far, but there was no telling how long that would last. Jason had the intel they'd come for. Their goal was Athens. The safer route or at least the not-impossible route, was around the southern coast. Today was July 20th. They only had 12 days before Gia planned to wake, on August 1st, the ancient Feast of Hope. Jason and his friends needed to leave while they had the chance. But something else bothered him. A cold sense of foreboding, as if he hadn't heard the worst news yet. Eurymachus had mentioned Delphi. Jason had secretly hoped to visit the ancient site of Apollo's oracle, maybe get some insight into his personal future. But if the place had been overrun by monsters... He pushed aside his plate of cold food. Sounds like everything is under control. For your sake, Antinous, I hope so. These demigods are resourceful. They closed the doors of death. We wouldn't want them sneaking past you, perhaps getting help from Delphi. Antinous chuckled. No risk of that. Delphi is no longer in Apollo's control. I... I see. And if the demigods sail the long way around the Peloponnese? You worry too much. That journey is never safe for demigods, and it's much too far. Besides, victory runs rampant in Olympia. As long as that's the case, there is no way the demigods can win this war. 
Jason didn't understand what that meant either, but he nodded. Very well. I will report as much to King Porphyrion. Thank you for the... er... meal. Over at the fountain, Michael Varus called, Wait! Jason bit back a curse. He'd been trying to ignore the dead Praetor, but now Varus walked over, surrounded in a hazy white aura, his deep-set eyes like sinkholes. At his side hung an imperial gold gladius. You must stay, Varus said. Antinous shot the ghost an irritated look. What's the problem, legionnaire? If Iros wants to leave, let him. He smells bad. The other ghosts laughed nervously. Across the courtyard, Piper shot Jason a worried glance. A little farther away, Annabeth casually palmed a carving knife from the nearest platter of meat. Varus rested his hand on the pommel of his sword. Despite the heat, his breastplate was glazed with ice. I lost my cohort twice in Alaska. Once in life, once in death to a Greekus named Percy Jackson. Still, I have come here to answer Gia's call. Do you know why? Jason swallowed. Stubbornness? This is a place of longing, Varus said. All of us are drawn here, sustained not only by Gia's power, but also by our strongest desires. Eurymachus's greed, Antinous's cruelty. You flatter me, the ghoul muttered. Hasdrubal's hatred, Varus continued. Hippias's bitterness, my ambition. And you, Iros, what has drawn you here? What does a beggar most desire? Perhaps a home? An uncomfortable tingle started at the base of Jason's skull, the same feeling he got when a huge electrical storm was about to break. I should be going, he said. Messages to carry. Michael Varus drew his sword. My father is Janus, the god of two faces. I am used to seeing through masks and deceptions. Do you know, Iros, why we are so sure the demigods will not pass our island undetected? Jason silently ran through his repertoire of Latin cuss words. He tried to calculate how long it would take him to get out his emergency flare and fire it. Hopefully he could buy enough time for the girls to find shelter before this mob of dead guys slaughtered him. He turned to Antinous. Look, are you in charge here or not? Maybe you should muzzle your Roman. The ghoul took a deep breath. The arrow rattled in his throat. Ah, but this might be entertaining. Go on, Varus. The dead Praetor raised his sword. Our desires reveal us. They show us for who we really are. Someone has come for you, Jason Grace. Behind Varus, the crowd parted. The shimmering ghost of a woman drifted forward, and Jason felt as if his bones were turning to dust. My dearest, 
said his mother's ghost. You have come home. Chapter 3 Jason Somehow he knew her. He recognized her dress, a flowery green and red wraparound, like the skirt of a Christmas tree. He recognized the colorful plastic bangles on her wrists that had dug into his back when she hugged him goodbye at the wolf house. He recognized her hair, an over-teased corona of dyed blonde curls, and her scent of lemons and aerosol. Her eyes were blue like Jason's, but they gleamed with fractured light, like she'd just come out of a bunker after a nuclear war, hungrily searching for familiar details in a changed world. Dearest, she held out her arms. Jason's vision tunneled. The ghosts and ghouls no longer mattered. His mist disguise burned off. His posture straightened. His joints stopped aching. His walking stick turned back into an imperial gold gladius. The burning sensation didn't stop. He felt as if layers of his life were being seared away. His months at Camp Half-Blood, his years at Camp Jupiter. His training with Lupa, the wolf goddess. He was a scared and vulnerable two-year-old again. Even the scar on his lip, from when he tried to eat a stapler as a toddler, stung like a fresh wound. Mom? He managed. Yes, dearest. Her image flickered. Come, embrace me. You're... you're not real. Of course she is real. Michael Varus's voice sounded far away. Did you think Gia would let such an important spirit languish in the underworld? She is your mother, Beryl Grace, star of television, sweetheart to the king of Olympus, who rejected her not once but twice, in both his Greek and Roman aspects. She deserves justice as much as any of us. Jason's heart felt wobbly. The suitors crowded around him, watching. I'm their entertainment, Jason realized. The ghosts probably found this even more amusing than two beggars fighting to the death. Piper's voice cut through the buzzing in his head. Jason, look at me! She stood twenty feet away, holding her ceramic amphora. Her smile was gone. Her gaze was fierce and commanding, as impossible to ignore as the blue harpy feather in her hair. That isn't your mother. Her voice is working some kind of magic on you, like charm speak, but more dangerous. Can't you sense it? She's right. Annabeth climbed onto the nearest table. She kicked aside a platter, startling a dozen suitors. Jason, that's only a remnant of your mother. Like an aura, maybe, or... A remnant? His mother's ghost sobbed. Yes, look what I have been reduced to. It's Jupiter's fault. He abandoned us. He wouldn't help me. I didn't want to leave you in Sonoma, my dear, but Juno and Jupiter gave me no choice. They wouldn't allow us to stay together. Why fight for them now? Join these suitors. Lead them. 
We can be a family again. Jason felt hundreds of eyes on him. This has been the story of my life, he thought bitterly. Everyone had always watched him, expecting him to lead the way. From the moment he'd arrived at Camp Jupiter, the Roman demigods had treated him like a prince in waiting. Despite his attempts to alter his destiny, joining the worst cohort, trying to change the camp traditions, taking the least glamorous missions, and befriending the least popular kids, he had been made praetor anyway. As a son of Jupiter, his future had been assured. He remembered what Hercules had said to him at the Straits of Gibraltar. It's not easy being a son of Zeus. Too much pressure. Eventually, it can make a guy snap. Now Jason was here, drawn as taut as a bowstring. You left me, he told his mother. That wasn't Jupiter or Juno. That was you. Beryl Grace stepped forward. The worry lines around her eyes... The pained tightness in her mouth reminded Jason of his sister, Thalia. Dearest, I told you I would come back. Those were my last words to you. Don't you remember? Jason shivered. In the ruins of the wolf house, his mother had hugged him one last time. She had smiled, but her eyes were full of tears. It's all right, she had promised. But even as a little kid, Jason had known it wasn't all right. Wait here. I will be back for you, dearest. I will see you soon. She hadn't come back. Instead, Jason had wandered the ruins, crying and alone, calling for his mother and for Thalia, until the wolves came for him. His mother's unkept promise was at the core of who he was, He'd built his whole life around the irritation of her words, like the grain of sand at the center of a pearl. People lie. Promises are broken. That was why, as much as it chafed him, Jason followed rules. He kept his promises. He never wanted to abandon anyone the way he'd been abandoned and lied to. Now his mom was back, erasing the one certainty Jason had about her that she'd left him forever. Across the table, Antinous raised his goblet. So pleased to meet you, son of Jupiter. Listen to your mother. You have many grievances against the gods. Why not join us? I gather these two serving girls are your friends. We will spare them. You wish to have your mother remain in the world? We can do that. You wish to be a king? No. Jason's mind was spinning. No, I don't belong with you. Michael Varus regarded him with cold eyes. Are you so sure, my fellow Preter? Even if you defeat the giants and Gia, would you return home like Odysseus did? Where is your home now? With the Greeks? With the Romans? No one will accept you. And if you get back, who's to say you won't find ruins like this? Jason scanned the palace courtyard. Without the illusory balconies and colonnades, there was nothing but a heap of rubble on a barren hilltop. Only the fountain seemed real, 
spewing forth sand like a reminder of Gia's limitless power. You were a legion officer, he told Varus, a leader of Rome. So were you, Varus said. Loyalties change. You think I belong with this crowd? Jason asked. A bunch of dead losers waiting for a free handout from Gia, whining that the world owes them something? Around the courtyard, ghosts and ghouls rose to their feet and drew weapons. Beware! Piper yelled at the crowd. Every man in this palace is your enemy. Each one will stab you in the back at the first chance. Over the last few weeks, Piper's charm speak had become truly powerful. She spoke the truth, and the crowd believed her. They looked sideways at one another, hands clenching the hilts of their swords. Jason's mother stepped toward him. Dearest, be sensible. Give up your quest. Your Argo, too, could never make the trip to Athens. Even if it did, there's the matter of the Athena Parthenos. A tremor passed through him. What do you mean? Don't feign ignorance, my dearest. Gia knows about your friend Reyna and Nico, the son of Hades, and the satyr Hedge. To kill them, the Earth Mother has sent her most dangerous son, the hunter who never rests. But you don't have to die. The ghouls and ghosts closed in, two hundred of them facing Jason in anticipation, as if he might lead them in the national anthem. The hunter who never rests. Jason didn't know what that was, but he had to warn Reyna and Nico, which meant he had to get out of here alive. He looked at Annabeth and Piper. Both stood ready, waiting for his cue. He forced himself to meet his mother's eyes. She looked like the same woman who'd abandoned him in the Sonoma woods fourteen years ago. But Jason wasn't a toddler anymore. He was a battle veteran, a demigod who'd faced death countless times. And what he saw in front of him wasn't his mother. At least, not what his mother should be. Caring, loving, selflessly protective. A remnant, Annabeth had called her. Michael Varus had told him that the spirits here were sustained by their strongest desires. The spirit of Beryl Grace literally glowed with need. Her eyes demanded Jason's attention. Her arms reached out, desperate to possess him. What do you want? he asked. What brought you here? I want life, she cried. Youth, beauty, your father could have made me immortal. He could have taken me to Olympus. But he abandoned me. You can set things right, Jason. You are my proud warrior. Her lemony scent turned acrid, as if she were starting to burn. Jason remembered something Thalia had told him. Their mother had become increasingly unstable, until her despair drove her crazy. She had died in a car accident the result of her driving while drunk. The watered wine in Jason's stomach churned. He decided that if he lived through this day, he would never drink alcohol again. You're a mania, Jason decided, the word coming to him from his studies at Camp Jupiter long ago. 
a spirit of insanity. That's what you've been reduced to. I am all that remains, Beryl Grace agreed. Her image flickered through a spectrum of colors. Embrace me, son. I am all you have left. The memory of the south wind spoke in his mind. You can't choose your parentage, but you can choose your legacy. Jason felt like he was being reassembled one layer at a time. His heartbeat steadied. The chill left his bones. His skin warmed in the afternoon sun. No, he croaked. He glanced at Annabeth and Piper. My loyalties haven't changed. My family has just expanded. I'm a child of Greece and Rome. He looked back at his mother for the last time. I'm no child of yours. He made the ancient sign of warding off evil. Three fingers thrust out from the heart, and the ghost of Beryl Grace disappeared with a soft hiss, like a sigh of relief. The ghoul Antinous tossed aside his goblet. He studied Jason with a lazy look of disgust. Well then, he said, I suppose we'll just kill you. All around Jason, the enemies closed in. Chapter 4 Jason The fight was going great, until he got stabbed. Jason slashed his gladius in a wide arc, vaporizing the nearest suitors. Then he vaulted onto the table and jumped right over Antinous's head. In mid-air, he wheeled his blade to extend into a javelin, a trick he'd never tried with this sword, but somehow he knew it would work. He landed on his feet, holding a six-foot-long pillum. As Antinous turned to face him, Jason thrust the imperial gold point through the ghoul's chest. Antinous looked down incredulously. You! Enjoy the fields of punishment. Jason yanked out his pillum, and Antinous crumbled to dirt. Jason kept fighting, spinning his javelin, slicing through ghosts, knocking ghouls off their feet. Across the courtyard, Annabeth fought like a demon, too. Her dragon-bone sword scythed down any suitor stupid enough to face her. Over by the sand fountain, Piper had also drawn her sword, the jagged bronze blade she'd taken from Zethes the Boread. She stabbed and parried with her right hand, occasionally shooting tomatoes from the cornucopia in her left, while yelling at the suitors, Save yourselves! I'm too dangerous! That must have been exactly what they wanted to hear, because her opponents kept running away, only to freeze in confusion a few yards downhill then charge back into the fight. The Greek tyrant Hippias lunged at Piper. His dagger raised, but Piper blasted him point-blank in the chest with a lovely pot roast. He tumbled backward into the fountain and screamed as he disintegrated. An arrow whistled toward Jason's face. He blew it aside with a gust of wind, then cut through a line of sword-wielding ghouls and noticed a dozen suitors regrouping by the fountain to charge Annabeth. He lifted his javelin to the sky. A bolt of lightning ricocheted off the point and blasted the ghosts to ions, 
leaving a smoking crater where the earthen fountain had been. Over the last few months, Jason had fought many battles, but he'd forgotten what it was like to feel good in combat. Of course, he was still afraid, but a huge weight had been lifted from his shoulders. For the first time since waking up in Arizona with his memories erased, Jason felt whole. He knew who he was. He had chosen his family, and it had nothing to do with Beryl Grace or even Jupiter. His family included all the demigods who fought at his side, Roman and Greek, new friends and old. He wasn't going to let anyone break his family apart. He summoned the winds and tossed three ghouls off the side of the hill like rag dolls. He skewered a fourth, then wheeled his javelin to shrink back to a sword and hacked through another group of spirits. Soon, no more enemies faced him. The remaining ghosts began to disappear on their own. Annabeth cut down Hasdrubal the Carthaginian, and Jason made the mistake of sheathing his sword. Pain flared in his lower back, so sharp and cold he thought Keone the snow goddess had touched him. Next to his ear, Michael Varus snarled, Born a Roman, die a Roman. The tip of a golden sword jutted through the front of Jason's shirt, just below his ribcage. Jason fell to his knees. Piper's scream sounded miles away. He felt like he'd been immersed in salty water, his body weightless, his head swaying. Piper charged toward him. He watched with detached emotion as her sword passed over his head and cut through Michael Varus's armor with a metallic kachunk. A burst of cold parted Jason's hair from behind. Dust settled around him, and an empty legionnaire's helmet rolled across the stones. The evil demigod was gone, but he had made a lasting impression. Jason! Piper grabbed his shoulders as he began to fall sideways. He gasped as she pulled the sword out of his back. Then she lowered him to the ground, propping his head against the stone. Annabeth ran to their side. She had a nasty cut on the side of her neck. Gods! Annabeth stared at the wound in Jason's gut. Oh, gods! Thanks! Jason groaned. I was afraid it might be bad. His arms and legs started to tingle as his body went into crisis mode, sending all the blood to his chest. The pain was dull, which surprised him, but his shirt was soaked red. The wound was smoking. He was pretty sure sword wounds weren't supposed to smoke. You're going to be fine. Piper spoke the words like an order. Her tone steadied his breathing. Annabeth, Ambrosia. Annabeth stirred. Yeah, yeah, I got it. She ripped through her supply pouch and unwrapped a piece of godly food. We have to stop the bleeding. Piper used her dagger to cut fabric from the bottom of her dress. She ripped the cloth into bandages. Jason dimly wondered how she knew so much first aid. She wrapped the wounds on his back and stomach while Annabeth pushed tiny bites of ambrosia into his mouth. Annabeth's fingers trembled. 
After all the things she'd been through, Jason found it odd that she would freak out now while Piper acted so calm. Then it occurred to him, Annabeth could afford to be scared for him. Piper couldn't. She was completely focused on trying to save him. Annabeth fed him another bite. Jason, I... I'm sorry about your mom, but the way you handled it, that was so brave. Jason tried not to close his eyes. Every time he did, he saw his mom's spirit disintegrating. It wasn't her, he said. At least, no part of her I could save. There was no other choice. Annabeth took a shaky breath. No other right choice, maybe, but a friend of mine, Luke, his mom, similar problem. He didn't handle it as well. Her voice broke. Jason didn't know much about Annabeth's past, but Piper glanced over in concern. I've bandaged as much as I can, she said. Blood is still soaking through, and the smoke. I don't get that. Imperial gold, Annabeth said, her voice quavering. It's deadly to demigods. It's only a matter of time before... He'll be all right, Piper insisted. We've got to get him back to the ship. I don't feel that bad, Jason said, and it was true. The ambrosia had cleared his head. Warmth was seeping back into his limbs. Maybe I could fly. Jason sat up. His vision turned a pale shade of green. Or maybe not. Piper caught his shoulders as he keeled sideways. Whoa, Sparky. We need to contact the Argo, too. Get help. You haven't called me Sparky in a long time. Piper kissed his forehead. Stick with me and I'll insult you all you want. Annabeth scanned the ruins. The magic veneer had faded, leaving only broken walls and excavation pits. We could use the emergency flares, but... No, Jason said. Leah would blast the top of the hill with Greek fire. Maybe if you guys help me, I could walk. Absolutely not, Piper objected. That would take too long. She rummaged in her belt pouch and pulled out a compact mirror. Annabeth, you know Morse code? Of course. So does Leo. Piper handed her the mirror. He'll be watching from the ship. Go to the ridge. And flash him. Annabeth's face reddened. That came out wrong, but yeah, good idea. She ran to the edge of the ruins. Piper pulled out a flask of nectar and gave Jason a sip. Hang in there. You are not dying from a stupid body piercing. Jason managed a weak smile. At least it wasn't a head injury this time. I stayed conscious the entire fight. You defeated like 200 enemies, Piper said. You were scary amazing. You guys helped. Maybe, but... Hey, stay with me. Jason's head started to droop. The cracks in the stones came into sharper focus. Little dizzy, he muttered. More nectar, Piper ordered. There, 
Taste okay? Yeah. Yeah, fine. In fact, the nectar tasted like liquid sawdust, but Jason kept that to himself. Ever since the House of Hades, when he'd resigned his praetorship, ambrosia and nectar didn't taste like his favorite foods from Camp Jupiter. It was as if the memory of his old home no longer had the power to heal him. Born a Roman, die a Roman, Michael Varus had said. He looked at the smoke curling from his bandages. He had worse things to worry about than blood loss. Annabeth was right about imperial gold. The stuff was deadly to demigods as well as monsters. The wound from Varus's blade would do its best to eat away at Jason's life force. He'd seen a demigod die like that once before. It hadn't been fast or pretty. I can't die, he told himself. My friends are depending on me. Antinous's words rang in his ears, about the giants in Athens, the impossible trip facing the Argo too, the mysterious hunter Gia had sent to intercept the Athena Parthenos. Reyna, Nico, and Coach Hedge, he said. They're in danger. We need to warn them. We'll take care of it when we get back to the ship, Piper promised. Your job right now is to relax. Her tone was light and confident, but her eyes brimmed with tears. Besides, those three are a tough group. They'll be fine. Jason hoped she was right. Reyna had risked so much to help them. Coach Hedge was annoying sometimes, but he'd been a loyal protector for the entire crew. And Nico. Jason felt especially worried about him. Piper brushed her thumb against the scar on his lip. Once the war is over, everything will work out for Nico. You've done what you could, being a friend to him. Jason wasn't sure what to say. He hadn't told Piper anything about his conversations with Nico. He'd kept D'Angelo's secret. Still, Piper seemed to sense what was wrong. As a daughter of Aphrodite... Maybe she could tell when somebody was struggling with heartache. She hadn't pressured Jason to talk about it, though. He appreciated that. Another wave of pain made him wince. Concentrate on my voice. Piper kissed his forehead. Think about something good. Birthday cake in the park in Rome. That was nice. Last winter, she suggested. The s'mores fight hit the campfire? I totally got you. You had marshmallows in your hair for days. I did not. Jason's mind drifted back to better times. He just wanted to stay there, talking with Piper, holding her hand, not worrying about giants or Gia or his mother's madness. He knew they should get back to the ship. He was in bad shape. They had the information they'd come for. But as he lay there on the cool stones, Jason felt a sense of incompleteness. The story of the suitors and Queen Penelope. His thoughts about family. His recent dreams. Those things all swirled around in his head. There was something more to this place. Something he'd missed. Annabeth came back limping from the edge of the hill. Are you hurt? Jason asked her. Annabeth glanced at her ankle.
It's fine. Just the old break from the Roman caverns. Sometimes when I'm stressed, that's not important. I signaled Leo. Frank's going to change form, fly up here, and carry you back to the ship. I need to make a litter to keep you stable. Jason had a terrifying image of himself in a hammock, swinging between the claws of Frank the giant eagle, but he decided it would be better than dying. Annabeth set to work. She collected scraps left behind by the suitors, a leather belt, a torn tunic, sandal straps, a red blanket, and a couple of broken spear shafts. Her hands flew across the materials, ripping, weaving, tying, braiding. How are you doing that? Jason asked in amazement. Learned it during my quest under Rome. Annabeth kept her eyes on her work. I'd never had a reason to try weaving before, but it's handy for certain things, like getting away from spiders. She tied off one last bit of leather cord and voila, a stretcher large enough for Jason, with spear shafts as carrying handles and safety straps across the middle. Piper whistled appreciatively. The next time I need a dress altered, I'm coming to you. Shut up, McLean. Annabeth said, but her eyes glinted with satisfaction. Now let's get him secured. Wait, Jason said. His heart pounded. Watching Annabeth weave the makeshift bed, Jason had remembered the story of Penelope, how she'd held out for twenty years, waiting for her husband, Odysseus, to return. A bed, Jason said. There was a special bed in this palace. Piper looked worried. Jason, you've lost a lot of blood. I'm not hallucinating, he insisted. The marriage bed was sacred. If there was any place you could talk to Juno. He took a deep breath and called, Juno! Silence. Maybe Piper was right. He wasn't thinking clearly. Then, about sixty feet away, the stone floor cracked. Branches muscled through the earth, growing in fast motion until a full-sized olive tree shaded the courtyard. Under a canopy of gray-green leaves stood a dark-haired woman in a white dress, a leopard-skin cape draped over her shoulders. Her staff was topped with a white lotus flower. Her expression was cool and regal. My heroes, said the goddess. Hera! Piper said. Juno, Jason corrected. Whatever, Annabeth grumbled. What are you doing here, your bovine majesty? Juno's dark eyes glittered dangerously. Annabeth Chase, as charming as ever. Yeah, well, Annabeth said. I just got back from Tartarus, so my manners are a little rusty especially toward goddesses who wiped my boyfriend's memory, made him disappear for months, and then... Honestly, child, are we going to rehash this again? Aren't you supposed to be suffering from split personality disorder? Annabeth asked. I mean, more so than usual? Whoa! Jason interceded. He had plenty of reasons to hate Juno but they had other issues to deal with. Juno, 
We need your help. We... Jason tried to sit up and immediately regretted it. His insides felt like they were being twirled on a giant spaghetti fork. Piper kept him from falling over. First things first, she said. Jason is hurt. Heal him. The goddess knit her eyebrows. Her form shimmered unsteadily. Some things even the gods cannot heal, she said. This wound touches your soul as well as your body. You must fight it, Jason Grace. You must survive. Yeah, thanks, he said, his mouth dry. I'm trying. What do you mean the wound touches his soul? Piper demanded. Why can't you... My heroes, our time together is short, Juno said. I am grateful that you called upon me. I have spent weeks in a state of pain and confusion, my Greek and Roman natures warring against each other. Worse, I have been forced to hide from Jupiter, who searches for me in his misguided wrath, believing that I caused this war with Gia. Gee, Annabeth said, why would he think that? Juno flashed her an irritated look. Fortunately, this place is sacred to me. By clearing away those ghosts, you have purified it and given me a moment of clarity. I will be able to speak with you, if only briefly. Why is it sacred? Piper's eyes widened. Oh, the marriage bed. Marriage bed? Annabeth asked. I don't see any... The bed of Penelope and Odysseus, Piper explained. One of its bedposts was a living olive tree, so it could never be moved. Indeed. Juno ran her hand along the olive tree's trunk. An immovable marriage bed. Such a beautiful symbol. Like Penelope, the most faithful wife, standing her ground, fending off a hundred arrogant suitors for years because she knew her husband would return. Odysseus and Penelope, the epitome of a perfect marriage. Even in his dazed state, Jason was pretty sure he remembered stories about Odysseus falling for other women during his travels, but he decided not to bring that up. Can you advise us, at least? he asked. Tell us what to do? Sail around the Peloponnese, said the goddess. As you suspect, that is the only possible route. On your way, seek out the goddess of victory in Olympia. She is out of control. Unless you can subdue her, the rift between Greek and Roman can never be healed. You mean Nike? Annabeth asked. How is she out of control? Thunder boomed overhead, shaking the hill. Explaining would take too long, Juno said. I must flee before Jupiter finds me. Once I leave, I will not be able to help you again. Jason bit back a retort. When did you help me the first time? What else should we know? he asked. As you heard, the giants have gathered in Athens. Few gods will be able to help you on your journey. But I am not the only Olympian who is out of favor with Jupiter. 
the twins have also incurred his wrath. Artemis and Apollo? Piper asked. Why? Juno's image began to fade. If you reach the island of Delos, they might be prepared to help you. They are desperate enough to try anything to make amends. Go now. Perhaps we will meet again in Athens if you succeed. If you do not... The goddess disappeared, or maybe Jason's eyesight simply failed. Pain rolled through him. His head lolled back. He saw a giant eagle circling high above. Then the blue sky turned black, and Jason saw nothing at all. Chapter 5. Reyna Dive-bombing a volcano was not on Reyna's bucket list. Her first view of southern Italy was from 5,000 feet in the air. To the west, along the crescent of the Gulf of Naples, the lights of sleeping cities glittered in the pre-dawn gloom. A thousand feet below her, a half-mile-wide caldera yawned at the top of a mountain, white steam pluming from the center. Reyna's disorientation took a moment to subside. Shadow travel left her groggy and nauseous, as if she'd been dragged from the cold waters of the Frigidarium into the sauna at a Roman bathhouse. Then she realized she was suspended in midair. Gravity took hold, and she began to fall. Nico! she yelled. Pan's pipes! cursed Gleason. Wah! Nico flailed, almost slipping out of Reyna's grip. She held tight and grabbed Coach Hedge by the shirt collar as he started to tumble away. If they got separated now, they were dead. They plummeted toward the volcano as their largest piece of luggage, the 40-foot-tall Athena Parthenos, trailed after them, leashed to a harness on Nico's back like a very ineffective parachute. That's Vesuvius below us, Reyna shouted over the wind. Nico, teleport us out of here. His eyes were wild and unfocused. His dark, feathery hair whipped around his face like a raven shot out of the sky. I... I can't. No strength. Coach Hedge bleated. Newsflash, kid. Goats can't fly. Zap us out of here or we're gonna get flattened into an Athena Parthenos omelet. Reyna tried to think. She could accept death if she had to, but if the Athena Parthenos was destroyed, their quest would fail. Reyna could not accept that. Nico, shadow travel, she ordered. I'll lend you my strength. He stared at her blankly. How? Do it! She tightened her grip on his hand. The torch and sword symbol of Bologna on her forearm grew painfully hot, as if it were being seared into her skin for the first time. Nico gasped. Color returned to his face. Just before they hit the volcano's steam plume, they slipped into shadows. The air turned frigid. The sound of the wind was replaced by a cacophony of voices whispering in a thousand languages. Reyna's insides felt like a giant piragua. Cold syrup trickled over crushed ice her favorite treat from childhood in Viejo San Juan. She wondered why that memory would surface now, when she was on the verge of death 
Then her vision cleared. Her feet rested on solid ground. The eastern sky had begun to lighten. For a moment, Reyna thought she was back in New Rome. Doric columns lined an atrium the size of a baseball diamond. In front of her, a bronze fawn stood in the middle of a sunken fountain decorated with mosaic tile. Crepe myrtles and rose bushes bloomed in a nearby garden. Palm trees and pines stretched skyward. Cobblestone paths led from the courtyard in several directions. Straight, level roads of good Roman construction, edging low stone houses with colonnaded porches. Reina turned. Behind her, the Athena Parthenos stood intact and upright, dominating the courtyard like a ridiculously oversized lawn ornament. The little bronze fawn in the fountain had both his arms raised, facing Athena, so he seemed to be cowering in fear of the new arrival. On the horizon, Mount Vesuvius loomed, a dark, humpbacked shape now several miles away. Thick pillars of steam curled from the crest. We're in Pompeii, Reyna realized. Oh, that's not good, Nico said, and immediately he collapsed. Whoa! Coach Hedge caught him before he hit the ground. The satyr propped him against Athena's feet and loosened the harness that attached Nico to the statue. Reyna's own knees buckled. She'd expected some backlash. It happened every time she shared her strength. But she hadn't anticipated so much raw anguish from Nico D'Angelo. She sat down heavily, just managing to stay conscious. Gods of Rome. If this was only a portion of Nico's pain... How could he bear it? She tried to steady her breathing while Coach Hedge rummaged through his camping supplies. Around Nico's boots, the stones cracked. Dark seams radiated outward like a shotgun blast of ink, as if Nico's body were trying to expel all the shadows he'd traveled through. Yesterday had been worse. An entire meadow withering, skeletons rising from the earth. Reyna wasn't anxious for that to happen again. Drink something. She offered him a canteen of unicorn draft, powdered horn mixed with sanctified water from the little Tiber. They'd found it worked on Nico better than nectar, helping to cleanse the fatigue and darkness from his system with less danger of spontaneous combustion. Nico gulped it down. He still looked terrible. His skin had a bluish tint. His cheeks were sunken. Hanging at his side, the scepter of Diocletian glowed angry purple, like a radioactive bruise. He studied Reyna. How did you do that? That surge of energy? Reyna turned her forearm. The tattoo still burned like hot wax. The symbol of Bologna, SPQR, with four lines for her years of service. I don't like to talk about it, she said. But it's a power from my mother. I can impart strength to others. Coach Hedge looked up from his rucksack. Seriously? Why haven't you hooked me up, Roman girl? I want super muscles. Reyna frowned. It doesn't work like that, Coach. I can only do it in life and death situations, and it's more useful in large groups. When I command troops... 
I can share whatever attributes I have, strength, courage, endurance, multiplied by the size of my forces. Nico arched an eyebrow. Useful for a Roman praetor. Reyna didn't answer. She preferred not to speak of her power for this exact reason. She didn't want the demigods under her command to think she was controlling them, or that she'd become a leader because she had some special magic. She could only share the qualities she already possessed, and she couldn't help anyone who wasn't worthy of being a hero. Coach Hedge grunted. Too bad. Super muscles would be nice. He went back to sorting through his pack, which seemed to hold a bottomless supply of cooking utensils, survivalist gear, and random sports equipment. Nico took another swig of unicorn draft. His eyes were heavy with exhaustion, but Reyna could tell he was fighting to stay awake. You stumbled just now, he noticed. When you use your power, do you get some sort of, um, feedback from me? It's not mind reading, she said. Not even an empathy link. Just a temporary wave of exhaustion. Primal emotions. Your pain washes over me. I take on some of your burden. Nico's expression became guarded. He twisted the silver skull ring on his finger, the same way Reyna did with her silver ring when she was thinking. Sharing a habit with the son of Hades made her uneasy. She'd felt more pain from Nico in their brief connection than she had from her entire legion during the battle against the giant Polybides. It had drained her worse than the last time she'd used her power, to sustain her pegasus, Scipio, during their journey across the Atlantic. She tried to push away that memory. Her braved wing friend, dying from poison, his muzzle in her lap, looking at her trustingly as she raised her dagger to end his misery. Gods know. She couldn't dwell on that or it would break her. But the pain she'd felt from Nico was sharper. You should rest, she told him. After two jumps in a row, even with a little help, you're lucky to be alive. We'll need you to be ready again by nightfall. She felt bad asking him to do something so impossible. Unfortunately, she'd had a lot of practice pushing demigods beyond their limits. Nico clenched his jaw and nodded. We're stuck here now. He scanned the ruins. But Pompeii is the last place I would have chosen to land. This place is full of lemurus. Lemurs? Coach Hedge seemed to be making some sort of snare out of kite string, a tennis racket, and a hunting knife. You mean those cute fuzzy critters? No. Nico sounded annoyed, like he got that question a lot. Lemurus. Unfriendly ghosts. All Roman cities have them, but in Pompeii... The whole city was wiped out, Reyna remembered. In 79 CE, Vesuvius erupted and covered the town in ash. Nico nodded. A tragedy like that creates a lot of angry spirits. Coach Hedge eyed the distant volcano. It's steaming. Is that a bad sign? I... I'm not sure. Nico picked at a hole in the knee of his black jeans.
Mountain gods, the Ori, can sense children of Hades. It's possible that's why we were pulled off course. The spirit of Vesuvius might have been trying intentionally to kill us, but I doubt the mountain can hurt us this far away. Working up to a full eruption would take too long. The immediate threat is all around us. The back of Rena's neck tingled. She'd grown used to Larry's, the friendly spirits at Camp Jupiter, but even they made her uneasy. They didn't have a good understanding of personal space. Sometimes they'd walk right through her, leaving her with vertigo. Being in Pompeii gave Raina the same feeling, as if the whole city was one big ghost that had swallowed her whole. She couldn't tell her friends how much she feared ghosts or why she feared them. The whole reason she and her sister had run away from San Juan all those years ago. That secret had to stay buried. Can you keep them at bay? She asked. Nico turned up his palms. I've sent out that message. Stay away. But once I'm asleep, it won't do us much good. Coach Hedge patted his tennis racket knife contraption. Don't worry, kid. I'm going to line the perimeter with alarms and snares. Plus, I'll be watching over you the whole time with my baseball bat. That didn't seem to reassure Nico, but his eyes were already half-closed. Okay, but go easy. We don't want another Albania. No, Reyna agreed. Their first shadow travel experience together two days ago had been a total fiasco, possibly the most humiliating episode in Reyna's long career. Perhaps someday, if they survived, they would look back on it and laugh, but not now. The three of them had agreed never to speak of it. What happened in Albania would stay in Albania. Coach Hedge looked hurt. Fine, whatever. Just rest, kid. We got you covered. All right, Nico relented. Maybe a little. He managed to take off his aviator jacket and wad it into a pillow before he keeled over and began to snore. Reyna marveled at how peaceful he looked. The worry lines vanished. His face became strangely angelic, like his surname, D'Angelo. She could almost believe he was a regular 14-year-old boy, not a son of Hades who had been pulled out of time from the 1940s and forced to endure more tragedy and danger than most demigods would in a lifetime. When Nico had arrived at Camp Jupiter, Reyna didn't trust him. She'd sensed there was more to his story than being an ambassador from his father, Pluto. Now, of course, she knew the truth. He was a Greek demigod, the first person in living memory, perhaps the first ever, to go back and forth between the Roman and Greek camps without telling either group that the other existed. Strangely, that made Reyna trust Nico more. Sure, he wasn't Roman. He'd never hunted with Lupa or endured the brutal legion training. But Nico had proven himself in other ways. He'd kept the camp's secrets for the best of reasons, because he feared a war. He had plunged into Tartarus alone, voluntarily, to find the doors of death. He'd been captured and imprisoned by giants, 
he had led the crew of the Argo II into the House of Hades, and now he had accepted yet another terrible quest, risking himself to haul the Athena Parthenos back to Camp Half-Blood. The pace of the journey was maddeningly slow. They could only shadow travel a few hundred miles each night, resting during the day to let Nico recover, but even that required more stamina from Nico than Reyna would have thought possible. He carried so much sadness and loneliness, so much heartache. Yet he put his mission first. He persevered. Reyna respected that. She understood that. She'd never been a touchy-feely person, but she had the strangest desire to drape her cloak over Nico's shoulders and tuck him in. She mentally chided herself. He was a comrade, not her little brother. He wouldn't appreciate the gesture. Hey! Coach Hedge interrupted her thoughts. You need sleep, too. I'll take first watch and cook some grub. Those ghosts shouldn't be too dangerous now that the sun's coming up. Reyna hadn't noticed how light it was getting. Pink and turquoise clouds striped the eastern horizon. The little bronze fawn cast a shadow across the dry fountain. I've read about this place, Reyna realized. It's one of the best preserved villas in Pompeii. They call it the House of the Fawn. Gleason glanced at the statue with distaste. Yeah, well, today it's the House of the Satyr. Reyna managed a smile. She was starting to appreciate the differences between satyrs and fawns. If she ever fell asleep with a fawn on duty, she'd wake up with her supplies stolen, a mustache drawn on her face, and the fawn long gone. Coach Hedge was different. Mostly good different, though he did have an unhealthy obsession with martial arts and baseball bats. All right, she agreed. You take first watch. I'll put Arm and Argentum on guard duty with you. Hedge looked like he wanted to protest, but Reyna whistled sharply. The metallic greyhounds materialized from the ruins, racing toward her from different directions. Even after so many years, Reyna had no idea where they came from or where they went when she dismissed them, but seeing them lifted her spirits. Hedge cleared his throat. You sure those aren't Dalmatians? They look like Dalmatians. They're greyhounds, coach. Reyna had no idea why Hedge feared Dalmatians, but she was too tired to ask right now. Aram, Argentum, guard us while I sleep. Obey Gleason Hedge. The dogs circled the courtyard, keeping their distance from the Athena Parthenos, which radiated hostility toward everything Roman. Reyna herself was only now getting used to it, and she was pretty sure the statue did not appreciate being relocated in the middle of an ancient Roman city. She lay down and pulled her purple cloak over herself. Her fingers curled around the pouch at her belt, where she kept the silver coin Annabeth had given her before they parted company in a pyrus. It's a sign that things can change, Annabeth had told her. The mark of Athena is yours now. Maybe the coin will bring you luck. Whether that luck would be good or bad, Reyna wasn't sure. 
She took one last look at the bronze fawn cowering before the sunrise and the Athena Parthenos. Then she closed her eyes and slipped into dreams. Chapter 6 Reina Most of the time, Reina could control her nightmares. She had trained her mind to start all her dreams in her favorite place, the Garden of Bacchus, on the tallest hill in New Rome. She felt safe and tranquil there. When visions invaded her sleep, as they always did with demigods, she could contain them by imagining they were reflections in the garden's fountain. This allowed her to sleep peacefully and avoid waking up the next morning in a cold sweat. Tonight, however, she wasn't so lucky. The dream began well enough. She stood in the garden on a warm afternoon, the arbor heavy with blooming honeysuckle. In the central fountain, the little statue of Bacchus spouted water into the basin. The golden domes and red-tiled roofs of New Rome spread out below her. Half a mile west rose the fortifications of Camp Jupiter. Beyond that, the little Tiber curved gently around the valley, tracing the edge of the Berkeley Hills, hazy and golden in the summer light. Raina held a cup of hot chocolate, her favorite drink. She exhaled contentedly. This place was worth defending, for herself, for her friends, for all demigods. Her four years at Camp Jupiter hadn't been easy, but they'd been the best time of Raina's life. Suddenly, the horizon darkened. Raina thought it might be a storm. Then she realized a tidal wave of dark loam was rolling across the hills, turning the skin of the earth inside out, leaving nothing behind. Raina watched in horror as the earthen tide reached the edge of the valley. The god Terminus sustained a magical barrier around the camp, but it slowed the destruction for only a moment. Purple light sprayed upward like shattered glass, and the tide poured through, shredding trees, destroying roads, wiping the little Tiber off the map. It's a vision, Raina thought. I can control this. She tried to change the dream. She imagined that the destruction was only a reflection in the fountain, a harmless video image, but the nightmare continued in full vivid scope. The earth swallowed the field of Mars, obliterating every trace of forts and trenches from the war games. The city's aqueduct collapsed like a line of children's blocks. Camp Jupiter itself fell, watchtowers crashing down, walls and barracks disintegrating. The screams of demigods were silenced, and the earth moved on. A sob built in Reina's throat. The gleaming shrines and monuments on Temple Hill crumbled. The Colosseum and the Hippodrome were swept away. The tide of earth reached the Palmarian line and roared straight into the city. Families ran through the forum. Children cried in terror. The Senate House imploded. Villas and gardens disappeared like crops under a tiller. The tide churned uphill toward the Garden of Bacchus, the last remnant of Reina's world. You left them helpless, Reina Ramirez Ariano. A woman's voice issued from the black terrain. Your camp will be destroyed. Your quest is a fool's errand. 
My hunter comes for you. Reyna tore herself from the garden railing. She ran to the fountain of Bacchus and gripped the rim of the basin, staring desperately into the water. She willed the nightmare to become a harmless reflection. Thunk! The basin broke in half, split by an arrow the size of a rake. Reyna stared in shock at the raven feather fletching, the shaft painted red, yellow, and black like a coral snake, the Stygian iron point embedded in her gut. She looked up through a haze of pain. At the edge of the garden, a dark figure approached. The silhouette of a man whose eyes shone like miniature headlamps, blinding Reyna. She heard the scrape of iron against leather as he drew another arrow from his quiver. Then her dream changed. The garden and the hunter vanished, along with the arrow in Reyna's stomach. She found herself in an abandoned vineyard. Stretched out before her, acres of dead grapevines hung in rows on wooden lattices, like gnarled miniature skeletons. At the far end of the field stood a cedar-shingled farmhouse with a wraparound porch. Beyond that, the land dropped off into the sea. Reyna recognized this place, the Goldsmith Winery on the north shore of Long Island. Her scouting parties had secured it as a forward base for the Legion's assault on Camp Half-Blood. She had ordered the bulk of the Legion to remain in Manhattan until she told them otherwise, but obviously Octavian had disobeyed her. The entire 12th Legion was camped in the northernmost field, they dug in with their usual military precision, ten-foot-deep trenches and spiked earthen walls around the perimeter, a watchtower on each corner armed with ballistae. Inside, tents were arranged in neat rows of white and red, the standards of all five cohorts curled in the wind. The sight of the Legion should have lifted Reyna's spirits. It was a small force, barely two hundred demigods, but they were well-trained and well-organized. If Julius Caesar came back from the dead, he would have had no trouble recognizing Reyna's troops as worthy soldiers of Rome. But they had no business being so close to Camp Half-Blood. Octavian's insubordination made Reyna clench her fists. He was intentionally provoking the Greeks, hoping for battle. Her dream vision zoomed to the porch of the farmhouse, where Octavian sat in a gilded chair that looked suspiciously like a throne. Along with his senatorial purple-lined toga, his centurion badge, and his augur's knife, he had adopted a new honor, a white cloth mantle over his head, which marked him as Pontifex Maximus, high priest to the gods. Reyna wanted to strangle him. No demigod in living memory had taken the title Pontifex Maximus. By doing so, Octavian was elevating himself almost to the level of emperor. To his right, reports and maps were strewn across a low table. To his left, a marble altar was heaped with fruit and gold offerings, no doubt for the gods. But to Reyna, it looked like an altar to Octavian himself. At his side, the legion's eagle-bearer, Jacob, stood at attention, sweating in his lion-skin cloak 
as if he held the staff with the Golden Eagle Standard on the 12th. Octavian was in the midst of an audience. At the base of the stairs knelt a boy in jeans and a rumpled hoodie. Octavian's fellow centurion of the first cohort, Mike Kahale, stood to one side with his arms crossed, glowering with obvious displeasure. Well now, Octavian scanned a piece of parchment. I see here you are a legacy, a descendant of Orcus. The boy in the hoodie looked up, and Raina caught her breath. Bryce Lawrence. She recognized his mop of brown hair, his broken nose, his cruel green eyes and smug, twisted smile. Yes, my lord, Bryce said. Oh, I'm not a lord, Octavian's eyes crinkled. Just a centurion, an augur, and a humble priest doing his best to serve the gods. I understand you were dismissed from the Legion for, uh, disciplinary problems. Reyna tried to shout, but she couldn't make a sound. Octavian knew perfectly well why Bryce had been kicked out, much like his godly forefather, Orcus, the underworld god of punishment, Bryce was completely remorseless. The little psychopath had survived his trials with Lupa just fine, but as soon as he arrived at Camp Jupiter, he had proved to be untrainable. He had tried to set a cat on fire for fun. He had stabbed a horse and sent it stampeding through the forum. He was even suspected of sabotaging a siege engine and getting his own centurion killed during the war games. If Reyna had been able to prove it, Bryce's punishment would have been death. But because the evidence was circumstantial, and because Bryce's family was rich and powerful with lots of influence in New Rome, he'd gotten off with the lighter sentence of banishment. Yes, Pontifex, Bryce said slowly, but... If I may, those charges were unproven. I am a loyal Roman. Mike Cajale looked like he was doing his best not to throw up. Octavian smiled. I believe in second chances. You've responded to my call for recruits. You have the proper credentials and letters of recommendation. Do you pledge to follow my orders and serve the Legion? Absolutely, said Bryce. Then you are reinstated in probatio, Octavian said, until you have proven yourself in combat. He gestured at Mike, who reached in his pouch and fished out a lead probatio tablet on a leather cord. He hung the cord around Bryce's neck. Report to the fifth cohort, Octavian said. They could use some new blood. Some fresh perspective. If your centurion Dakota has any problem with that, tell him to talk to me. Bryce smiled like he'd just been handed a sharp knife. My pleasure. And Bryce? Octavian's face looked almost ghoulish under his white mantle. His eyes too piercing, his cheeks too gaunt, his lips too thin and colorless. However much money, power, and prestige the Lawrence family carries in the Legion, remember that my family carries more. I am personally sponsoring you. 
as I am sponsoring all the other new recruits. Follow my orders, and you'll advance quickly. Soon I may have a little job for you, a chance to prove your worth. But cross me, and I will not be as lenient as Reyna. Do you understand? Bryce's smile faded. He looked like he wanted to say something, but he changed his mind. He nodded. Good, Octavian said. Also, get a haircut. You look like one of those Greekish scum. Dismissed. After Bryce left, Mike Kahale shook his head. That makes two dozen now. It's good news, my friend, Octavian assured him. We need the extra manpower. Murderers, thieves, traitors. Loyal demigods, Octavian said, who owe their position to me. Mike scowled. Until Reyna had met him, she'd never understood why people called biceps guns, but Mike's arms were as thick as bazooka barrels. He had broad features, a toasted almond complexion, onyx hair, and proud dark eyes like the old Hawaiian kings. She wasn't sure how a high school linebacker from Hilo had wound up with Venus for a mom, but no one in the Legion gave him any grief about that, not once they saw him crush rocks with his bare hands. Reyna had always liked Mike Kahale. Unfortunately, Mike was very loyal to his sponsor, and his sponsor was Octavian. The Pontifex rose and stretched. Don't worry, old friend. Our siege teams have the Greek camp surrounded. Our eagles have complete air superiority. The Greeks aren't going anywhere until we're ready to strike. In eleven days, all my forces will be in place. My little surprises will be prepared. On August 1st, the Feast of Spes, the Greek camp will fall. But Reyna said, We've been through this. Octavian slid his iron dagger from the belt and threw it at the table, where it impaled a map of Camp Half-Blood. Reyna has forfeited her position. She went to the ancient lands, which is against the law. But the Earth Mother has been stirring because of the war between the Greek and Roman camps, yes? The gods are incapacitated, yes? And how do we solve that problem, Mike? We eliminate the division. We wipe out the Greeks. We return the gods to their proper manifestation as Roman. Once the gods are restored to their full power, Gia will not dare rise. She will sink back into her slumber. We demigods will be strong and unified, as we were in the old days of the Empire. Besides, the first day of August is most auspicious the month named after my ancestor, Augustus. And you know how he united the Romans? He seized power and became emperor, Mike rumbled. Octavian waved aside the comment. Nonsense! He saved Rome by becoming first citizen. He wanted peace and prosperity, not power. Believe me, Mike, I intend to follow his example. I will save new Rome. And when I do, I will remember my friends. 
Mike shifted his considerable bulk. You sound certain. Has your gift of prophecy... Octavian held up his hand in warning. He glanced at Jacob, the eagle-bearer, who was still standing at attention behind him. Jacob, you're dismissed. Why don't you go polish the eagle or something? Jacob's shoulders slumped in relief. Yes, Augur. I mean Centurion. I mean Pontifex. I mean... Go. I'll go. Once Jacob had hobbled off, Octavian's face clouded. Mike, I told you not to speak of my, uh, problem. But to answer your question, no. There still seems to be some interference with Apollo's usual gift to me. He glanced resentfully at a pile of mutilated stuffed animals heaped in the corner of the porch. I can't see the future. Perhaps that false oracle at Camp Half-Blood is working some sort of witchcraft. But as I've told you before, in strictest confidence, Apollo spoke to me clearly last year at Camp Jupiter. He personally blessed my endeavors. He promised I would be remembered as the savior of the Romans. Octavian spread his arms, revealing his harp tattoo, the symbol of his godly forefather. Seven slash marks indicated his years of service, more than any presiding officer, including Reyna. Never fear, Mike. We will crush the Greeks. We will stop Gia and her minions. Then we'll take that harpy the Greeks have been harboring, the one who memorized our Sibylline books, and we'll force her to give us the knowledge of our ancestors. Once that happens... I'm sure Apollo will restore my gift of prophecy. Camp Jupiter will be more powerful than ever. We will rule the future. Mike's scowl didn't lessen, but he raised his fist in a salute. You're the boss. Yes, I am. Octavian pulled his dagger from the table. Now, go check on those two dwarfs you captured— I want them properly terrified before I interrogate them again and dispatch them to Tartarus. The dream faded. Hey, wake up! Reyna's eyes fluttered open. Gleason Hedge was leaning over her, shaking her shoulder. We got trouble! His grave tone got her blood moving. What is it? She struggled to sit up. Ghosts? Monsters? Hedge scowled. Worse. Tourists. Chapter 7. Reyna. The hordes had arrived. In groups of twenty or thirty, tourists swarmed through the ruins, milling around the villas, wandering the cobblestone paths, gawking at the colorful frescoes and mosaics. Reyna worried how the tourists would react to a forty-foot-tall statue of Athena in the middle of the courtyard, but the mist must have been working overtime to obscure the mortal's vision. Each time a group approached, they'd stop at the edge of the courtyard and stare in disappointment at the statue. One British tour guide announced, Ah, scaffolding. It appears this area is undergoing restoration. Pity. Let's move along and off they went. 
At least the statue didn't rumble, Die, unbelievers, and zap the mortals to dust. Reyna had once dealt with the statue of the goddess Diana like that. It hadn't been her most relaxing day. She recalled what Annabeth had told her about the Athena Parthenos. Its magical aura both attracted monsters and kept them at bay. Sure enough, every so often, out of the corner of her eye, Reyna would spot glowing white spirits in Roman clothes, flitting among the ruins, frowning at the statue in consternation. Those lemurists are everywhere, Gleason muttered, keeping their distance for now. But come nightfall, we'd better be ready to move. Ghosts are always worse at night. Reyna didn't need to be reminded of that. She watched as an elderly couple in matching pastel shirts and Bermuda shorts tottered through a nearby garden. She was glad they didn't come any closer. Around the camp, Coach Hedge had rigged all sorts of tripwires, snares, and oversized mousetraps that wouldn't stop any self-respecting monster, but they might very well bring down a senior citizen. Despite the warm morning, Raina shivered from her dreams. She couldn't decide which was more terrifying, the impending destruction of New Rome or the way Octavian was poisoning the Legion from the inside. Your quest is a fool's errand. Camp Jupiter needed her. The Twelfth Legion needed her. Yet Reyna was halfway across the world, watching a satyr cook ego blueberry waffles on a stick over an open fire. She wanted to talk about her nightmares, but she decided to wait until Nico woke up. She wasn't sure she'd have the courage to describe them twice. Nico kept snoring. Reyna had discovered that once he fell asleep, it took a lot to wake him up. The coach could do a goat hoof tap dance around Nico's head, and the son of Hades wouldn't even budge. Here. Hedge offered her a plate of flame-broiled egos with fresh-sliced kiwi and pineapple. It all looked surprisingly good. Where are you getting these supplies? Reyna marveled. Hey. I'm a satyr. We're very efficient packers. He took a bite of waffle. We also know how to live off the land. As Raina ate, Coach Hedge took out a notepad and started to write. When he was finished, he folded the paper into an airplane and tossed it into the air. A breeze carried it away. A letter to your wife? Raina guessed. Under the rim of his baseball cap, Hedge's eyes were bloodshot. Melly's a cloud nymph. Air spirits send stuff by paper airplane all the time. Hopefully her cousins will keep the letter going across the ocean until it finds her. It's not as fast as an iris message, but, well, I want our kid to have some record of me in case, you know. We'll get you home, Raina promised. You will see your kid. Hedge clenched his jaw and said nothing. Reyna was pretty good at getting people to talk. She considered it essential to know her comrades in arms, but she'd had a tough time convincing Hedge to open up about his wife, Melly, who was close to giving birth back at Camp Half-Blood. Reyna had trouble imagining the coach as a father, but she understood what it was like to grow up without parents. She wasn't going to let that happen to Coach Hedge's child.
Yeah, well... The satyr bit off another piece of ego, including the stick he'd toasted it on. I just wish we could move faster. He chin-pointed to Nico. I don't see how this kid is going to last one more jump. How many more will it take us to get home? Reyna shared his concern. In only eleven days, the giants planned to awaken Gia. Octavian planned to attack Camp Half-Blood on the same day. That couldn't be a coincidence. Perhaps Gia was whispering in Octavian's ear, influencing his decision subconsciously. Or worse, Octavian was actively in league with the Earth Goddess. Reyna didn't want to believe that even Octavian would knowingly betray the Legion, but after what she'd seen in her dreams, she couldn't be sure. She finished her meal as a group of Chinese tourists shuffled past the courtyard. Reyna had been awake for less than an hour, and already she was restless to get moving. Thanks for breakfast, coach. She got to her feet and stretched. If you'll excuse me, where there are tourists, there are bathrooms. I need to use the little preter's room. Go ahead. The coach jangled the whistle that hung around his neck. If anything happens, I'll blow. Reyna left Aram and Argentum on guard duty and strolled through the crowds of mortals until she found a visitor center with restrooms. She did her best to clean up, but she found it ironic that she was in an actual Roman city and couldn't enjoy a nice hot Roman bath. She had to settle for paper towels, a broken soap dispenser, and an asthmatic hand dryer. And the toilets? The less said about those, the better. As she was walking back, she passed a small museum with a window display. Behind the glass lay a row of plaster figures, all frozen in the throes of death. A young girl was curled in a fetal position. A woman lay twisted in agony, her mouth open to scream, her arms thrown overhead. A man knelt with his head bowed, as if accepting the inevitable. Reyna stared with a mixture of horror and revulsion. She'd read about such figures, but she'd never seen them in person. After the eruption of Vesuvius, volcanic ash had buried the city and hardened to rock around dying Pompeians. Their bodies had disintegrated, leaving behind human-shaped pockets of air. Early archaeologists had poured plaster into the holes and made these casts, creepy replicas of ancient Romans. Reyna found it disturbing, wrong, that these people's dying moments were on display like clothes in a shop window. Yet she couldn't look away. All her life she'd dreamed about coming to Italy. She had assumed it would never happen. The ancient lands were forbidden to modern demigods. The area was simply too dangerous. Nevertheless, she wanted to follow in the footsteps of Aeneas, son of Aphrodite, the first demigod to settle here after the Trojan War. She wanted to see the original Tiber River, where Lupa, the wolf goddess, saved Romulus and Remus. But Pompeii? Reyna had never wanted to come here. The site of Rome's most infamous disaster, an entire city swallowed by the earth. After Reyna's nightmares, that hit a little too close to home. So far in the ancient lands, she'd only seen one place on her wish list, Diocletian's palace in Split, 
and even that visit had hardly gone the way she'd imagined. Reyna used to dream about going there with Jason to admire their favorite emperor's home. She pictured romantic walks with him through the old city, sunset picnics on the parapets. Instead, Reyna had arrived in Croatia not with him, but with a dozen angry wind spirits on her tail. She'd fought her way through ghosts in the palace. On her way out, griffins had attacked, mortally wounding her pegasus. The closest she'd gotten to Jason was finding a note he'd left for her under a bust of Diocletian in the basement. She would only have painful memories of that place. Don't be bitter, she chided herself. Aeneas suffered too. So did Romulus, Diocletian, and all the rest. Romans don't complain about hardship. Staring at the plaster death figures in the museum window, she wondered what they had been thinking as they curled up to die in the ashes. Probably not, Well, we're Romans, we shouldn't complain. A gust of wind blew through the ruins, making a hollow moan. Sunlight flashed against the window, momentarily blinding her. With a start, Reyna looked up. The sun was directly overhead. How could it be noon already? She'd left the House of the Fawn just after breakfast. She'd only been standing here a few minutes, hadn't she? She tore herself from the museum display and hurried off, trying to shake the feeling that the dead Pompeians were whispering behind her back. The rest of the afternoon was unnervingly quiet. Reyna kept watch while Coach Hedge slept, but there was nothing much to guard against. Tourists came and went. Random harpies and wind spirits flew by overhead. Reyna's dogs would snarl in warning, but the monsters didn't stop to fight. Ghosts skulked around the edges of the courtyard, apparently intimidated by the Athena Parthenos. Reyna couldn't blame them. The longer the statue stood in Pompeii, the more anger it seemed to radiate, making Reyna's skin itchy and her nerves raw. Finally, just after sunset, Nico woke. He wolfed down an avocado and cheese sandwich, the first time he'd shown a decent appetite since leaving the House of Hades. Reyna hated to ruin his dinner, but they didn't have much time. As the daylight faded, the ghosts started moving closer and in greater numbers. She told him about her dreams, the Earth swallowing Camp Jupiter, Octavian closing in on Camp Half-Blood, and the hunter with the glowing eyes who had shot Reyna in the gut. Nico stared at his empty plate. This hunter? A giant, maybe? Coach Hedge grunted. I'd rather not find out. I say we keep moving. Nico's mouth twitched. You are suggesting we avoid a fight? Listen, Cupcake, I like a smackdown as much as the next guy, but we've got enough monsters to worry about without some bounty hunter giant tracking us across the world. I don't like the sound of those huge arrows. For once, Reyna said, I agree with Hedge. Nico unfolded his aviator jacket. He put his finger through an arrow hole in the sleeve. I could ask for advice. Nico sounded reluctant. Thalia Grace. 
Jason's sister, Raina said. She'd never met Thalia. In fact, she'd only recently learned Jason had a sister. According to Jason, she was a Greek demigod, a daughter of Zeus, who led a group of Diana's, no, Artemis's followers. The whole idea made Raina's head spin. Nico nodded. The hunters of Artemis are, well, hunters. If anybody knew about this giant hunter guy, Thalia would. I could try sending her an iris message. You don't sound very excited about the idea, Raina noticed. Are you two on bad terms? We're fine. A few feet away, Aram snarled quietly, which meant Nico was lying. Raina decided not to press. I should also try to contact my sister, Hilla, she said. Camp Jupiter is lightly defended. If Gia attacks there, perhaps the Amazons could help. Coach Hedge scowled. No offense, but, uh, what's an army of Amazons going to do against a wave of dirt? Raina fought down a sense of dread. She suspected Hedge was right. Against what she'd seen in her dreams, the only defense would be to prevent the giants from waking Gia. For that, she had to put her trust in the crew of the Argo too. The daylight was almost gone. Around the courtyard, ghosts were forming a mob. Hundreds of glowing Romans carrying spectral clubs or stones. We can talk more after the next jump. Raina decided. Right now, we need to get out of here. Yeah. Nico stood. I think we can reach Spain this time if we're lucky. Just let me... The mob of ghosts vanished, like a mass of birthday candles blown out in a single breath. Raina's hand went to her dagger. Where do they go? Nico's eyes flitted across the ruins. His expression was not reassuring. I... I'm not sure, but I don't think it's a good sign. Keep a lookout. I'll get harnessed up. Should only take a few seconds. Gleason Hedge rose to his hooves. A few seconds you do not have. Raina's stomach curled into a tiny ball. Hedge spoke with a woman's voice the same one Raina had heard in her nightmare. She drew her knife. Hedge turned toward her, his face expressionless. His eyes were solid black. Be glad, Raina Ramirez Ariano. You will die as a Roman. You will join the ghosts of Pompeii. The ground rumbled. All around the courtyard, spirals of ash swirled into the air. They solidified into crude human figures, earthen shells like the ones in the museum. They stared at Reyna, their eyes ragged holes in faces of rock. The earth will swallow you, Hedge said in the voice of Gia, just as it swallowed them. Chapter 8 Reyna there are too many of them. Reyna wondered bitterly how many times she'd said that in her demigod career. 
She should have a button made and wear it around to save time. When she died, the words would probably be written on her tombstone. There were too many of them. Her greyhound stood on either side of her, growling at the earthen shells. Raina counted at least twenty, closing in from every direction. Coach Hedge continued to speak in a very womanly voice. The dead always outnumber the living. These spirits have waited centuries, unable to express their anger. Now I have given them bodies of earth. One earthen ghost stepped forward. It moved slowly, but its footfall was so heavy it cracked the ancient tiles. Nico, Reyna called. I can't control them, he said, frantically untangling his harness. Something about the rock shells, I guess. I need a couple of seconds to concentrate on making the shadow jump. Otherwise, I might teleport us into another volcano. Reyna cursed under her breath. There was no way she could fight off so many by herself while Nico prepared their escape, especially with Coach Hedge out of commission. Use the scepter, she said. Get me some zombies. It will not help, Coach Hedge intoned. Stand aside, breeder. Let the ghosts of Pompeii destroy this Greek statue. A true Roman would not resist. The earthen ghosts shuffled forward. Through their mouth holes, they made hollow whistling noises, like someone blowing across empty soda bottles. One stepped on the coach's dagger tennis racket trap and smashed it to pieces. From his belt, Nico pulled the scepter of Diocletian. Reyna, if I summon more dead Romans, who's to say they won't join this mob? I say, I am a praetor. Get me some legionnaires, and I'll control them. You shall perish, said the coach. You shall never... Reyna smacked him on the head with the pommel of her knife. The satyr crumpled. Sorry, coach, she muttered. That was getting tiresome. Nico, zombies, then concentrate on getting us out of here. Nico raised his scepter and the ground trembled. The earthen ghosts chose that moment to charge. Aram leaped at the nearest one and literally bit the creature's head off with his metal fangs. The rock shell toppled backward and shattered. Argentum was not so lucky. He sprang at another ghost, which swung its heavy arm and bashed the greyhound in his face. Argentum went flying. He staggered to his feet. His head was twisted forty-five degrees to the right. One of his ruby eyes was missing. Anger hammered in Reyna's chest like a hot spike. She'd already lost her pegasus. She was not going to lose her dogs, too. She slashed her knife through the ghost's chest, then drew her gladius. Strictly speaking, fighting with two blades wasn't very Roman, but Reyna had spent time with pirates. She'd picked up more than a few tricks. The earthen shells crumbled easily, but they hit like sledgehammers. Reyna didn't understand how, but she knew she couldn't afford to take even one blow. Unlike Argentum, she wouldn't survive getting her head knocked sideways. Nico! She ducked between two earthen ghosts, 
allowing them to smash each other's heads in. Any time now. The ground split open down the center of the courtyard. Dozens of skeletal soldiers clawed their way to the surface. Their shields looked like giant corroded pennies. Their blades were more rust than metal, but Reyna had never been so relieved to see reinforcements. Legion, she shouted, "Odd Akium!" The zombies responded, pushing through the earthen ghosts to form a battle line. Some fell, crushed by stone fists. Others managed to close ranks and raise their shields. Behind her, Nico cursed. Reyna risked a backward glance. The scepter of Diocletian was smoking in Nico's hands. "It's fighting me," he yelled. "I don't think it likes summoning Romans to fight other Romans." Reyna knew that ancient Romans had spent at least half their time fighting each other, but she decided not to bring that up. "Just secure Coach Hedge. Get ready to shadow travel. I'll buy you some." Nico yelped. The scepter of Diocletian exploded into pieces. Nico didn't look hurt, but he stared at Reyna in shock. I, I don't know what happened. You've got a few minutes tops before your zombies disappear. Legion, Reyna shouted. Orbum formate, gladium signe. The zombies circled the Athena Parthenos, their swords ready for close quarters fighting. Argentum dragged the unconscious Coach Hedge over to Nico, who was furiously strapping himself into the harness. Aram stood guard, lunging at any Earth Ghost who broke through the line. Reyna fought shoulder to shoulder with the dead legionnaires, sending her strength into their ranks. She knew it wouldn't be enough. The Earthen Ghosts fell easily, but more kept rising from the ground in swirls of ash. Each time their stone fists connected, another zombie went down. Meanwhile, the Athena Parthenos towered over the battle, regal, haughty, and unconcerned. A little help would be nice, Reyna thought. Maybe a destructo ray, or some good old-fashioned smiting. The statue did nothing except radiate hatred, which seemed directed equally at Reyna and the attacking ghosts. You want to lug me to Long Island? The statue seemed to say, "Good luck with that, Roman scum." Reyna's destiny: to die defending a passive-aggressive goddess. She kept fighting, extending more of her will into the undead troops. In return, they bombarded her with their despair and resentment. "You fight for nothing," the zombie legionnaires whispered in her mind. The empire is gone. For Rome, Reyna cried hoarsely. She slashed her gladius through one earthen ghost and stabbed her dagger in another's chest. Twelfth legion fulminata. All around her, zombies fell. Some were crushed in battle. Others disintegrated on their own as the residual power of Diocletian's scepter finally failed. The earthen ghosts closed in, a sea of misshapen faces with hollow eyes. Reyna, now! Nico yelled. We're leaving. She glanced back. Nico had harnessed himself to the Athena Parthenos. 
He held the unconscious Gleason Hedge in his arms like a damsel in distress. Aram and Argentum had disappeared, perhaps too badly damaged to continue fighting. Raina stumbled. A rock first gave her a glancing blow to the ribcage, and her side erupted in pain. Her head swam. She tried to breathe, but it was like inhaling knives. Raina! Nico shouted again. The Athena Parthenos flickered, about to disappear. An earthen ghost swung at Raina's head. She managed to dodge, but the pain in her ribs almost made her black out. Give up, said the voices in her head. The legacy of Rome is dead and buried, just like Pompeii. No, she murmured to herself. Not while I'm still alive. Nico stretched out his hand as he slipped into the shadows. With the last of her strength, Reyna leaped toward him. Chapter 9 Leo Leo didn't want to come out of the wall. He had three more braces to attach, and nobody else was skinny enough to fit in the crawlspace. One of the many advantages of being scrawny. Wedged between the layers of the hull with the plumbing and wiring, Leo could be alone with his thoughts. When he got frustrated, which happened about every five seconds, he could hit stuff with his mallet, and the other crew members would figure he was working, not throwing a tantrum. One problem with his sanctuary? He only fit up to his waist. His butt and legs were still on view to the general public, which made it hard for him to hide. Leo! Piper's voice came from somewhere behind him. We need you. The celestial bronze O-ring slipped out of Leo's pliers and slid into the depths of the crawlspace. Leo sighed. Talk to the pants, Piper, because the hands are busy. I am not talking to the pants. Meeting in the mess hall. We're almost to Olympia. Yeah, fine. I'll be there in a sec. What are you doing anyway? You've been poking around inside the hull for days. Leo swept his flashlight across the celestial bronze plates and pistons he'd been installing slowly but surely. Routine maintenance. Silence. Piper was a little too good at knowing when he was lying. Leo. Hey, while you're out there, do me a favor. I got this itch right below my... Fine, I'm leaving. Leo allowed himself a couple more minutes to fasten the brace. His work wasn't done, not by a long shot, but he was making progress. Of course, he'd laid the groundwork for his secret project when he first built the Argo too, but he hadn't told anyone about it. He had barely been honest with himself about what he was doing. Nothing lasts forever, his dad once told him. Not even the best machines. Yeah, okay, maybe that was true. But Hephaestus had also said, Everything can be reused. Leo intended to test that theory. It was a dangerous risk. If he failed, it would crush him. Not just emotionally. It would physically crush him. The thought made him claustrophobic. He wriggled out of the crawlspace and went back into his cabin. Well... Technically, it was his cabin, but he didn't sleep there. 
The mattress was littered with wires, nails, and the guts of several disassembled bronze machines. His three massive rolling tool cabinets—Chico, Harpo, and Groucho—took up most of the room. Dozens of power tools hung on the walls. The work table was piled with photocopied blueprints from On Spheres, the forgotten Archimedes text Leo had liberated from an underground workshop in Rome. Even if he wanted to sleep in his cabin, it would have been too cramped and dangerous. He preferred to bed down in the engine room, where the constant hum of machinery helped him fall asleep. Besides, ever since his time on the island of Ogigia, he had become fond of camping out. A bedroll on the floor was all he needed. His cabin was only for storage, and for working on his most difficult projects. He pulled his keys from his tool belt. He didn't really have time, but he unlocked Groucho's middle drawer and stared at the two precious objects inside—a bronze astrolabe he'd picked up in Bologna, and a fist-sized chunk of crystal from Ogigia. Leo hadn't figured out how to put the two things together yet, and it was driving him crazy. He'd been hoping to get some answers when they visited Ithaca. After all. It was the home of Odysseus, the dude who had constructed the astrolabe. But judging from what Jason had said, those ruins hadn't held any answers for him—just a bunch of ill-tempered ghouls and ghosts. Anyway, Odysseus never got the astrolabe to work. He hadn't had a crystal to use as a homing beacon. Leo did. He would have to succeed where the cleverest demigod of all time had failed. Just Leo's luck. A super hot immortal girl was waiting for him on Ogigia, but he couldn't figure out how to wire a stupid chunk of rock into the three thousand year old navigation device. Some problems even duct tape couldn't solve. Leo closed the drawer and locked it. His eyes drifted to the bulletin board above his work table, where two pictures hung side by side. The first was the old crayon drawing he'd made when he was seven years old. A diagram of a flying ship he'd seen in his dreams. The second was a charcoal sketch Hazel had recently made for him. Hazel Levesque, that girl was something. As soon as Leo rejoined the crew in Malta, she'd known right away that Leo was hurting inside. The first chance she got, after all that mess in the house of Hades, she'd marched into Leo's cabin and said, "Spill." Hazel was a good listener. Leo told her the whole story. Later that evening, Hazel came back with her sketch pad and her charcoal pencils. Describe her, she insisted. Every detail. It felt a little weird helping Hazel make a portrait of Calypso, as if he were talking to a police artist. Yes, officer, that's the girl who stole my heart. Sounded like a freaking country song. But describing Calypso had been easy. Leo couldn't close his eyes without seeing her. Now her likeness gazed back at him from the bulletin board. Her almond-shaped eyes, her pouty lips, her long straight hair swept over one shoulder of her sleeveless dress. He could almost smell her cinnamon fragrance. Her knit brow and the downward turn of her mouth seemed to say, "Leo Valdez, you are so full of it." Dang, he loved that woman. 
Leo had pinned her portrait next to the drawing of the Argo II to remind himself that sometimes visions do come true. As a little kid, he dreamed about a flying ship. Eventually, he built it. Now, he would build a way to get back to Calypso. The hum of the ship's engines changed to a lower pitch. Over the cabin loudspeaker, Festus's voice creaked and squeaked. Yeah, thanks, buddy, Leo said. On my way. The ship was descending, which meant Leo's projects would have to wait. Sit tight, sunshine, he told Calypso's picture. I'll get back to you, just like I promised. Leo could imagine her response. I am not waiting for you, Leo Valdez. I am not in love with you, and I certainly don't believe your foolish promises. The thought made him smile. He slipped his keys back into his tool belt and headed for the mess hall. The other six demigods were eating breakfast. Once upon a time, Leo would have worried about all of them being together below decks with nobody at the helm. But ever since Piper had permanently woken up Festus with her charm speak, a feat Leo still did not understand, the dragon figurehead had been more than capable of running the Argo II by himself. Festus could navigate, check the radar, make a blueberry smoothie, and spew white-hot jets of fire at invaders, simultaneously, without even blowing a circuit. Besides, they had Buford the Wonder Table as backup. After Coach Hedge left on his shadow travel expedition, Leo had decided that his three-legged table could do just as good a job as their adult chaperone. He had laminated Buford's tabletop with a magic scroll that projected a pint-sized holographic simulation of Coach Hedge. Minnie Hedge would stomp around on Buford's top, randomly saying things like, Cut that out! I'm gonna kill you! And the ever-popular, Put some clothes on! Today, Buford was manning the helm. If Festus's flames didn't scare away the monsters, Buford's holographic hedge definitely would. Leo stood in the doorway of the mess hall, taking in the scene around the dining table. It wasn't often he got to see all his friends together. Percy was eating a huge stack of blue pancakes. What was his deal with blue food? While Annabeth chided him for pouring on too much syrup. You're drowning them, she complained. Hey, I'm a Poseidon kid, he said. I can't drown, and neither can my pancakes. To their left, Frank and Hazel used their cereal bowls to flatten out a map of Greece. They looked over it, their heads close together. Every once in a while, Frank's hand would cover Hazel's, just sweet and natural, like they were an old married couple. And Hazel didn't even look flustered which was real progress for a girl from the 1940s. Until recently, if somebody said, gosh darn, she would nearly faint. At the head of the table, Jason sat uncomfortably with his T-shirt rolled up to his ribcage as Nurse Piper changed his bandages. Hold still, she said. I know it hurts. It's just cold, he said. Leo could hear the pain in his voice. That stupid gladius blade had pierced him all the way through. The entrance wound on his back was an ugly shade of purple, and it steamed. Probably not a good sign. 
Piper tried to stay positive, but privately she had told Leo how worried she was. Ambrosia, nectar, and mortal medicine could only help so much. A deep cut from celestial bronze or imperial gold could literally dissolve a demigod's essence from the inside out. Jason might get better. He claimed he felt better, but Piper wasn't so sure. Too bad Jason wasn't a metal automaton. At least then, Leo would have some idea of how to help his best friend. But with humans, Leo felt helpless. They broke way too easily. He loved his friends. He'd do anything for them. But as he looked at the six of them, three couples all focused on each other, he thought about the warning from Nemesis, the revenge goddess. You will not find a place among your brethren. You will always be the seventh wheel. He was starting to think Nemesis was right. Assuming Leo lived long enough, assuming his crazy secret plan worked, his destiny was with somebody else, on an island that no man ever found twice. But for now, the best he could do was to follow his old rule. Keep moving. Don't get bogged down. Don't think about the bad stuff. Smile and joke even when you don't feel like it. Especially when you don't feel like it. What's up, guys? He strolled into the mess hall. Aw, oh, yes to brownies. He grabbed the last one from a special sea salt recipe they'd picked up from Afros, the fish centaur at the bottom of the Atlantic. The intercom crackled. Buford's mini hedge yelled over the speakers, Put some clothes on! Everyone jumped. Hazel ended up five feet away from Frank. Percy spilled syrup in his orange juice. Jason awkwardly wriggled back into his t-shirt, and Frank turned into a bulldog. Piper glared at Leo. I thought you were getting rid of that stupid hologram. Hey, Buford's just saying good morning. He loves his hologram. Besides, we all miss the coach, and Frank makes a cute bulldog. Frank morphed back into a burly, grumpy Chinese-Canadian dude. Just sit down, Leo. We've got stuff to talk about. Leo squeezed in between Jason and Hazel. He figured they were the least likely to smack him if he made bad jokes. He took a bite of his brownie and grabbed a pack of Italian junk food, Fonzie's, to round out his balanced breakfast. He'd become kind of addicted to the thing since buying some in Bologna. They were cheesy and corny, two of his favorite qualities. So, Jason winced as he leaned forward. We're going to stay airborne and drop anchor as close as we can to Olympia. It's farther inland than I'd like, about five miles, but we don't have much choice. According to Juno, we have to find the goddess of victory and, um, subdue her. Uncomfortable silence around the table. With the new drapes covering the holographic walls, the mess hall was darker and gloomier than it should have been, but that couldn't be helped. Ever since the Kirkopi's dwarf twins had short-circuited the walls, the real-time video feed from Camp Half-Blood often fuzzed out, changing into playback of extreme dwarf close-ups, red whiskers, nostrils, and bad dental work. It wasn't helpful when you were trying to eat or have a serious conversation about the fate of the world. 
Percy sipped his syrup-flavored orange juice. He seemed to find it okay. I'm cool with fighting the occasional goddess, but isn't Nike one of the good ones? I mean, personally, I like victory. I can't get enough of it. Annabeth drummed her fingers on the table. It does seem strange. I understand why Nike would be in Olympia, home of the Olympics and all that. The contestants sacrificed to her. Greeks and Romans worshipped her there for like 1,200 years, right? Almost to the end of the Roman Empire, Frank agreed. Romans called her Victoria, but same difference. Everybody loved her. Who doesn't like to win? Not sure why we would have to subdue her. Jason frowned. A wisp of steam curled from the wound under his shirt. All I know, the ghoul Antinous said, victory runs rampant in Olympia. Juno warned us that we could never heal the rift between the Greeks and Romans unless we defeated victory. How do we defeat victory? Piper wondered. Sounds like one of those impossible riddles. Like making stones fly, Leo said. Or eating only one Fonzie. He popped a handful into his mouth. Hazel wrinkled her nose. That stuff is going to kill you. You kidding? So many preservatives in these things, I'll live forever. But, hey, about this victory goddess being popular and great, don't you guys remember what her kids are like at Camp Half-Blood? Hazel and Frank had never been to Camp Half-Blood but the others nodded gravely. He's got a point, Percy said. Those kids in Cabin 17, they're super competitive. When it comes to capture the flag, they're almost worse than the Ares kids. Uh, no offense, Frank. Frank shrugged. You're saying Nike has a dark side? Her kids sure do, Annabeth said. They never turn down a challenge. They have to be number one at everything. If their mom is that intense... Whoa. Piper put her hands on the table like the ship was rocking. Guys, all the gods are split between their Greek and Roman aspects, right? If Nike's that way, and she's the goddess of victory... She'd be really conflicted, Annabeth said. She'd want one side or the other to win so she could declare a victor. She'd literally be fighting with herself. Hazel nudged her cereal bowl across the map of Greece. But we don't want one side or the other to win. We've got to get the Greeks and Romans on the same team. Maybe that's the problem, Jason said. If the goddess of victory is running rampant, torn between Greek and Roman, she might make it impossible to bring the two camps together. How? Leo asked. Start a flame war on Twitter? Percy stabbed at his pancakes. Maybe she's like Ares. That guy can spark a fight by just walking into a crowded room. If Nike radiates competitive vibes or something, she could aggravate the whole Greek-Roman rivalry big time. Frank pointed at Percy. You remember that old sea god in Atlanta, Forces? He said that Gia's plans always have lots of layers. This could be part of the giant strategy. Keep the two camps divided. Keep the gods divided. If that's the case, we can't let Nike play us against each other. 
we should send a landing party of four. Two Greeks, two Romans. The balance might help keep her balanced. Listening to Zhang, Leo had one of those double-take moments. He couldn't believe how much the guy had changed in the last few weeks. Frank wasn't just taller and buffer. He was more confident now, more willing to take charge. Maybe that was because his magic firewood lifeline was safely stashed away in a flame-proof pouch. Or maybe it was because he'd commanded a zombie legion and gotten promoted to Preter. Whatever the case, Leo had trouble seeing him as the same klutzy dude who'd once iguanaed his way out of Chinese handcuffs. I think Frank is right, Annabeth said. A party of four. We'll have to be careful who goes. We don't want to do anything that might make the goddess, um, more unstable. I'll go, Piper said. I can try charm speaking. Worry lines deepened around Annabeth's eyes. Not this time, Piper. Nike is all about competition. Aphrodite, well, she is too in her own way. I think Nike might see you as a threat. Once, Leo might have made a joke about that. Piper a threat? The girl was like a sister to him, but if he needed help beating up a gang of thugs or subduing a victory goddess, Piper was not the first person he'd turn to. Recently, though, well, Piper may not have changed as obviously as Frank, but she had changed. She had stabbed Keone, the snow goddess, in the chest. She had defeated the Boreads. She'd slashed up a flock of wild harpies single-handedly. As for her charm speak, she'd gotten so powerful it made Leo nervous. If she told him to eat his vegetables, he might actually do it. Annabeth's words didn't seem to upset her. Piper just nodded and scanned the group. Who should go then? Jason and Percy shouldn't go together, Annabeth said. Jupiter and Poseidon? Bad combination. Nike could start you two fighting easily. Percy gave her a sideways smile. Yeah, we can't have another incident like in Kansas. I might kill my bro Jason. Or I might kill my bro Percy, Jason said amiably. Which proves my point, Annabeth said. We also shouldn't send Frank and me together. Mars and Athena? That would be just as bad. Okay, Leo broke in. So Percy and me for the Greeks, Frank and Hazel for the Romans. Is that the ultimate non-competitive dream team or what? Annabeth and Frank exchanged war-godly looks. It could work, Frank decided. I mean, no combination is going to be perfect, but Poseidon, Hephaestus, Pluto, Mars? I don't see any huge antagonism there. Hazel traced her finger along the map of Greece. I still wish we could have gone through the Gulf of Corinth. I was hoping we could visit Delphi, maybe get some advice. Plus, it's such a long way around the Peloponnese. Yeah. Leo's heart sank when he looked at how much coastline they still had to navigate. It's July 22nd already. Counting today, only ten days until... I know. Jason said. But Juno was clear. The shorter way would have been suicide. And as for Delphi, 
Piper leaned toward the map. The blue harpy feather in her hair swung like a pendulum. What's going on there? If Apollo doesn't have his oracle anymore... Percy grunted. Probably something to do with that creep Octavian. Maybe he was so bad at telling the future, he broke Apollo's powers. Jason managed a smile, though his eyes were cloudy from pain. Hopefully we can find Apollo and Artemis. Then you can ask him yourself. Juno said the twins might be willing to help us. A lot of unanswered questions, Frank muttered. A lot of miles to cover before we get to Athens. First things first, Annabeth said. You guys have to find Nike and figure out how to subdue her. Whatever Juno meant by that. I still don't understand how you defeat a goddess who controls victory. Seems impossible. Leo started to grin. He couldn't help it. Sure, they only had ten days to stop the giants from waking Gia. Sure, he could die before dinner time, but he loved being told that something was impossible. It was like someone handing him a lemon meringue pie and telling him not to throw it. He just couldn't resist the challenge. We'll see about that. He rose to his feet. Let me get my collection of grenades, and I'll meet you guys on deck. Chapter 10 Leo. Smart call back there, Percy said, choosing the air conditioning. He and Leo had just searched the museum. Now they were sitting on a bridge that spanned the Cladios River, their feet dangling over the water as they waited for Frank and Hazel to finish scouting the ruins. To their left, the Olympic Valley shimmered in the afternoon heat. To their right, the visitor's lot was crammed with tour buses. Good thing the Argo too was moored a hundred feet in the air, because they never would have found parking. Leo skipped a stone across the river. He wished Hazel and Frank would get back. He felt awkward hanging out with Percy. For one thing, he wasn't sure what kind of small talk to make with a guy who'd recently come back from Tartarus. Catch that last episode of Doctor Who? Oh, right. You were trudging through the pit of eternal damnation. Percy had been intimidating enough before, summoning hurricanes, dueling pirates, killing giants in the Colosseum. Now, well, after what happened in Tartarus, it seemed like Percy had graduated to a totally different level of butt-kickery. Leo had trouble even thinking of him as part of the same camp, the two of them had never been at Camp Half-Blood at the same time. Percy's leather necklace had four beads for four completed summers. Leo's leather necklace had exactly none. The only thing they had in common was Calypso, and every time Leo thought about that, he wanted to punch Percy in the face. Leo kept thinking he should bring it up, just to clear the air, but the timing never seemed right and as the days went by, the subject got harder and harder to broach. What? Percy asked. Leo stirred. What, what? You were staring at me like... angry. Was I? Leo tried to muster a joke, or at least a smile, but he couldn't. Um, 
Sorry. Percy gazed at the river. I suppose we need a talk. He opened his hand, and the stone Leo had skipped flew out of the stream, right into Percy's palm. Oh, Leo thought, we're showing off now. He considered shooting a column of fire at the nearest tour bus and blowing up the gas tank, but he decided that might be a tad dramatic. Maybe we should talk, but not... Guys! Frank stood up at the far end of the parking lot, waving at them to come over. Next to him, Hazel sat astride her horse, Orion, who had appeared unannounced as soon as they'd landed. Saved by the Jong, Leo thought. He and Percy jogged over to meet their friends. This place is huge, Frank reported. The ruins stretch from the river to the base of that mountain over there, about half a kilometer. How far is that in regular measurements? Percy asked. Frank rolled his eyes. That is a regular measurement in Canada and the rest of the world. Only you Americans... About five or six football fields, Hazel interceded, feeding Orion a big chunk of gold. Percy spread his hands. That's all you needed to say. Anyway, Frank continued, from overhead, I didn't see anything suspicious. Neither did I, Hazel said. Orion took me on a complete loop around the perimeter. A lot of tourists, but no crazy goddess. The big stallion nickered and tossed his head, his neck muscles rippling under his butterscotch coat. Man, your horse can cuss. Percy shook his head. He doesn't think much of Olympia. For once, Leo agreed with the horse. He didn't like the idea of tromping through fields full of ruins under a blazing sun, shoving his way through hordes of sweaty tourists while searching for a split personality victory goddess. Besides, Frank had already flown over the whole valley as an eagle. If his sharp eyes hadn't seen anything, maybe there was nothing to see. On the other hand, Leo's tool belt pockets were full of dangerous toys. He would hate to go home without blowing anything up. So we blunder around together, he said, and let trouble find us. It's always worked before. They poked around for a while avoiding tour groups and ducking from one patch of shade to the next. Not for the first time, Leo was struck by how similar Greece was to his home state of Texas. The low hills, the scrubby trees, the drone of cicadas, and the oppressive summer heat. Switch out the ancient columns and ruined temples for cows and barbed wire, and Leo would have felt right at home. Frank found a tourist pamphlet. Seriously. That dude would read the ingredients on a soup can, and gave them a running commentary on what was what. This is the propylon. He waved toward a stone path lined with crumbling columns, one of the main gates into the Olympic Valley. Rubble, said Leo. And over there, Frank pointed to a square foundation that looked like the patio for a Mexican restaurant. Is the Temple of Hera. One of the oldest structures here. More rubble, Leo said. And that round bandstand-looking thing, that's the Philippion, dedicated to Philip of Macedonia. Even more rubble, 
First-rate rubble. Hazel, who was still riding Orion, kicked Leo in the arm. Doesn't anything impress you? Leo glanced up. Her curly gold-brown hair and golden eyes matched her helmet and sword so well she might have been engineered from imperial gold. Leo doubted Hazel would consider that a compliment, but as far as humans went, Hazel was first-rate craftsmanship. Leo remembered their trip together through the House of Hades. Hazel had led him through that creepy maze of illusions. She'd made the sorceress pacified disappear through an imaginary hole in the floor. She'd battled the giant Clytius while Leo choked in the giant's cloud of darkness. She'd cut the chains binding the doors of death. Meanwhile, Leo had done, well, pretty much nothing. He wasn't infatuated with Hazel anymore. His heart was far away on the island of Ogigia. Still, Hazel Levesque impressed him, even when she wasn't sitting atop a scary, immortal, supersonic horse who cussed like a sailor. He didn't say any of this, but Hazel must have picked up on his thoughts. She looked away, flustered. Happily oblivious, Frank continued his guided tour. And over there... Oh... He glanced at Percy. Uh, that semicircular depression in the hill, with the niches, that's a nymphium, built in Roman times. Percy's face turned the color of limeade. Here's an idea. Let's not go there. Leo had heard all about his near-death experience in the nymphium in Rome with Jason and Piper. I love that idea. They kept walking. Once in a while, Leo's hands drifted to his tool belt. Ever since the Kirkopis had stolen it in Bologna, he was scared he might get belt-jacked again, though he doubted any monster was as good at thievery as those dwarfs. He wondered how the little crud monkeys were doing in New York. He hoped they were still having fun harassing Romans, stealing lots of shiny zippers and causing legionnaires' pants to fall down. This is the Palapion, Frank said, pointing to another fascinating pile of stones. Come on, Zhang, Leo said. Palapion isn't even a word. What is that? A sacred spot for plopping? Frank looked offended. It's the burial site of Pelops. This whole part of Greece, the Peloponnese, was named after him. Leo resisted the urge to throw a grenade in Frank's face. I suppose I should know who Pelops was? He was a prince, won his wife in a chariot race. Supposedly, he started the Olympic Games in honor of that. Hazel sniffed. How romantic! Nice wife you have, Prince Pelops. Thanks, I won her in a chariot race. Leo didn't see how any of this was helping them find the victory goddess. At the moment, the only victory he wanted was to vanquish an ice-cold drink and maybe some nachos. Still, the farther they got into the ruins, the more uneasy he felt. He flashed back to one of his earliest memories. His babysitter, Tia Kaida, a.k.a. Hera, encouraging him to prod a poisonous snake with a stick when he was four years old. The psycho goddess told him it was good training for being a hero, and maybe she'd been right. 
These days, Leo spent most of his time poking around until he found trouble. He scanned the crowds of tourists, wondering if they were regular mortals or monsters in disguise, like those idolins who'd chased them in Rome. Every so often, he thought he saw a familiar face. His bully cousin, Raphael, his mean third-grade teacher, Mr. Borquin, his abusive foster mom, Teresa, all kinds of people who had treated Leo like dirt. Probably he just imagined their faces, but it made him edgy. He remembered how the goddess Nemesis had appeared as his Aunt Rosa, the person Leo most resented and wanted revenge on. He wondered if Nemesis was around here somewhere, watching to see what Leo would do. He still wasn't sure he'd paid his debt to that goddess. He suspected she wanted more suffering from him. Maybe today was the day. They stopped at some wide steps leading to another ruined building, the Temple of Zeus, according to Frank. Used to be a huge golden ivory statue of Zeus inside, Zhang said. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world made by the same dude who did the Athena Parthenos. Please tell me we don't have to find it, Percy said. I've had enough huge magic statues for one trip. Agreed. Hazel patted Orion's flank as the stallion was acting skittish. Leo felt like whinnying and stomping his hooves, too. He was hot and agitated and hungry. He felt like they'd prodded the poisonous snake about as much as they could, and the snake was about to strike back. He wanted to call it a day and return to the ship before that happened. Unfortunately, when Frank mentioned Temple of Zeus and Statue, Leo's brain had made a connection. Against his better judgment, he shared it. Hey, Percy, he said. Remember that statue of Nike in the museum? The one that was all in pieces? Yeah, didn't it used to stand here at the Temple of Zeus? Feel free to tell me I'm wrong. I'd love to be wrong. Percy's hand went to his pocket. He slipped out his pen, riptide. You're right. So if Nike was anywhere, this would be a good spot. Frank scanned the surroundings. I don't see anything. What if we promoted, like, Adidas shoes? Percy wondered. Would that make Nike mad enough to show up? Leo smiled nervously. Maybe he and Percy did share something else. A stupid sense of humor. Yeah, I bet that would totally be against her sponsorship deal. Those are not the official shoes of the Olympics. You will die now. Hazel rolled her eyes. You're both impossible. Behind Leo... A thunderous voice shook the ruins. You will die now! Leo almost jumped out of his tool belt. He turned and mentally kicked himself. He just had to invoke Adidas, the goddess of off-brand shoes. Towering over him in a golden chariot, with a spear aimed at his heart, was the goddess Nike. Chapter 11. Leo The gold wings were overkill. Leo could dig the chariot and the two white horses. He was okay with Nike's glittering sleeveless dress, 
Calypso totally rocked that style, but that wasn't relevant. And Nike's piled-up braids of dark hair circled with a gilded laurel wreath. Her expression was wide-eyed and a little crazy, like she'd just had 20 espressos and ridden a roller coaster, but that didn't bother Leo. He could even deal with the gold-tipped spear pointed at his chest. But those wings, they were polished gold, right down to the last feather. Leo could admire the intricate workmanship, but it was too much, too bright, too flashy. If her wings had been solar panels, Nike would have produced enough energy to power Miami. Lady, he said, could you fold your flappers, please? You're giving me a sunburn. What? Nike's head jerked toward him like a startled chicken's. Oh, my brilliant plumage. Very well. I suppose you can't die in glory if you are blinded and burned. She tucked in her wings. The temperature dropped to a normal 120 degrees summer afternoon. Leo glanced at his friends. Frank stood very still, sizing up the goddess. His backpack hadn't yet morphed into a bow and quiver, which was probably prudent. He couldn't have been too freaked out because he'd avoided turning into a giant goldfish. Hazel was having trouble with Orion. The roan stallion nickered and bucked, avoiding eye contact with the white horses pulling Nike's chariot. As for Percy, he held his magic ballpoint pen like he was trying to decide whether to bust out some sword moves or autograph Nike's chariot. Nobody stepped forward to talk. Leo kind of missed having Piper and Annabeth with them. They were good at the whole talking thing. He decided somebody had better say something before they all died in glory. So, he pointed his index fingers at Nike. I didn't get the briefing, and I'm pretty sure the information wasn't covered in Frank's pamphlet. Could you tell me what's going on here? Nike's wide-eyed stare unnerved him. Was Leo's nose on fire? That happened sometimes when he got stressed. We must have victory, the goddess shrieked. The contest must be decided. You have come here to determine the winner, yes? Frank cleared his throat. Are you Nike or Victoria? Arg! The goddess clutched the side of her head. Her horses reared, causing Orion to do the same. The goddess shuddered and split into two separate images, which reminded Leo, ridiculously, of when he used to lie on the floor in his apartment as a kid and play with the coiled doorstop on the baseboard. He would pull it back and let it fly. Spring! The stopper would shudder back and forth so fast it looked like it was splitting into two separate coils. That's what Nike looked like, a divine doorstop splitting in two. On the left was the first version, glittery, sleeveless dress, dark hair circled with laurels, golden wings folded behind her. On the right was a different version, dressed for war in a Roman breastplate and greaves, short auburn hair peeked out from the rim of a tall helmet. Her wings were feathery white, her dress purple, and the shaft of her spear was fixed with a plate-sized Roman insignia.
a golden SPQR in a laurel wreath. I am Nike, cried the image on the left. I am Victoria, cried the one on the right. For the first time, Leo understood the old saying his abuelo used to use, talking out of the side of your mouth. This goddess was literally saying two different things at once. She kept shuddering and splitting, making Leo dizzy. He was tempted to get out his tools and adjust the idle on her carburetor, because that much vibration would make her engine fly apart. I am the decider of victory, Nike screamed. Once I stood here at the corner of Zeus's temple, venerated by all. I oversaw the games of Olympia. Offerings from every city-state were piled at my feet. Games are irrelevant, yelled Victoria. I am the goddess of success in battle. Roman generals worship me. Augustus himself erected my altar in the Senate House. Ah! Both voices screamed in agony. We must decide. We must have victory. Orion bucked so violently that Hazel had to slide off his back to avoid getting thrown. Before she could calm him down, the horse disappeared, leaving a vapor trail through the ruins. Naki, Hazel said, stepping forward slowly. You're confused, like all the gods. The Greeks and Romans are on the verge of war. It's causing your two aspects to clash. I know that, the goddess shook her spear, the tip rubber banding into two points. I cannot abide unresolved conflict. Who is stronger? Who is the winner? Lady, nobody's the winner, Leo said. If that war happens, everybody loses. No winner? Nike looks so shocked, Leo is pretty sure his nose must be on fire. There is always a winner. One winner. Everyone else is a loser. Otherwise, victory is meaningless. I suppose you want me to give certificates to all the contestants, little plastic trophies to every single athlete or soldier for participation? Should we all line up and shake hands and tell each other, good game? No. Victory must be real. It must be earned. That means it must be rare and difficult against steep odds and defeat must be the other possibility. The goddess's two horses nipped at each other, as if getting into the spirit. Uh, okay, Leo said. I can tell you've got strong feelings about that, but the real war is against Gia. He's right, Hazel said. Naki, you were Zeus's charioteer in the last war with the giants, weren't you? Of course. Then you know Gia is the real enemy. We need your help to defeat her. The war isn't between the Greeks and Romans. Victoria roared. The Greeks must perish. Victory or death, Nike wailed. One side must prevail. Frank grunted. I get enough of this from my dad screaming in my head. Victoria glared down at him. A child of Mars, are you? A praetor of Rome? No true Roman would spare the Greeks. 
I cannot abide to be split and confused. I cannot think straight. Kill them. Win. Not happening, Frank said, though Leo noticed Zhang's right eye was twitching. Leo was struggling too. Nike was sending off waves of tension, setting his nerves on fire. He felt like he was crouched at the starting line, waiting for someone to yell, Go! He had the irrational desire to wrap his hands around Frank's neck, which was stupid, since his hands wouldn't even fit around Frank's neck. Look, Miss Victory, Percy tried for a smile. We don't want to interrupt your crazy time. Maybe you can just finish this conversation with yourself and we'll come back later with, um, some bigger weapons and possibly some sedatives. The goddess brandished her spear. You will determine the matter once and for all. Today, now, you will decide the victor. Four of you? Excellent. We will have teams. Perhaps girls versus boys. Hazel said, Uh, no. Shirts versus skins. Definitely no, said Hazel. Greeks versus Romans, Nike cried. Yes, of course. Two and two. The last demigod standing wins. The others will die gloriously. A competitive urge pulsed through Leo's body. It took all of his effort not to reach in his tool belt, grab a mallet, and whop Hazel and Frank upside their heads. He realized how right Annabeth had been not to send anyone whose parents had natural rivalries. If Jason were here, he and Percy would probably already be on the ground, bashing each other's brains out. He forced his fists to unclench. Look, lady, we're not going to go all Hunger Games on each other. Isn't going to happen. But you will win a fabulous honor. Nike reached into a basket at her side and produced a wreath of thick green laurels. This crown of leaves could be yours. You can wear it on your head. Think of the glory. Leo's right, Frank said, though his eyes were fixed on the wreath. His expression was a little too greedy for Leo's taste. We don't fight each other. We fight the giants. You should help us. Very well. The goddess raised the laurel wreath in one hand and her spear in the other. Percy and Leo exchanged looks. Uh, does that mean you'll join us? Percy asked. You'll help us fight the giants? That will be part of the prize, Nike said. Whoever wins, I will consider you an ally. We will fight the giants together, and I will bestow victory upon you. But there can only be one winner. The others must be defeated, killed, destroyed utterly. So what will it be, demigods? Will you succeed in your quest? Or will you cling to your namby-pamby ideas of Friendship and Everybody Wins Participation Awards. Percy uncapped his pen. Riptide grew into a celestial bronze sword. Leo was worried he might turn it on them. Nike's aura was that hard to resist. Instead, Percy pointed his blade at Nike. 
What if we fight you instead? Ha! Nike's eyes gleamed. If you refuse to fight each other, you shall be persuaded. Nike spread her golden wings. Four metal feathers fluttered down, two on either side of the chariot. The feathers twirled like gymnasts, growing larger, sprouting arms and legs, until they touched the ground as four metallic, human-sized replicas of the goddess, each armed with a golden spear and a celestial bronze laurel wreath that looked suspiciously like a barbed wire frisbee. To the stadium, the goddess cried. You have five minutes to prepare. Then blood shall be spilled. Leo was about to say, "What if we refuse to go to the stadium?" He got his answer before asking the question. "Run!" Nike bellowed. "To the stadium with you, or my Nike will kill you where you stand." The metal ladies unhinged their jaws and blasted out a sound like a Super Bowl crowd mixed with feedback. They shook their spears and charged the demigods. It wasn't Leo's finest moment. Panic seized him, and he took off. His only comfort was that his friends did too, and they weren't the cowardly type. The four metal women swept behind them in a loose semicircle, herding them to the northeast. All the tourists had vanished. Perhaps they had fled to the air-conditioned comfort of the museum, or maybe Nike had somehow forced them to leave. The demigods ran, tripping over stones. Leaping over crumbled walls, dodging around columns and informational placards. Behind them, Nike's chariot wheels rumbled and her horses whinnied. Every time Leo thought about slowing down, the metal ladies screamed again. What had Nike called them? Nike, Nikeets, filling Leo with terror. He hated being filled with terror. It was embarrassing. There. Frank sprinted toward a kind of trench between two earthen walls with a stone archway above. It reminded Leo of those tunnels that football teams run through when they enter the field. That's the entrance to the old Olympic Stadium. It's called the Crypt. Not a good name, Leo yelled. Why are we going there? Percy gasped. If that's where she wants us, the Nikeets screamed again. And all rational thought abandoned Leo. He ran for the tunnel. When they reached the arch, Hazel yelled, "Hold it!" They stumbled to a stop. Percy doubled over, wheezing. Leo had noticed that Percy seemed to get winded more easily these days, probably because of that nasty acid air he'd been forced to breathe in Tartarus. Frank peered back the way they'd come. "I don't see them any more." They disappeared. Did they give up? Percy asked hopefully. Leo scanned the ruins. Nah, they just herded us where they wanted us. What were those things anyway? The Nikets, I mean. Nikets? Frank scratched his head. I think it was Nikai, plural like victories. Yes. Hazel looked deep in thought. Running her hands along the stone archway. In some legends, Naki had an army of little victories she could send all over the world to do her bidding. 
like Santa's elves, Percy said, except evil and metal and really loud. Hazel pressed her fingers against the arch, as if taking its pulse. Beyond the narrow tunnel, the earthen walls opened into a long field with gently rising slopes on either side, like seating for spectators. Leo guessed it would have been an open-air stadium back in the day, big enough for discus throwing, javelin catching, naked shot put, or whatever else those crazy Greeks used to do to win a bunch of leaves. Ghosts linger in this place, Hazel murmured. A lot of pain is embedded in these stones. Please tell me you have a plan, Leo said. Preferably one that doesn't involve embedding my pain in the stones. Hazel's eyes were stormy and distant, the way they'd been in the house of Hades, like she was peering into a different layer of reality. This was the player's entrance. Naki said we have five minutes to prepare. Then she'll expect us to pass under this archway and begin the games. We won't be allowed to leave that field until three of us are dead. Percy leaned on his sword. I'm pretty sure death matches weren't an Olympic sport. Well, they are today, Hazel murmured. But I might be able to give us an edge. When we pass through... I could raise some obstacles on the field, hiding places to buy us some time. Frank frowned. You mean like on the field of Mars? Trenches, tunnels, that kind of thing? You can do that with the mist? I think so, Hazel said. Nike would probably like to see an obstacle course. I can play her expectations against her. But it would be more than that. I can use any subterranean gateway, even this arch, to access the labyrinth. I can raise part of the labyrinth to the surface. Whoa, 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 Percy made a timeout sign. The labyrinth is bad. We discussed this. Hazel, he's right. Leo remembered all too well how she'd led him through the illusionary maze in the House of Hades. They'd almost died about every six feet. I mean, I know you're good with magic, but we've already got four screaming Nikets to worry about. You'll have to trust me, she said. We've only got a couple of minutes now. When we pass through the arch, I can at least manipulate the playing field to our advantage. Percy exhaled through his nose. Twice now, I've been forced to fight in stadiums. Once in Rome, and before that... In the labyrinth. I hate playing games for people's amusement. We all do, Hazel said. But we have to put Nike off guard. We'll pretend to fight until we can neutralize those Nikets. Ugh, that's an awful name. Then we subdue Nike, like Juno said. Makes sense, Frank agreed. You felt how powerful Nike was trying to put us at each other's throats. If she's sending out those vibes to all the Greeks and Romans, there's no way we'll be able to prevent a war. We've got to get her under control. And how do we do that? Percy asked. Bonk her on the head and stuff her in a sack? Leo's mental gears started to turn. Actually, he said, 
You're not far off. Uncle Leo brought some toys for all you good little demigods. Chapter Twelve, Leo. Two minutes wasn't nearly enough time. Leo hoped he'd given everybody the right gadgets and adequately explained what all the buttons did. Otherwise, things would get ugly. While he was lecturing Frank and Percy on Archimedean mechanics, Hazel stared at the stone archway and muttered under her breath. Nothing seemed to change in the big grassy field beyond, but Leo was sure Hazel had some misdelicious tricks up her sleeve. He was just explaining to Frank how to avoid getting decapitated by his own Archimedes sphere when the sound of trumpets echoed through the stadium. Nike's chariot appeared on the field. The Nikettes arrayed in front of her with their spears and laurels raised. Begin! The goddess bellowed. Percy and Leo sprinted through the archway. Immediately, the field shimmered and became a maze of brick walls and trenches. They ducked behind the nearest wall and ran to the left. Back at the archway, Frank yelled, "Uh, die, Greek is scum!" A poorly aimed arrow sailed over Leo's head. "More vicious!" Nike yelled. "Kill like you mean it!" Leo glanced at Percy. "Ready?" Percy hefted a bronze grenade. "I hope you labeled these right." He yelled, "Die, Romans!" and lobbed the grenade over the wall. Boom! Leo couldn't see the explosion, but the smell of buttery popcorn filled the air. Oh no! Hazel wailed, "Popcorn, our fatal weakness!" Frank shot another arrow over their heads. Leo and Percy scrambled to the left. Ducking through a maze of walls that seemed to shift and turn on their own, Leo could still see open sky above him, but claustrophobia started to set in, making it hard for him to breathe. Somewhere behind them, Nike yelled, "Try harder! That popcorn was not fatal." From the rumble of her chariot wheels, Leo guessed she was circling the perimeter of the field, victory taking a victory lap. Another grenade exploded over Percy's and Leo's heads. They dove into a trench as the green starburst of Greek fire singed Leo's hair. Fortunately, Frank had aimed high enough that the blast only looked impressive. Better, Nike called out. But where is your aim? Don't you want this circlet of leaves? I wish the river was closer, Percy muttered. I want to drown her. Be patient, Water Boy. Don't call me Water Boy. Leo pointed across the field. The walls had shifted, revealing one of the Nikettes about thirty yards away, standing with her back to them. Hazel must be doing her thing, manipulating the maze to isolate their targets. I distract, Leo said. You attack. Ready? Percy nodded. Go. He dashed to the left as Leo pulled a ball peen hammer from his tool belt and yelled, "Hey, bronze butt!" The Nikette turned as Leo threw. His hammer clanged harmlessly off the metal lady's chest, but she must have been annoyed. She marched toward him, raising her barbed wire laurel wreath. "Oops," 
Leo ducked as the metal circlet spun over his head. The wreath hit a wall behind him, punching a hole straight through the bricks, then arced backward through the air like a boomerang. As the Nyquette raised her hand to catch it, Percy emerged from the trench behind her and slashed with Riptide, cutting the Nyquette in half at the waist. The metal wreath shot past him and embedded in a marble column. Foul! the victory goddess cried. The walls shifted and Leo saw her barreling toward them in her chariot. You don't attack the Nykai unless you wish to die. A trench appeared in the goddess's path, causing her horses to balk. Leo and Percy ran for cover. Out of the corner of his eye, maybe fifty feet away, Leo saw Frank, the grizzly bear, jump from the top of a wall and flatten another Nykette. Two bronze butts down. Two more to go. No! Nike screamed in outrage. No, no, no! Your lives are forfeit! Nikai, attack! Leo and Percy leaped behind a wall. They lay there for a second, trying to catch their breath. Leo had trouble getting his bearings, but he guessed that was part of Hazel's plan. She was causing the terrain to shift around them, opening new trenches, changing the slope of the land, throwing up new walls and columns. With luck, she would make it harder for the Nykettes to find them. Traveling just twenty feet might take them several minutes. Still, Leo hated being disoriented. It reminded him of his helplessness in the House of Hades, the way Clytius had smothered him in darkness, snuffing out his fire, possessing his voice. It reminded him of Keone, plucking him off the deck of the Argo II with a gust of wind and shooting him halfway across the Mediterranean. It was bad enough being scrawny and weak. If Leo couldn't control his own senses, his own voice, his own body, that didn't leave him much to rely on. Hey, Percy said, if we don't make it out of this... Shut up, man. We're going to make it. If we don't, I want you to know... I feel bad about Calypso. I failed her. Leo stared at him, dumbfounded. You know about me and... The Argo, too, is a small ship. Percy grimaced. Word got around. I just... Well, when I was in Tartarus, I was reminded that I hadn't followed through on my promise to Calypso. I asked the gods to free her and then... I just assumed they would. With me getting amnesia and getting sent to Camp Jupiter and all, I didn't think about Calypso much after that. I'm not making excuses. I should have made sure the gods kept their promise. Anyway, I'm glad you found her. You promised to find a way back to her, and I just wanted to say, if we do survive all this, I'll do anything I can to help you. That's a promise I will keep. Leo was speechless. Here they were, hiding behind a wall in the middle of a magical war zone, with grenades and grizzly bears and bronze-butt nikettes to worry about. And Percy pulls this on him. Man, what is your problem? Leo grumbled. Percy blinked. So, I guess we're not cool? Of course we're not cool! You're as bad as Jason! I'm trying to resent you for being all perfect and hero-y and whatnot. Then you go and act like a stand-up guy. 
How am I supposed to hate you if you apologize and promise to help and stuff? A smile tugged at the corner of Percy's mouth. Sorry about that. The ground rumbled as another grenade exploded, sending spirals of whipped cream into the sky. That's Hazel's signal, Leo said. They've taken down another Niket. Percy peeked around the corner of the wall. Until this moment, Leo hadn't realized how much he'd resented Percy. The dude had always intimidated him. Knowing Calypso had had a crush on Percy made the feeling ten times worse. But now the knot of anger in his gut started to unravel. Leo just couldn't dislike the guy. Percy seemed sincere about being sorry and wanting to help. Besides, Leo finally had confirmation that Percy Jackson was out of the picture with Calypso. The air was cleared. All Leo had to do was find his way back to Ojigia. And he would, assuming he survived the next ten days. One Niket left, Percy said. I wonder... Somewhere close by, Hazel cried out in pain. Instantly, Leo was on his feet. Dude, wait, Percy called, but Leo plunged through the maze, his heart pounding. The walls fell away on either side. Leo found himself in an open stretch of field. Frank stood at the far end of the stadium, shooting flaming arrows at Nike's chariot as the goddess bellowed insults and tried to find a path to him across the shifting network of trenches. Hazel was closer, maybe sixty feet away. The fourth Niket had obviously sneaked up on her. Hazel was limping away from her attacker, her jeans ripped, her left leg bleeding. She parried the metal lady's spear with her huge cavalry sword, but she was about to be overpowered. All around her, the mist flickered like a dying strobe light. She was losing control of the magic maze. I'll help her, Percy said. You stick to the plan. Get Nike's chariot. But the plan was to eliminate all four Nikets first. So change the plan and then stick to it. That doesn't even make sense, but go. Help her. Percy rushed to Hazel's defense. Leo darted toward Nike, yelling, Hey, I want a participation award. Ah! The goddess pulled the reins and turned her chariot in his direction. I will destroy you. Good. Leo yelled. Losing is way better than winning. What? Nike threw her mighty spear, but her aim was off with the rocking of the chariot. Her weapon skittered into the grass. Sadly, a new one appeared in her hands. She urged her horses to a full gallop. The trenches disappeared, leaving an open field, perfect for running down small Latino demigods. Hey! Frank yelled from across the stadium. I want a participation award, too. Everybody wins. He shot a well-aimed arrow that landed in the back of Nike's chariot and began to burn. Nike ignored it. Her eyes were fixed on Leo. Percy? Leo's voice sounded like a hamster's squeak. From his tool belt, he fished out an Archimedes sphere and set the concentric circles to arm the device. Percy was still sparring with the last metal lady. Leo couldn't wait. He threw the sphere in the chariot's path. It hit the ground and burrowed in, 
but he needed Percy to spring the trap. If Nike sensed any threat, she apparently didn't think much of it. She kept charging at Leo. The chariot was twenty feet from the grenade. Fifteen feet. Percy! Leo yelled. Operation Water Balloon! Unfortunately, Percy was a little busy getting smacked around. The Nikette thumped him backward with the butt of her spear. She threw her wreath with such force it knocked Percy's sword from his grip. Percy stumbled. The metallic lady moved in for the kill. Leo howled. He knew the distance was too far. He knew that if he didn't jump out of the way now, Nike would run him over. But that didn't matter. His friends were about to be skewered. He thrust out his hand and shot a white-hot bolt of fire straight at the Nikette. It literally melted her face. The Nikette staggered, her spear still raised. Before she could regain her balance, Hazel thrust her spatha and impaled the metal lady through the chest. The Nikette crashed into the grass. Percy turned toward the victory goddess's chariot. Just as those huge white horses were about to turn Leo into roadkill, the carriage passed over Leo's sunken grenade, which exploded in a high-pressure geyser. Water blasted upward, flipping the chariot. Horses, carriage, goddess, and all. Back in Houston, Leo used to live with his mom in an apartment right off the Gulf Freeway. He heard car crashes at least once a week, but this sound was worse. Celestial bronze crumpling, wood splintering, stallions screaming, and a goddess wailing in two distinct voices, both of them very surprised. Hazel collapsed. Percy caught her. Frank ran toward them from across the field. Leo was on his own as the goddess Nike disentangled herself from the wreckage and rose to face him. Her braided hairdo now resembled a stepped-on cow pie. A laurel wreath was stuck around her left ankle. Her horses got to their hooves and galloped away in a panic, dragging the soaked, half-burning wreckage of the chariot behind them. You! Nike glared at Leo, her eyes hotter and brighter than her metal wings. You dare? Leo didn't feel very courageous, but he forced a smile. I know, right? I'm awesome. Do I win a leaf hat now? You will die! The goddess raised her spear. Hold that thought. Leo dug around in his tool belt. You haven't seen my best trick yet. I have a weapon guaranteed to win any contest. Nike hesitated. What weapon? What do you mean? My ultimate Zap-O-Matic. He pulled out a second Archimedes Sphere, the one he'd spent a whole 30 seconds modifying before they entered the stadium. How many laurel wreaths have you got? Because I'm going to win them all. He fiddled with the dials, hoping he'd done his calculations right. Leo had gotten better at making spheres, but they still weren't completely reliable, more like 20% reliable. It would have been nice to have Calypso's help weaving the celestial bronze filaments. She was an ace at weaving. Or Annabeth. She was no slouch. But Leo had done his best, rewiring the sphere to carry out two completely different functions. Behold! 
Leo clicked the final dial. The sphere opened. One side elongated into a gun handle. The other side unfolded into a miniature radar dish made of celestial bronze mirrors. Nike frowned. What is that supposed to be? An Archimedes death ray, Leo said. I finally perfected it. Now give me all the prizes. Those things don't work, Nike yelled. They proved it on television. Besides, I'm an immortal goddess. You can't destroy me. Watch closely, Leo said. Are you watching? Nike could have zapped him into a grease spot or speared him like a cheese wedge, but her curiosity got the best of her. She stared straight into the dish as Leo flipped the switch. Leo knew to look away. Even so, the blazing beam of light left him seeing spots. Gah! The goddess staggered. She dropped her spear and clutched at her eyes. I'm blind! I'm blind! Leo hit another button on his death ray. It collapsed back into a sphere and began to hum. Leo counted silently to three, then tossed the sphere at the goddess's feet. Foom! Metal filaments shot upward, wrapping Nike in a bronze net. She wailed, falling sideways as the net constricted, forcing her two forms, Greek and Roman, into a quivering, out-of-focus hole. Trickery! Her doubled voices buzzed like muffled alarm clocks. Your death ray did not even kill me! I don't need to kill you, Leo said. I vanquished you just fine. I will simply change form, she cried. I will rip apart your silly net. I will destroy you. Yeah, see, you can't. Leo hoped he was right. That's high-quality celestial bronze netting, and I'm a son of Hephaestus. He's kind of an expert on catching goddesses in nets. No! No! Leo left her thrashing and cursing and went to check on his friends. Percy looked all right, just sore and bruised. Frank propped up Hazel and fed her ambrosia. The cut on her leg had stopped bleeding, though her jeans were pretty much ruined. I'm okay, she said. Just too much magic. You were awesome, Levesque. Leo did his best Hazel imitation. Popcorn, our fatal weakness. She smiled wanly. Together, the four of them walked over to Nike, who was still writhing and flapping her wings in the net, like a golden chicken. What do we do with her? Percy asked. Take her aboard the Argo, too, Leo said. Chuck her in one of the horse stalls. Hazel's eyes widened. You're going to keep the goddess of victory in the stable? Why not? Once we sort things out between Greeks and Romans, the god should go back to their normal selves. Then we can free her and she can, you know, grant us victory. Grant you victory? The goddess cried. Never! You will suffer for this outrage. Your blood shall be spilled. One of you here, one of you four, is fated to die battling Gia. Leo's intestines tied themselves into a slipknot. 
How do you know that? I can foresee victories, Nike yelled. You will have no success without death. Release me and fight each other. It is better you die here than face what is to come. Hazel stuck the point of her spatha under Nike's chin. Explain. Her voice was harder than Leo had ever heard. Which of us will die? How do we stop it? Ah, child of Pluto, your magic helped you cheat in this contest, but you cannot cheat destiny. One of you will die. One of you must die. No, Hazel insisted. There's another way. There is always another path. Hecate taught you this? Nike laughed. You would hope for the physician's cure, perhaps, but that is impossible. Too much stands in your way. The poison of Pylos, the chained god's heartbeat in Sparta, the curse of Delos. No, you cannot cheat death. Frank knelt. He gathered up the net under Nike's chin and raised her face to his. What are you talking about? How do we find this cure? I will not help you, Nike growled. I will curse you with my power, net or no. She began to mutter in ancient Greek. Frank looked up, scowling. Can she really cast magic through this net? Heck, if I know, Leo said. Frank dropped the goddess. He took off one of his shoes, peeled off his sock, and stuffed it in the goddess's mouth. Dude, Percy said, that is disgusting. <coughs> Nike complained. <coughs> Leo, Frank said grimly. You got duct tape? Never leave home without it. He fished a roll from his tool belt. And in no time, Frank had wrapped it around Nike's head, securing the gag in her mouth. Well, it's not a laurel wreath, Frank said, but it's a new kind of victory circle, the gag of duct tape. Jong, Leo said, you got style. Nike thrashed and grunted until Percy nudged her with his toe. Hey, shut up. You behave or we'll get Orion back here and let him nibble your wings. He loves gold. Nike shrieked once, then became still and quiet. So? Hazel sounded a little nervous. We have one tied-up goddess. Now what? Frank folded his arms. We go looking for this physician's cure, whatever that is, because personally, I like cheating death. Leo grinned. Poison in Pylos? A chained god's heartbeat in Sparta? A curse in Delos? Oh, yeah. This is gonna be fun. Chapter 13 Nico. The last thing Nico heard was Coach Hedge grumbling, Well, this isn't good. He wondered what he'd done wrong this time. Maybe he'd teleported them into a den of cyclopes, or a thousand feet above another volcano. There was nothing he could do about it. His vision was gone. His other senses were shutting down. His knees buckled, and he passed out. He tried to make the most of his unconsciousness. 
Dreams and death were old friends of his. He knew how to navigate their dark borderland. He sent out his thoughts, searching for Thalia Grace. He rushed past the usual fragments of painful memories. His mother smiling down at him, her face illuminated by the sunlight rippling off the Venetian Grand Canal. His sister, Bianca, laughing as she pulled him across the mall in Washington, D.C., her green floppy hat shading her eyes and the splash of freckles across her nose. He saw Percy Jackson on a snowy cliff outside Westover Hall, shielding Nico and Bianca from the manticore as Nico clutched a mytho-magic figurine and whispered, I'm scared. He saw Minus, his old ghostly mentor, leading him through the labyrinth. Minus's smile was cold and cruel. Don't worry, son of Hades. You will have your revenge. Nico couldn't stop the memories. They cluttered his dreams like the ghosts of Asphodel, an aimless, sorrowful mob pleading for attention. Save me, they seemed to whisper. Remember me. Help me. Comfort me. He didn't dare stop to dwell on them. They would only crush him with wants and regrets. The best he could do was to stay focused and push through. I am the son of Hades, he thought. I go where I wish. The darkness is my birthright. He forged ahead through a gray and black terrain, looking for the dreams of Thalia Grace, daughter of Zeus. Instead, the ground dissolved at his feet, and he fell into a familiar backwater, the Hypnos Cabin at Camp Half-Blood. Buried under piles of feather comforters, snoring demigods nestled in their bunks. Above the mantle, a dark tree branch dripped milky water from the river Lethe into a bowl. A cheerful fire crackled in the fireplace. In front of it, in a leather armchair, dozed the head counselor for Cabin 15, a pot-bellied guy with unruly blonde hair and a gentle bovine face. Clovis, Nico growled. For the God's sake, stop dreaming so powerfully. Clovis's eyes fluttered open. He turned and stared at Nico, though Nico knew this was simply part of Clovis's own dreamscape. The actual Clovis would still be snoring in his armchair back at camp. Oh, hi. Clovis yawned wide enough to swallow a minor god. Sorry, did I pull you off course again? Nico gritted his teeth. There was no point getting upset. The Hypnos Cabin was like Grand Central Station for dream activity. You couldn't travel anywhere without going through it once in a while. As long as I'm here, Nico said, pass along a message. Tell Chiron I'm on my way with a couple of friends. We're bringing the Athena Parthenos. Clovis rubbed his eyes. So it's true? How are you bringing it? Did you rent a van or something? Nico explained as concisely as possible. Messages sent through dreams tended to get fuzzy around the edges, especially when you were dealing with Clovis. The simpler, the better. We're being followed by a hunter, Nico said. One of Gia's giants, I think. Can you get that message to Thalia Grace? 
You're better at finding people in dreams than I am. I need her advice. I'll try. Clovis fumbled for a cup of hot chocolate on the side table. Uh, before you go, do you have a second? Clovis, this is a dream. Nico reminded him, "Time is fluid." Even as he said it, Nico worried about what was happening in the real world. His physical self might be plummeting to his death, or surrounded by monsters. Still, he couldn't force himself to wake up, not after the amount of energy he'd expended on shadow travel. Clovis nodded. Right. I was thinking you should probably see what happened today at the Council of War. I slept through some of it, but show me," Nico said. The scene changed. Nico found himself in the rec room of the big house. All the senior camp leaders gathered around the ping pong table. At one end sat Chiron the Centaur. His equine posterior collapsed into his magic wheelchair, so he looked like a regular human. His curly brown hair and beard had more gray streaks than a few months ago. Deep lines etched his face. Things we can't control, he was saying. Now let's review our defenses. Where do we stand? Clarice from the Ares cabin sat forward. She was the only one in full armor, which was typical. Clarice probably slept in her combat gear. As she spoke. She gestured with her dagger, which made the other counselors lean away from her. Our defensive line is mostly solid, she said. The campers are as ready to fight as they'll ever be. We control the beach. Our triremes are unchallenged on Long Island Sound, but those stupid giant eagles dominate our airspace. Inland, in all three directions, the barbarians have us completely cut off. They're Romans, said Rachel Dare. Doodling with a marker on the knee of her jeans, not barbarians. Clarice pointed her dagger at Rachel. What about their allies, huh? Did you see that tribe of two-headed men that arrived yesterday, or the glowing red dog-headed guys with the big pole axes? They look pretty barbaric to me. It would have been nice if you'd foreseen any of that. If your oracle power didn't break down when we needed it most. Rachel's face turned as red as her hair. That's hardly my fault. Something is wrong with Apollo's gifts of prophecy. If I knew how to fix it, she's right. Will Solis, head counselor for the Apollo cabin, put his hands gently on Clarice's wrist. Not many campers could have done that without getting stabbed, but Will had a way of diffusing people's anger. He got her to lower her dagger. Everyone in our cabin has been affected. It's not just Rachel. Will's shaggy blonde hair and pale blue eyes reminded Nico of Jason Grace, but the similarities ended there. Jason was a fighter. You could tell from the intensity of his stare, his constant alertness, the coiled-up energy in his frame. Will Solis was more like a lanky cat stretched out in the sunshine. His movements were relaxed and non-threatening. His gaze soft and far away. In his faded surf Barbados T-shirt, his cut-off shorts and flip-flops, he looked about as unaggressive as a demigod could get. 
but Nico knew he was brave under fire. During the Battle of Manhattan, Nico had seen him in action, the camp's best combat medic, risking his life to save wounded campers. We don't know what's going on at Delphi, Will continued. My dad hasn't answered any prayers or appeared in any dreams. I mean, all the gods have been silent, but this isn't like Apollo. Something's wrong. Across the table, Jake Mason grunted. Probably this Roman dirt wipe who's leading the attack. Octavian, what's his name? If I was Apollo and my descendant was acting that way, I'd go into hiding out of shame. I agree, Will said. I wish I was a better archer. I wouldn't mind shooting my Roman relative off his high horse. Actually, I wish I could use any of my father's gifts to stop this war. He looked down at his own hands with distaste. Unfortunately, I'm just a healer. Your talents are essential, Chiron said. I fear we'll need them soon enough. As for seeing the future, what about the harpy Ella? Has she offered any advice from the Sibylline books? Rachel shook her head. The poor thing is scared out of her wits. Harpies hate being imprisoned. Ever since the Romans surrounded us, well, she feels trapped. She knows Octavian means to capture her. It's all Tyson and I can do to keep her from flying away. Which would be suicide. Butch Walker, son of Iris, crossed his burly arms. With those Roman eagles in the air, flying isn't safe. I've already lost two pegasi. At least Tyson brought some of his Cyclops friends to help out, Rachel said. That's a little good news. Over by the refreshment table, Connor Stoll laughed. He had a fistful of Ritz crackers in one hand and a can of Easy Cheese in the other. A dozen full-grown Cyclopes? That's a lot of good news. Plus, Lou Ellen and the Hecate kids have been putting up magic barriers, and the whole Hermes cabin has been lining the hills with traps and snares and all kinds of nice surprises for the Romans. Jake Mason frowned, most of which you stole from Bunker 9 in the Hephaestus cabin. Clarice grumbled in agreement. They even stole the landmines from around the Ares cabin. How do you steal live landmines? We commandeered them for the war effort. Connor sprayed a glob of easy cheese into his mouth. Besides, you guys have plenty of toys. You can share. Chiron turned to his left, where the satyr Grover Underwood sat in silence, fingering his reed pipes. Grover, what news from the nature spirits? Grover heaved a sigh. Even on a good day, it's hard to organize nymphs and dryads. With Gia stirring, they're almost as disoriented as the gods. Katie and Miranda from the Demeter cabin are out there right now, trying to help. But if the Earth Mother wakes... He looked around the table nervously. Well, I can't promise the woods will be safe. Or the hills. Or the strawberry fields. Or... Great. Jake Mason elbowed Clovis, who was starting to nod off. So what do we do? Attack! Clarice pounded the ping-pong table, which made everyone flinch. The Romans are getting more reinforcements by the day. We know they plan to invade on August 1st. 
Why should we let them set the timetable? I can only guess they're waiting to gather more forces. They already outnumber us. We should attack now, before they get any stronger. Take the fight to them. Malcolm, the acting head counselor for Athena, coughed into his fist. Clarice, I get your point, but have you studied Roman engineering? Their temporary camp is better defended than Camp Half-Blood. Attack them at their base and we'd be massacred. So we just wait? Clarice demanded. Let them get all their forces prepared while Gia gets closer to waking? I have Coach Hedge's pregnant wife under my protection. I am not going to let anything happen to her. I owe Hedge my life. Besides, I've been training the campers more than you have, Malcolm. The morale is low. Everybody is scared. If we're under siege another nine days, we should stick to Annabeth's plan. Connor Stoll looked about as serious as he ever did, despite the easy cheese around his mouth. We have to hold out until she gets that magic Athena statue back here. Clarice rolled her eyes. You mean if that Roman Praetor gets the statue back here? I don't understand what Annabeth was thinking, collaborating with the enemy. Even if the Roman manages to bring us the statue, which is impossible, we're supposed to trust that will bring peace? The statue arrives and suddenly the Romans lay down their weapons and start dancing around, throwing flowers? Rachel set down her marking pen. Annabeth knows what she's doing. We have to try for peace. Unless we can unite the Greeks and Romans, the gods won't be healed. Unless the gods are healed, there's no way we can kill the giants. And unless we kill the giants... Gia wakes, Connor said. Game over. Look, Clarice, Annabeth sent me a message from Tartarus. From freaking Tartarus. Anybody who can do that, hey, I listen to them. Clarice opened her mouth to reply, but when she spoke, it was Coach Hedge's voice. Nico, wake up! We've got problems! Chapter 14 Nico Nico sat up so quickly, he headbutted the satyr in the nose. Ow! Jeez, kid! You got a hard noggin! S sorry Coach. Nico blinked, trying to get his bearings. What's going on? He didn't see any immediate threat. They were camped on a sunny lawn in the middle of a public square. Beds of orange marigolds bloomed all around them. Reyna was sleeping curled up, with her two metal dogs at her feet. A stone's throw away, little kids played tag around a white marble fountain. At a nearby sidewalk cafe... Half a dozen people sipped coffee in the shade of patio umbrellas. A few delivery vans were parked along the edges of the square, but there was no traffic. The only pedestrians were a few families, probably locals, enjoying a warm afternoon. The square itself was cobblestone pavement, edged with white stucco buildings and lemon trees. In the center stood the well-preserved shell of a Roman temple. Its square base stretched maybe 50 feet wide and 10 feet tall, with an intact facade of Corinthian columns rising another 25 feet. And at the top of the colonnade, Nico's mouth went dry. 
Oh, sticks. The Athena Parthenos lay sideways along the tops of the columns like a nightclub singer sprawled across a piano. Lengthwise, she fit almost perfectly, but with Nike in her extended hand, she was a bit too wide. She looked like she might topple forward at any moment. What is she doing up there? Nico asked. You tell me. Hedge rubbed his bruised nose. That's where we appeared. Almost fell to our deaths. But luckily I've got nimble hooves. You were unconscious, hanging in your harness like a tangled paratrooper until we managed to get you down. Nico tried to picture that, then decided he'd rather not. Is this Spain? Portugal, Hedge said. You overshot. By the way, Reina speaks Spanish. She does not speak Portuguese. Anyway, while you were asleep, we figured out this city is Evera. Good news. It's a sleepy little place. Nobody's bothered us. Nobody seems to notice the giant Athena sleeping on top of the Roman temple, which is called the Temple of Diana, in case you were wondering. And people here appreciate my street performances. I've made about 16 euros. He picked up his baseball cap, which jangled with coins. Nico felt ill. Street performances? A little singing, the coach said. A little martial arts. Some interpretive dance. Wow. I know. The Portuguese have taste. Anyway, I supposed this was a decent place to lie low for a couple of days. Nico stared at him. A couple of days? Hey, kid. We didn't have much choice. In case you haven't noticed, you've been working yourself to death with all that shadow jumping. We tried to wake you up last night. No dice. So I've been asleep for... About 36 hours. You needed it. Nico was glad he was sitting down. Otherwise, he would have fallen down. He could have sworn he'd only slept a few minutes. But as his drowsiness faded... He realized he felt more clear-headed and rested than he had in weeks, maybe since before he went looking for the doors of death. His stomach growled. Coach Hedge raised his eyebrows. You must be hungry, said the satyr. Either that, or your stomach speaks hedgehog. That was quite a statement in hedgehog. Food would be good, Nico agreed. But first, what's the bad news? I mean, aside from the statue being sideways. You said we had trouble. Oh, right. The coach pointed to a gated archway at the corner of the square. Standing in the shadows was a glowing, vaguely human figure, outlined in gray flames. The spirit's features were indistinct, but it seemed to be beckoning to Nico. Burning Man showed up a few minutes ago, said Coach Hedge. He doesn't get any closer. When I tried to go over there, he disappeared. Not sure if he's a threat, but he seems to be asking for you. Nico assumed it was a trap. Most things were. But Coach Hedge promised he could guard Reyna for a little longer, and on the off chance the spirit had something useful to say, Nico decided it was worth the risk. 
he unsheathed his Stygian iron blade and approached the archway. Normally, ghosts didn't scare him. Assuming, of course, Gia hadn't encased them in shells of stone and turned them into killing machines. That had been a new one for him. After his experience with Minus, Nico realized that most specters held only as much power as you allowed them to have. They pried into your mind, using fear or anger or longing to influence you. Nico had learned to shield himself. Sometimes he could even turn the tables and bend ghosts to his will. As he approached the fiery gray apparition, he was fairly sure it was a garden-variety wraith, a lost soul who had died in pain. Shouldn't be a problem. Still, Nico took nothing for granted. He remembered Croatia all too well. He'd gone into that situation smug and confident, only to have his feet swept out from under him, literally and emotionally. First, Jason Grace had grabbed him and flown him over a wall. Then the god Favonius had dissolved him into wind. And as for that arrogant thug, Cupid... Nico clenched his sword. Sharing his secret crush hadn't been the worst of it. Eventually, he might have done that, in his own time, in his own way. But being forced to talk about Percy, being bullied and harassed and strong-armed simply for Cupid's amusement? Tendrils of darkness were now spreading out from his feet, killing all the weeds between the cobblestones. Nico tried to rein in his anger. When he reached the ghost, he saw it wore a monk's habit, sandals, woolen robes, and a wooden cross around his neck. Gray flames swirled around him, burning his sleeves, blistering his face, turning his eyebrows to ashes. He seemed to be stuck in the moment of his immolation, like a black-and-white video on a permanent loop. You were burned alive, Nico sensed. Probably in the Middle Ages? The ghost's face distorted in a silent scream of agony, but his eyes looked bored, even a little annoyed, as if the scream was just an automatic reflex he couldn't control. What do you want of me? Nico asked. The ghost gestured for Nico to follow. It turned and walked through the open gateway. Nico glanced back at Coach Hedge. The satyr just made a shooing gesture like, Go! Do your underworld thing. Nico trailed the ghost through the streets of Evera. They zigzagged through narrow cobblestone walkways, past courtyards with potted hibiscus trees and white stucco buildings with butterscotch trim and wrought iron balconies. No one noticed the ghost, but the locals looked askance at Nico. A young girl with a fox terrier crossed the street to avoid him. Her dog growled, the hair on its back standing straight up like a dorsal fin. The ghost led Nico to another public square, anchored at one end by a large square church with whitewashed walls and limestone arches. The ghost passed through the portico and disappeared inside. Nico hesitated. He had nothing against churches, but this one radiated death. Inside would be tombs, or perhaps something less pleasant. He ducked through the doorway. His eyes were drawn to a side chapel, lit from within by eerie golden light. 
Carved over the door was a Portuguese inscription. Nico didn't speak the language, but he remembered his childhood Italian well enough to glean the general meaning. We, the bones that are here, await yours. Cheery, he muttered. He entered the chapel. At the far end stood an altar where the fiery wraith knelt in prayer, but Nico was more interested in the room itself. The walls were constructed of bones and skulls, thousands upon thousands cemented together. Columns of bones held up a vaulted ceiling decorated with images of death. On one wall, like coats on a coat rack, hung the desiccated skeletal remains of two people, an adult and a small child. A beautiful room, isn't it? Nico turned. A year ago, he would have jumped out of his skin if his father suddenly appeared next to him. Now, Nico was able to control his heart rate, along with his desire to knee his father in the groin and run away. Like the wraith, Hades was dressed in the habit of a Franciscan monk, which Nico found vaguely disturbing. His black robes were tied at the waist with a simple white cord. His cowl was pushed back, revealing dark hair shorn close to the scalp and eyes that glittered like frozen tar. The god's expression was calm and content, as if he'd just come home from a lovely evening strolling through the fields of punishment enjoying the screams of the damned. Getting some redecorating ideas? Nico asked. Maybe you could do your dining room in medieval monk skulls. Hades arched an eyebrow. I can never tell when you're joking. Why are you here, father? How are you here? Hades traced his fingers along the nearest column, leaving bleached white marks on the old bones. You're a hard mortal to find, my son. For several days I've been searching. When the scepter of Diocletian exploded, well, that got my attention. Nico felt a flush of shame. Then he felt angry for feeling ashamed. Breaking the scepter wasn't my fault. We were about to be overrun. Oh, the scepter isn't important. A relic that old... I'm surprised you got two uses out of it. The explosion simply gave me some clarity. It allowed me to pinpoint your location. I was hoping to speak to you in Pompeii, but it is so, well, Roman. This chapel was the first place where my presence was strong enough that I could appear to you as myself, by which I mean Hades, God of the Dead not split with that other manifestation. Hades breathed in the stale, dank air. I am very drawn to this place. The remains of five thousand monks were used to build the Chapel of Bones. It serves as a reminder that life is short and death is eternal. I feel focused here. Even so, I only have a few moments. Story of our relationship, Nico thought. You only have a few moments. So tell me, father, what do you want? Hades clasped his hands together in the sleeves of his robe. Can you entertain the notion that I might be here to help you, 
not simply because I want something. Nico almost laughed, but his chest felt too hollow. I can entertain the notion that you might be here for multiple reasons. The god frowned. I suppose that's fair enough. You seek information about Gia's hunter. His name is Orion. Nico hesitated. He wasn't used to getting a direct answer without games or riddles or quests. Orion, like the constellation, wasn't he a friend of Artemis? He was, Hades said. A giant, born to oppose the twins, Apollo and Artemis. But much like Artemis, Orion rejected his destiny. He sought to live on his own terms. First, he tried to live among mortals as a huntsman for the king of Chios. He, uh, ran into some trouble with the king's daughter. The king had Orion blinded and exiled. Nico thought back to what Reyna had told him. My friend dreamed of a hunter with glowing eyes. If Orion is blind... He was blind, Hades corrected. Shortly after his exile, Orion met Hephaestus, who took pity on the giant and crafted him new mechanical eyes, even better than the originals. Orion became friends with Artemis. He was the first male ever allowed to join her hunt. But things went wrong between them. How exactly, I do not know. Orion was slain. Now he has returned as a loyal son of Gia, ready to do her bidding. He is driven by bitterness and anger. You can understand that. Nico wanted to yell, Like you know what I feel. Instead, he asked, How do we stop him? You cannot, Hades said. Your only hope is to outrun him. Accomplish your quest before he reaches you. Apollo or Artemis might be able to slay him. Arrows against arrows. But the twins are in no condition to aid you. Even now, Orion has your scent. His hunting pack is almost upon you. You won't have the luxury of more rest from here to Camp Half-Blood. A belt seemed to tighten around Nico's ribs. He'd left Coach Hedge on guard duty with Reyna asleep. I need to get back to my companions. Indeed, Hades said. But there is more. Your sister. Hades faltered. As always, the subject of Bianca lay between them like a loaded gun. Deadly, easy to reach, impossible to ignore. I mean your other sister, Hazel. She has discovered that one of the seven will die. She may try to prevent this. In doing so, she may lose sight of her priorities. Nico didn't trust himself to speak. To his surprise, his thoughts didn't leap first to Percy. His primary concern was for Hazel, then for Jason, then for Percy and the others aboard the Argo too. They'd saved him in Rome. They'd welcomed him aboard their ship. Nico had never allowed himself the luxury of friends, 
but the crew of the Argo too was as close as he'd ever come. The idea of any of them dying made him feel empty, like he was back in the giant's bronze jar, alone in the dark, subsisting only on sour pomegranate seeds. Finally, he asked, Is Hazel all right? For the moment. And the others? Who will die? Hades shook his head. Even if I were certain, I could not say. I tell you this because you are my son. You know that some deaths cannot be prevented. Some deaths should not be prevented. When the time comes, you may need to act. Nico didn't know what that meant. He didn't want to know. My son. Hades' tone was almost gentle. Whatever happens, you have earned my respect. You brought honor to our house when we stood together against Kronos in Manhattan. You risked my wrath to help the Jackson boy, guiding him to the River Styx, freeing him from my prison, pleading with me to raise the armies of Erebus to assist him. Never before have I been so harassed by one of my sons. Percy this and Percy that. I nearly blasted you to cinders. Nico took a shallow breath. The walls of the room began to tremble, dust trickling from the cracks between the bones. I didn't do all that just for him. I did it because the whole world was in danger. Hades allowed himself the faintest smile, but there was nothing cruel in his eyes. I can entertain the possibility that you acted for multiple reasons. My point is this. You and I rose to the aid of Olympus because you convinced me to let go of my anger. I would encourage you to do likewise. My children are so rarely happy. I... I would like to see you be an exception. Nico stared at his father. He didn't know what to do with that statement. He could accept many unreal things. Hordes of ghosts, magical labyrinths, travel through shadows, chapels made of bones. But tender words from the Lord of the Underworld? No, that made no sense. Over at the altar... The fiery ghost rose. He approached, burning and screaming silently, his eyes conveying some urgent message. Ah, Hades said. This is Brother Palawan. He's one of hundreds who were burned alive in the square near the old Roman temple. The Inquisition had its headquarters there, you know. At any rate, he suggests you leave now. You have very little time before the wolves arrive. Wolves? You mean Orion's pack? Hades flicked his hand. The ghost of Brother Palawan disappeared. My son, what you are attempting, shadow travel across the world, carrying the statue of Athena, it may well destroy you. Thanks for the encouragement. Hades placed his hands briefly on Nico's shoulders. Nico didn't like to be touched, but somehow this brief contact with his father felt reassuring. 
the same way the Chapel of Bones was reassuring. Like death, his father's presence was cold and often callous, but it was real, brutally honest, inescapably dependable. Nico found a sort of freedom in knowing that eventually, no matter what happened, he would end up at the foot of his father's throne. I will see you again, Hades promised. I will prepare a room for you at the palace in case you do not survive. Perhaps your chambers would look good decorated with the skulls of monks. Now I can't tell if you're joking. Hades' eyes glittered as his form began to fade. Then perhaps we are alike in some important ways. The god vanished. Suddenly, the chapel felt oppressive. Thousands of hollow eye sockets staring at Nico. We, the bones that are here, await yours. He hurried out of the church, hoping he remembered the way back to his friends. Chapter 15 Nico Wolves? Reyna asked. They were eating dinner from the nearby sidewalk cafe. Despite Hades' warning to hurry back, Nico had found nothing much changed at the camp. Reyna had just awoken. The Athena Parthenos still lay sideways across the top of the temple. Coach Hedge was entertaining a few locals with tap dancing and martial arts, occasionally singing into his megaphone, though nobody seemed to understand what he was saying. Nico wished the coach hadn't brought the megaphone. Not only was it loud and obnoxious, but also, for no reason, Nico understood it occasionally blurted out random Darth Vader lines from Star Wars or yelled, The cow goes moo! As the three of them sat on the lawn to eat, Reyna seemed alert and rested. She and Coach Hedge listened as Nico described his dreams, then his meeting with Hades at the Chapel of Bones. Nico held back a few personal details from his talk with his father, though he sensed that Reyna knew plenty about wrestling with one's feelings. When he mentioned Orion and the wolves that were supposedly on their way, Reyna frowned. Most wolves are friendly to Romans, she said. I've never heard stories about Orion hunting with a pack. Nico finished his ham sandwich. He eyed the plate of pastries and was surprised to find he still had an appetite. It could have been a figure of speech. Very little time before the wolves arrive. Perhaps Hades didn't literally mean wolves. At any rate, we should leave as soon as it's dark enough for shadows. Coach Hedge stuffed an issue of guns and ammo into his bag. Only problem, the Athena Parthenos is still 30 feet in the air. Gonna be fun hauling you guys and your gear to the top of that temple. Nico tried a pastry. The lady at the cafe had called them parturas. They looked like spiral donuts and tasted great. Just the right combination of crispy, sugary, and buttery. But when Nico first heard Fartura, he knew Percy would have made a joke out of the name. America has donuts, Percy would have said. Portugal has fart nuts. The older Nico got, the more juvenile Percy seemed to him, though Percy was three years older. 
Nico found his sense of humor equal parts endearing and annoying. He decided to concentrate on the annoying. Then there were times Percy was deadly serious, looking up at Nico from that chasm in Rome. The other side, Nico. Lead them there. Promise me. And Nico had promised. It didn't seem to matter how much he resented Percy Jackson. Nico would do anything for him. He hated himself for that. So, Raina's voice jarred him from his thoughts. Will Camp Half-Blood wait for August 1st, or will they attack? We have to hope they wait, Nico said. We can't... I can't get the statue back any faster. Even at this rate, my dad thinks I might die. Nico kept that thought private. He wished Hazel was with him. Together, they had shadow-traveled the entire crew of the Argo II out of the House of Hades. When they shared their power, Nico felt like anything was possible. The trip to Camp Half-Blood could have been done in half the time. Besides, Hades' words about one of the crew dying had sent a chill through him. He couldn't lose Hazel. Not another sister. Not again. Coach Hedge looked up from counting the change in his baseball cap. And you're sure Clarice said Melly was okay? Yes, Coach. Clarice is taking good care of her. That's a relief. I don't like what Grover said about Gia whispering to the nymphs and dryads. If the nature spirits turn evil, that's not going to be pretty. Nico had never heard of such a thing happening. Then again, Gia hadn't been awake since the dawn of humanity. Reyna took a bite of her pastry. Her chainmail glittered in the afternoon sun. I wonder about these wolves. Is it possible we've misunderstood the message? The goddess Lupa has been very quiet. Perhaps she is sending us aid. The wolves could be from her, to defend us from Orion and his pack. The hopefulness in her voice was as thin as gauze. Nico decided not to rip through it. Maybe, he said. But wouldn't Lupa be busy with the war between the camps? I thought she'd be sending wolves to help your legion. Reyna shook her head. Wolves are not frontline fighters. I don't think she would help Octavian. Her wolves might be patrolling Camp Jupiter, defending it in the legion's absence, but I just don't know. She crossed her legs at the ankles, and the iron tips of her combat boots glinted. Nico made a mental note not to get into any kicking contests with Roman legionnaires. There's something else, she said. I haven't had any luck contacting my sister, Hilla. It makes me uneasy that both the wolves and the Amazons have gone silent. If something has happened on the West Coast, I fear the only hope for either camp lies with us. We must return the statue soon. That means the greatest burden is on you, son of Hades. Nico tried to swallow his bile. He wasn't mad at Reyna. He kind of liked Reyna. But so often he'd been called on to do the impossible. Normally, as soon as he accomplished it, he was forgotten. He remembered how nice the kids at Camp Half-Blood had been to him after the war with Kronos. Great job, Nico! Thanks for bringing the armies of the underworld to save us.
everybody smiled. They all invited him to sit at their table. After about a week, his welcome wore thin. Campers would jump when he walked up behind them. He would emerge from the shadows at the campfire, startle somebody, and see the discomfort in their eyes. Are you still here? Why are you here? It didn't help that immediately after the war with Kronos, Annabeth and Percy had started dating. Nico set down his fartura. Suddenly, it didn't taste so good. He recalled his talk with Annabeth at Epirus, just before he'd left with the Athena Parthenos. She'd pulled him aside and said, Hey, I have to talk to you. Panic had seized him. She knows. I want to thank you, she continued. Bob, the Titan, he only helped us in Tartarus because you were kind to him. You told him we were worth saving. That's the only reason we're alive. She said we so easily, as if she and Percy were interchangeable, inseparable. Nico had once read a story from Plato, who claimed that in the ancient times, all humans had been a combination of male and female. Each person had two heads, four arms, four legs. Supposedly, these combo humans had been so powerful they made the gods uneasy. So Zeus split them in half, man and woman. Ever since, humans had felt incomplete. They spent their lives searching for their other halves. And where does that leave me? Nico wondered. It wasn't his favorite story. He wanted to hate Annabeth, but he just couldn't. She'd gone out of her way to thank him at Epirus. She was genuine and sincere. She never overlooked him or avoided him like most people did. Why couldn't she be a horrible person? That would have made it easier. The wind god Favonius had warned him in Croatia. If you let anger rule you, your fate will be ever sadder than mine. But how could his fate be anything but sad? Even if he lived through this quest, he would have to leave both camps forever. That was the only way he would find peace. He wished there was another option, a choice that didn't hurt like the waters of the Phlegathon, but he couldn't see one. Reyna was studying him, probably trying to read his thoughts. She glanced down at his hands, and Nico realized he was twisting his silver skull ring, the last gift Bianca had given him. Nico, how can we help you? Reyna asked. Another question he wasn't used to hearing. I'm not sure, he admitted. You've already let me rest as much as possible. That's important. Perhaps you can lend me your strength again. This next jump will be the longest. I'll have to muster enough energy to get us across the Atlantic. You'll succeed, Reyna promised. Once we're back in the U.S., we should encounter fewer monsters. I might even be able to get help from retired legionnaires along the eastern seaboard. They are obliged to aid any Roman demigod who calls on them. Hedge grunted. If Octavian hasn't already won them over, in which case you might find yourself arrested for treason. Coach, Reyna scolded. Not helping. Hey, just saying. Personally, I wish we could stay in Evera longer. Good food, good money, 
and so far, no sign of these figurative wolves. Reyna's dogs sprang to their feet. In the distance, howls pierced the air. Before Nico could stand, wolves appeared from every direction. Huge black beasts leaping from the roofs, surrounding their encampment. The largest of them padded forward. The alpha wolf stood on his haunches and began to change. His forelegs grew into arms. His snout shrank into a pointy nose. His gray fur morphed into a cloak of woven animal pelts. He became a tall, wiry man with a haggard face and glowing red eyes. A crown of finger bones circled his greasy black hair. Ah, little satyr. The man grinned, revealing pointed fangs. Your wish is granted. You will stay in Evera forever. Because sadly for you, my figurative wolves are literally wolves. Chapter 16 Nico. You're not Orion, Nico blurted. A stupid comment, but it was the first thing that came to his mind. The man before him clearly was not a hunter giant. He wasn't tall enough. He didn't have dragon legs. He didn't carry a bow or quiver. And he didn't have the headlamp eyes Reyna had described from her dream. The gray man laughed. Indeed not. Orion has merely employed me to assist him in his hunt. I am... Lycaean, Reyna interrupted. The first werewolf. The man gave her a mock bow. Reyna Ramirez Ariano, Praetor of Rome, one of Lupa's whelps. I am pleased you recognize me. No doubt I am the stuff of your nightmares. The stuff of my indigestion, perhaps. From her belt pouch, Reyna produced a foldable camping knife. She flicked it open and the wolves snarled, backing away. I never travel without a silver weapon. Lycaean bared his teeth. Would you keep a dozen wolves and their king at bay with a pocket knife? I heard you were brave, Philia Romana. I did not realize you were foolhardy. Reyna's dogs crouched, ready to spring. The coach gripped his baseball bat though for once he didn't look anxious to swing. Nico reached for the hilt of his sword. Don't bother, muttered Coach Hedge. These guys are only hurt by silver or fire. I remember them from Pike's Peak. They're annoying. And I remember you, Gleason Hedge. The werewolf's eyes glowed lava red. My pack will be delighted to have goat meat for dinner. Hedge snorted. Bring it on, mangy boy. The hunters of Artemis are on their way right now, just like last time. That's a temple of Diana over there, you idiot. You're on their home turf. Again, the wolves snarled and widened their circle. Some glanced nervously toward the rooftops. Lycaean only glared at the coach. A nice try, but I'm afraid that temple has been misnamed. I passed through here during Roman times. It was actually dedicated to the Emperor Augustus. Typical demigod vanity. 
Regardless, I've been much more careful since our last encounter. If the hunters were anywhere close by, I would know. Nico tried to think of an escape plan. They were surrounded and outnumbered. Their only effective weapon was a pocket knife. The scepter of Diocletian was gone. The Athena Parthenos was thirty feet above them at the top of the temple, and even if they could reach it, they couldn't shadow travel until they actually had shadows. The sun wouldn't set for hours. He hardly felt brave, but he stepped forward. So you've got us. What are you waiting for? Lycaeans studied him like a new type of meat in a butcher's display case. Nico D'Angelo, son of Hades, I've heard of you. I'm sorry I can't kill you promptly, but I promised my employer, Orion, that I would detain you until he arrives. No worries. He should be here in a few moments. Once he's done with you... I shall spill your blood and mark this place as my territory for ages to come. Nico grit his teeth. Demigod blood. The blood of Olympus. Of course, Lycaean said. Spilled upon the ground, especially sacred ground, demigod blood has many uses. With the proper incantations, it can awaken monsters or even gods. It can cause new life to spring up or make a place barren for generations. Alas, your blood will not wake Gia herself. That honor is reserved for your friends aboard the Argo too. But fear not, your death will be almost as painful as theirs. The grass started dying around Nico's feet. The marigold beds withered. Barren ground, he thought. Sacred ground. He remembered the thousands of skeletons in the Chapel of Bones. He recalled what Hades had said about this public square, where the Inquisition had burned hundreds of people alive. This was an ancient city. How many dead lay in the ground beneath his feet? Coach, he said. You can climb. Hedge scoffed. I'm half goat. Of course I can climb. Get up to the statue and secure the rigging. Make a rope ladder and drop it down for us. Ah, uh, but the pack of wolves... Reina, Nico said. You and your dogs will have to cover our retreat. The Praetor nodded grimly. Understood. Lycaean howled with laughter. Retreat to where, son of Hades? There is no escape. You cannot kill us. Maybe not, Nico said, but I can slow you down. He spread his hands, and the ground erupted. Nico hadn't expected it to work so well. He had pulled bone fragments from the earth before. He'd animated rat skeletons and unearthed the odd human skull. Nothing prepared him for the wall of bones that burst skyward. Hundreds of femurs, ribs, and fibulas entangling the wolves, forming a spiky briar of human remains. Most of the wolves were hopelessly trapped. Some writhed and gnashed their teeth, trying to free themselves from their haphazard cages. Lycaean himself was immobilized in a cocoon of rib bones, 
but that didn't stop him from screaming curses. You worthless child, he roared. I will rip the flesh from your limbs. Coach, go, Nico said. The satyr sprinted toward the temple. He made the top of the podium in a single leap and scrambled up the left pillar. Two wolves broke free from the thicket of bones. Reyna threw her knife and impaled one in the neck. Her dogs pounced on the other. Aram's fangs and claws slipped harmlessly off the wolf's hide, but Argentum brought the beast down. Argentum's head was still bent sideways from the fight in Pompeii. His left ruby eye was still missing, but he managed to sink his fangs into the wolf's scruff. The wolf dissolved into a puddle of shadow. Thank goodness for silver dogs, Nico thought. Reyna drew her sword. She scooped a handful of silver coins from Hedge's baseball cap, grabbed duct tape from the coach's supply bag, and began taping coins around her blade. The girl was nothing if not inventive. Go, she told Nico. I'll cover you. The wolves struggled, causing the bone thicket to crack and crumble. Lycaon freed his right arm and began smashing through his prison of ribcages. I will flay you alive, he promised. I will add your pelt to my cloak. Nico ran, pausing just long enough to grab Reyna's silver pocket knife from the ground. He wasn't a mountain goat, but he found a set of stairs at the back of the temple and raced to the top. He reached the base of the columns and squinted up at Coach Hedge, who was precariously perched at the feet of the Athena Parthenos, unraveling ropes and nodding a ladder. Hurry, Nico yelled. Oh, really, the coach called down. I thought we had tons of time. The last thing Nico needed was satyr sarcasm. Down in the square, more wolves broke free of their bone restraints. Reyna swatted them aside with her modified duct-tape coin sword, but a handful of change wasn't going to hold back a pack of werewolves for long. Aram snarled and snapped in frustration, unable to hurt the enemy. Argentum did his best, sinking his claws into the throat of another wolf, but the silver dog was already damaged. Soon he'd be hopelessly outnumbered. Lycaon freed both his arms. He started pulling his legs from their ribcage restraints. There were only a few seconds until he would be loose. Nico was out of tricks. Summoning that wall of bones had drained him. It would take all his remaining energy to shadow travel, assuming he could even find a shadow to travel into. A shadow. He looked at the silver pocket knife in his hand. An idea came to him. Possibly the stupidest, craziest idea he'd had since he thought, Hey, I'll get Percy to swim in the river Styx. He'll love me for that. Reyna, get up here, he yelled. She slammed another wolf in the head and ran. In mid-stride, she flicked her sword, which elongated into a javelin, then used it to launch herself up like a pole vaulter. She landed next to Nico. What's the plan? she asked not even out of breath. Show off, he grumbled. A knotted rope fell from above. Climb, you silly non-goats, Hedge yelled. Go, Nico told her. Once you're up there, hang on tight to the rope. Nico, do it. 
Her javelin shrank back into a sword. Reyna sheathed it and began to climb, scaling the column despite her armor and her supplies. Down in the plaza, Aram and Argentum were nowhere to be seen. Either they'd retreated or they'd been destroyed. Lycaon broke free of his bone cage with a triumphant howl. You will suffer, son of Hades. What else is new, Nico thought. He palmed the pocket knife. Come get me, you mutt. Or do you have to stay like a good dog until your master shows up? Lycaon sprang through the air, his claws extended, his fangs bared. Nico wrapped his free hand around the rope and concentrated, a bead of sweat trickling down his neck. As the Wolf King fell on him, Nico thrust the silver knife into Lycaon's chest. All around the temple, wolves howled as one. The Wolf King sank his claws into Nico's arms. His fangs stopped less than an inch from Nico's face. Nico ignored his own pain and jabbed the pocket knife to the hilt between Lycaon's ribs. Be useful, dog, he snarled. Back to the shadows. Lycaon's eyes rolled up in his head. He dissolved into a pool of inky darkness. Then several things happened at once. The outraged pack of wolves surged forward. From a nearby rooftop, a booming voice yelled, Stop them! Nico heard the unmistakable sound of a large bow being drawn taut. Then he melted into the pool of Lycaon's shadow, taking his friends and the Athena Parthenos with him, slipping into cold ether with no idea where he would emerge. Chapter 17 Piper Piper couldn't believe how hard it was to find deadly poison. All morning, she and Frank had scoured the port of Pylos. Frank allowed only Piper to come with him, thinking her charm speak might be useful if they ran into his shape-shifting relatives. As it turned out, her sword was more in demand. So far, they'd slain a Lestragonian ogre in the bakery, battled a giant warthog in the public square, and defeated a flock of Stymphalian birds with some well-aimed vegetables from Piper's cornucopia. She was glad for the work. It kept her from dwelling on her conversation with her mother the night before. That bleak glimpse of the future Aphrodite had made her promise not to share. Meanwhile, Piper's biggest challenge in Pylos was the ads plastered all over town for her dad's new movie. The posters were in Greek, but Piper knew what they said. Tristan McLean is Jake Steele, signed in blood. Gods, what a horrible title. She wished her father had never taken on the Jake Steele franchise, but it had become one of his most popular roles. There he was on the poster, his shirt ripped open to reveal perfect abs. Gross, Dad. An AK-47 in hand, a rakish smile on his chiseled face. Halfway across the world, in the smallest, most out-of-the-way town imaginable, there was her dad. It made Piper feel sad, disoriented, homesick, and annoyed all at once. Life went on. So did Hollywood. While her dad pretended to save the world, Piper and her friends actually had to. In eight more days, unless Piper could pull off the plan Aphrodite had explained, well, 
there wouldn't be any more movies, or theaters, or people. Around one in the afternoon, Piper finally put her charm speak to work. She spoke with an ancient Greek ghost in a laundromat, on a one to ten scale for weird conversations, definitely an eleven, and got directions to an ancient stronghold where the shape-shifting descendants of Periclymenus supposedly hung out. After trudging across the island in the afternoon heat, they found the cave perched halfway up a beachside cliff. Frank insisted that Piper wait for him at the bottom while he checked it out. Piper wasn't happy about that, but she stood obediently on the beach, squinting up at the cave entrance and hoping she hadn't guided Frank into a death trap. Behind her, a stretch of white sand hugged the foot of the hills. Sunbathers sprawled on blankets. Little kids splashed in the waves. The blue sea glittered invitingly. Piper wished she could surf those waters. She'd promised to teach Hazel and Annabeth someday, if they ever came out to Malibu, if Malibu still existed after August 1st. She glanced up at the cliff's summit. The ruins of an old castle clung to the ridge. Piper wasn't sure if that was part of the Shape Changer's hideout or not. Nothing moved on the parapets. The entrance of the cave sat about 70 feet down the cliff face a circle of black in the chalky yellow rock, like the hole of a giant pencil sharpener. Nestor's Cave, the laundromat ghost had called it. Supposedly, the ancient king of Pylos had stashed his treasure there in times of crisis. The ghost also claimed that Hermes had once hidden the stolen cattle of Apollo in that cave. Cows. Piper shuddered. When she was little... Her dad had driven her past a meat processing plant in Chino. The smell had been enough to turn her into a vegetarian. Ever since, just the thought of cows made her ill. Her experiences with Hera the Cow Queen, the Catoblepanes of Venice, and the pictures of creepy death cows in the House of Hades hadn't helped. Piper was just starting to think, Frank's been gone too long, when he appeared at the cave entrance. Next to him stood a tall, gray-haired man in a white linen suit and a pale yellow tie. The older man pressed a small, shiny object, like a stone or a piece of glass, into Frank's hands. He and Frank exchanged a few words. Frank nodded gravely. Then the man turned into a seagull and flew away. Frank picked his way down the trail until he reached Piper. I found them, he said. I noticed... You okay? He stared at the seagull as it flew toward the horizon. Frank's close-cropped hair pointed forward like an arrow, making his gaze even more intense. His Roman badges, mural crown, centurion, praetor, glittered on his shirt collar. On his forearm, the SPQR tattoo with the crossed spears of Mars stood out darkly in the full sunlight. He looked good in his new outfit. The giant warthog had slimed his old clothes pretty badly, so Piper had taken him for some emergency shopping in Pylos. Now he wore new black jeans, soft leather boots, and a dark green Henley shirt that fit him snugly. He'd been self-conscious about the shirt. He was used to hiding his bulk in baggy clothes, but Piper assured him he didn't have to worry about that anymore. Since his growth spurt in Venice, he'd grown into his bulkiness just fine. 
You haven't changed, Frank, she'd told him. You're just more you. It was a good thing Frank Jong was still so sweet and soft-spoken. Otherwise, he would have been a scary guy. Frank, she prompted gently. Yeah, sorry. He focused on her. My, uh, cousins, I guess you'd call them. They've been living here for generations, all descended from Paracliminus the Argonaut. I told them my story, how the Jong family had gone from Greece to Rome to China to Canada. I told them about the legionnaire ghost I saw in the House of Hades, urging me to come to Pylos. They... they didn't seem surprised. They said it's happened before, long-lost relatives coming home. Piper heard the wistfulness in his voice. You were expecting something different. He shrugged. A bigger welcome, some party balloons. I'm not sure. My grandmother told me I would close the circle, bring our family honor and all that. But my cousins here, they acted kind of cold and distant, like they didn't want me around. I don't think they liked that I'm a son of Mars. Honestly, I don't think they liked that I'm Chinese either. Piper glared into the sky. The seagull was long gone, which was probably a good thing. She would have been tempted to shoot it out of the air with a glazed ham. If your cousins feel that way, they're idiots. They don't know how great you are. Frank shuffled from foot to foot. They got a little more friendly when I told them I was just passing through. They gave me a going-away present. He opened his hand. In his palm gleamed a metallic vial no bigger than an eyedropper. Piper resisted the urge to step away. Is that the poison? Frank nodded. They call it Pylosian mint. Apparently, the plant sprang from the blood of a nymph who died on a mountain near here, back in ancient times. I didn't ask for all the details. The vial was so tiny, Piper worried there wouldn't be enough. Normally, she didn't wish for more deadly poison. Nor was she sure how it would help them make the so-called physician's cure that Nike had mentioned. But if the cure could really cheat death, Piper wanted to brew a six-pack. One dose for each of her friends. Frank rolled the vial around in his palm. I wish Vitellius Reticulus were here. Piper wasn't sure she'd heard him right. Ridiculous who? A smile flickered across his mouth. Gaius Vitellius Reticulus, although we did call him ridiculous sometimes. He was one of the Larrys of the fifth cohort. Kind of a goofball, but he was the son of Esculapius, the healing god. If anybody knew about this physician's cure, he might. A healing god would be nice, Piper mused. Better than having a screaming, tied-up victory goddess on board. Hey, you're lucky. My cabin is closest to the stables. I can hear her yelling all night, First place or death, and A- minus is a failing grade. Leo really needs to design a gag that's better than my old sock. Piper shuddered. She still didn't understand why it had been a good idea to take the goddess captive. The sooner they got rid of Nike, the better. So your cousins, did they have any advice about what comes next? 
this chained god we're supposed to find in Sparta? Frank's expression darkened. Yeah, I'm afraid they had some thoughts on that. Let's get back to the ship and I'll tell you about it. Piper's feet were killing her. She wondered if she could convince Frank to turn into a giant eagle and carry her, but before she could ask, she heard footsteps in the sand behind them. Hello, nice tourists. A scraggly fisherman with a white captain's hat and a mouthful of gold teeth beamed at them. Boat ride? Very cheap. He gestured to the shore, where a skiff with an outboard motor waited. Piper returned his smile. She loved it when she could communicate with the locals. Yes, please, she said in her best charm speak, and we'd like you to take us somewhere special. The boat captain dropped them at the Argo too, anchored a quarter mile out to sea. Piper pressed a wad of euros into the captain's hands. She wasn't above using charm speak on mortals, but she decided to be as fair and careful as possible. Her days of stealing BMWs from car dealerships were over. Thank you, she told him. If anyone asks, you took us around the island and showed us the sights. You dropped us at the docks in Pylos. You never saw any giant warship. No warship, the captain agreed. Thank you, nice American tourists. They climbed aboard the Argo too, and Frank smiled at her awkwardly. Well, nice killing giant warthogs with you. Piper laughed. You too, Mr. Jong. She gave him a hug, which seemed to fluster him, but Piper couldn't help liking Frank. Not only was he a kind and considerate boyfriend to Hazel, but whenever Piper saw him wearing Jason's old Preter's badge, she felt grateful to him for stepping up and accepting that job. He had taken a huge responsibility off Jason's shoulders and left him free, Piper hoped, to pursue a new path at Camp Half-Blood, assuming, of course, that they all lived through the next eight days. The crew gathered for a hurried meeting on the foredeck, mostly because Percy was keeping an eye on a giant red sea serpent swimming off the port side. That thing is really red, Percy muttered. I wonder if it's cherry-flavored. Why don't you swim over and find out? Annabeth asked. How about no? Anyway, Frank said, according to my Pylos cousins, the chained god we're looking for in Sparta is my dad. Uh, I mean, Ares, not Mars. Apparently the Spartans kept a statue of him chained up in their city, so the spirit of war would never leave them. Okay, Leo said. The Spartans were freaks. Of course, we've got victory tied up downstairs, so I guess we can't talk. Jason leaned against the forward ballista. On to Sparta, then. But how does a chained god's heartbeat help us find a cure for dying? From the tightness in his face, Piper could tell he was still in pain. She remembered what Aphrodite had told her. It's not just his sword wound, my dear. It's the ugly truth he saw in Ithaca. If the poor boy doesn't stay strong, that truth will eat right through him. Piper? Hazel asked. She stirred. Sorry, what? I was asking you about the visions, Hazel prompted. 
You told me you'd seen some stuff in your dagger blade? Uh, right. Piper reluctantly unsheathed Catoptris. Ever since she'd used it to stab the snow goddess Keone, the visions in the blade had become colder and harsher, like images etched in ice. She'd seen eagles swirling over Camp Half-Blood, a wave of earth destroying New York. She'd seen scenes from the past, her father beaten and bound at the top of Mount Diablo, Jason and Percy fighting giants in the Roman Colosseum, the river god Achelous reaching out to her, pleading for the cornucopia she'd cut from his head. I, um... She tried to clear her thoughts. I don't see anything right now, but one vision kept popping up. Annabeth and I are exploring some ruins. Ruins! Leo rubbed his hands. Now we're talking. How many ruins can there be in Greece? Quiet, Leo, Annabeth scolded. Piper, do you think it was Sparta? Maybe, Piper said. Anyway, suddenly we're in this dark place like a cave. We're staring at this bronze warrior statue. In the vision, I touch the statue's face and flames start swirling around us. That's all I saw. Flames, Frank scowled. I don't like that vision. Me neither. Percy kept one eye on the Red Sea Serpent, which was still slithering through the waves about a hundred yards to port. If the statue engulfs people in fire, we should send Leo. I love you too, man. You know what I mean. You're immune. Or, heck, give me some of those nice water grenades and I'll go. Ares and I have tangled before. Annabeth stared at the coastline of Pylos, now retreating in the distance. If Piper saw the two of us going after the statue, then that's who should go. We'll be all right. There's always a way to survive. Not always, Hazel warned. Since she was the only one in the group who had actually died and come back to life, her observation sort of killed the mood. Frank held out the vial of Pylosian mint. What about this stuff? After the House of Hades, I kind of hoped we were done drinking poison. Store it securely in the hold, Annabeth said. For now, that's all we can do. Once we figure out this chained god situation, we'll head to the island of Delos. The curse of Delos, Hazel remembered. That sounds fun. Hopefully Apollo will be there, Annabeth said. Delos was his home island. He's the god of medicine. He should be able to advise us. Aphrodite's words came back to Piper. You must bridge the gap between Roman and Greek, my child. Neither storm nor fire can succeed without you. Aphrodite had warned her of what was to come, told her what Piper would have to do to stop Gia. Whether or not she would have the courage, Piper didn't know. Off the port bow, the cherry-flavored sea serpent spewed steam. Yeah, it's definitely checking us out, Percy decided. Maybe we should take to the air for a while. Airborne it is, Leo said. Festus, do the honors. The bronze dragon figurehead creaked and clacked. The ship's engine hummed. 
the oars lifted, expanding into aerial blades with a sound like ninety umbrellas opening at once, and the Argo too rose into the sky. We should reach Sparta by morning, Leo announced. And remember to come by the mess hall tonight, folks, cause Chef Leo is making his famous three alarm tofu tacos. Chapter 18. Piper Piper didn't want to get yelled at by a three-legged table. When Jason visited her cabin that evening, she made sure to keep the door open, because Buford the Wonder Table took his duties as acting chaperone very seriously. If he had the slightest suspicion a girl and a boy were in the same cabin without supervision, he would steam and clatter down the hall, his holographic projection of Coach Hedge yelling, Cut that out! Give me twenty push-ups! Put some clothes on! Jason sat at the foot of her bunk. I was about to go on duty. Just wanted to check on you first. Piper nudged his leg with her foot. The guy who got run through with a sword wants to check on me? How are you feeling? He gave her a lopsided smile. His face was so tan from their time on the coast of Africa that the scar on his lip looked like a chalk mark. His blue eyes were even more startling. His hair had grown out corn silk white, though he still had a groove along his scalp where he'd been grazed by a bullet from the bandit Skyron's flintlock. If such a minor scrape from celestial bronze took so long to heal, Piper wondered how he'd ever get over the imperial gold wound in his gut. I've been worse, Jason assured her. Once in Oregon, this Dracaena cut off my arms. Piper blinked, then she slapped his arm gently. Shut up. I had you for a second. They held hands in comfortable silence. For a moment, Piper could almost imagine they were normal teenagers, enjoying each other's company and learning to be together as a couple. Sure, Jason and she had a few months at Camp Half-Blood, but the war with Gia had always been looming. Piper wondered what it would be like if they didn't have to worry about dying a dozen times every day. I never thanked you. Jason's expression turned serious. Back on Ithaca, after I saw my mom's... remnant. Her mania. When I was wounded, you kept me from slipping away, Pipes. Part of me... His voice faltered. Part of me wanted to close my eyes and stop fighting. Piper's heart did a slow twist. She felt her own pulse in her fingers. Jason, you're a fighter. You'd never give up. When you faced your mother's spirit, that was you being strong, not me. Maybe. His voice was dry. I didn't mean to lay something so heavy on you, Pipes. It's just... I have my mom's DNA. The human part of me is all her. What if I make the wrong choices? What if I make a mistake I can't take back when we're fighting Gia? I don't want to end up like my mom, reduced to a mania, chewing on my regrets forever. Piper cupped her hands around his. She felt like she was back on the deck of the Argo II, holding the Boreads ice grenade just before it detonated. You'll make the right choices, she said. I don't know what will happen to any of us, 
but you could never end up like your mom. How can you be so sure? Piper studied the tattoo on his forearm. SPQR, the Eagle of Jupiter, twelve lines for his years in the Legion. My dad used to tell me this story about making choices. She shook her head. No, never mind. I'll sound like Grandpa Tom. Go on, Jason said. What's the story? Well, these two Cherokee hunters were out in the woods, right? Each of them was under a taboo. A taboo, something they weren't allowed to do. Yeah. Piper began to relax. She wondered if this was why her dad and granddad always liked telling stories. You could make even the most terrifying topic easier to talk about by framing it as something that happened to a couple of Cherokee hunters hundreds of years ago. Take a problem, turn it into entertainment. Perhaps that's why her dad had become an actor. So one of the hunters, she continued, he wasn't supposed to eat deer meat. The other guy wasn't supposed to eat squirrel meat. Why? Hey, I don't know. Some Cherokee taboos were permanent no-nos, like killing eagles. She tapped the symbol on Jason's arm. That was bad luck for almost everybody. But sometimes individual Cherokee took on temporary taboos, maybe to cleanse their spirit, or because they knew from listening to the spirit world or whatever. That the taboo was important, they went with their instincts. Okay, Jason sounded unsure. So back to these two hunters. They were out hunting in the woods all day. The only things they caught were squirrels. At night, they made camp, and the guy who could eat squirrel meat started cooking it over the fire. Yum. Another reason I'm a vegetarian. Anyway. The second hunter, who wasn't allowed squirrel meat, he was starving. He just sat there clutching his stomach while his friend ate. Finally, the first hunter started feeling guilty. Ah,、uh, go ahead, he said, eat some. But the second hunter resisted. It's taboo for me. I'll get in serious trouble. I'll probably turn into a snake or something. The first hunter laughed. Where did you get that crazy idea? Nothing will happen to you. You can go back to avoiding squirrel meat tomorrow. The second hunter knew he shouldn't, but he ate. Jason traced his fingers across her knuckles, which made it hard to concentrate. What happened? In the middle of the night, the second hunter woke up screaming in pain. The first hunter ran over to see what was wrong. He threw off his friend's covers and saw that his friend's legs had fused together in a leathery tail. As he watched. Snakeskin crept up his friend's body. The poor hunter wept and apologized to the spirits and cried in fear, but there was nothing to be done. The first hunter stayed by his side and tried to comfort him until the unfortunate guy fully transformed into a giant snake and slithered away. The end. I love these Cherokee stories, Jason said. They're so cheerful. Yeah, well. So the guy turned into a snake. The moral is, Frank has been eating squirrels. She laughed, which felt good. No, stupid. The point is, trust your instincts. Squirrel meat might be just fine for one person, but taboo for another.
The second hunter knew he had a serpent spirit inside him, waiting to take over. He knew he shouldn't feed that bad spirit by eating squirrel meat, but he did it anyway. So, I shouldn't eat squirrels. Piper was relieved to see the gleam in his eyes. She thought about something Hazel had confided to her a few nights ago. I think Jason is the linchpin to Hera's whole scheme. He was her first play. He's going to be her last. My point, Piper said, poking his chest, is that you, Jason Grace, are very familiar with your own bad spirits, and you try your best not to feed them. You have solid instincts, and you know how to follow them. Whatever annoying qualities you have, you are a genuinely good person who always tries to make the right choice. So no more talk about giving up. Jason frowned. Wait, I have annoying qualities? She rolled her eyes. Come here. She was about to kiss him when there was a knock on the door. Leo leaned inside. A party? Am I invited? Jason cleared his throat. Hey, Leo, what's going on? Oh, not much, he pointed upstairs. The usual obnoxious venti trying to destroy the ship. You ready for guard duty? Yeah. Jason leaned forward and kissed Piper. Thanks, and don't worry. I'm good. That, she told him, was kind of my point. After the boys left, Piper lay on her Pegasus down pillows and watched the constellations her lamp projected on the ceiling. She didn't think she could sleep, but a full day of fighting monsters in the summer heat had taken its toll. At last, she closed her eyes and drifted into a nightmare. The Acropolis. Piper had never been there, but she recognized it from pictures. An ancient stronghold perched on a hill almost as impressive as Gibraltar, Rising 400 feet over the nighttime sprawl of modern Athens, the sheer cliffs were topped with a crown of limestone walls. On the summit, a collection of ruined temples and modern cranes gleamed silver in the moonlight. In her dream, Piper flew above the Parthenon, the ancient temple of Athena, the left side of its hollow shell encased in metal scaffolding. The Acropolis seemed devoid of mortals, perhaps because of the financial problems in Greece. Or perhaps Gia's forces had arranged some pretext to keep the tourists and construction workers away. Piper's view zoomed to the center of the temple. So many giants had gathered there, it looked like a cocktail party for redwood trees. A few Piper recognized. Those horrible twins from Rome, Otis and Ephialtes, dressed in matching construction worker outfits. Polybides, looking just as Percy had described him, with poison dripping from his dreadlocks and a breastplate sculpted to resemble hungry mouths. Worst of all, Enceladus, the giant who had kidnapped Piper's dad. His armor was etched with flame designs, his hair braided with bones. His flagpole-sized spear burned with purple fire. Piper had heard that each giant was born to oppose a particular god, but there were way more than twelve giants gathered in the Parthenon. 
She counted at least 20. And if that wasn't intimidating enough, around the giant's feet milled a horde of smaller monsters. Cyclopes, ogres, six-armed earthborn, and serpent-legged dracani. In the center of the crowd stood an empty makeshift throne of twisted scaffolding and stone blocks, apparently yanked at random from the ruins. As Piper watched, a new giant lumbered up the steps at the far end of the Acropolis. He wore a massive velour tracksuit with gold chains around his neck and greased back hair, so he looked like a 30-foot-tall mobster, if mobsters had dragon feet and burnt orange skin. The mafia giant ran toward the Parthenon and stumbled inside, flattening several earthborn under his feet. He stopped, gasping for breath at the foot of the throne. Where is Porphyrion? he demanded. I have news. Piper's old enemy, Enceladus, stepped forward. Tardy as usual, Hippolytus. I hope your news is worth the wait. King Porphyrion should be... The ground between them split. An even larger giant leaped from the earth like a breaching whale. King Porphyrion is here, announced the king. He looked just as Piper remembered from the wolf house in Sonoma. Forty feet tall, he towered over his brethren. In fact, Piper realized queasily he was the same size as the Athena Parthenos that had once dominated the temple. In his seaweed-colored braids, captured demigod weapons glittered. His face was cruel and pale green, his eyes as white as the mist. His body radiated its own sort of gravity, causing the other monsters to lean toward him. Dirt and pebbles skittered across the ground, pulling toward his massive dragon feet. The monster giant Hippolytus kneeled. My king, I bring word of the enemy. Porphyrian took his throne. Speak. The demigod ship sails around the Peloponnese, Already they have destroyed the ghosts at Ithaca and captured the goddess Nike in Olympia. The crowd of monsters stirred uneasily. A cyclops chewed his fingernails. Two Dracani exchanged coins like they were taking bets for the end-of-the-world office pool. Porphyrian just laughed. Hippolytus. Do you wish to kill your enemy Hermes and become the messenger of the giants? Yes, my king. Then you will have to bring fresher news. I know all this already. None of it matters. The demigods have taken the route we expected them to take. They would have been fools to go any other way. But, sire... They will arrive at Sparta by morning. If they manage to unleash the Mackay... Idiot! Porphyrian's voice shook the ruins. Our brother Mimas awaits them at Sparta. You need not worry. The demigods cannot change their fate. One way or another, their blood shall be spilled upon these stones and wake the Earth Mother. The crowd roared approval and brandished their weapons. 
Hippolytus bowed and retreated, but another giant approached the throne. With a start, Piper realized this one was female. Not that it was easy to tell. The giantess had the same dragon-like legs and the same long braided hair. She was just as tall and burly as the males, but her breastplate was definitely fashioned for a woman. Her voice was higher and reedier. Father, she cried, I ask again, why here, in this place? Why not on the slopes of Mount Olympus itself? Surely... Paraboya, the king growled. The matter is settled. The original Mount Olympus is now a barren peak. It offers us no glory. Here in the center of the Greek world, the roots of the gods truly run deep. There may be older temples, but this Parthenon holds their memory best. In the minds of mortals, it is the most powerful symbol of the Olympians. When the blood of the last heroes is spilled here, the Acropolis shall be raised. This hill shall crumble, and the entire city shall be consumed by the Earth Mother. We will be the masters of creation. The crowd hollered and howled, but the giantess Paraboya didn't look convinced. You tempt fate, father, she said. The demigods have friends here as well as enemies. It is not wise. Wise? Porphyrian rose from his throne. All the giants took a step back. Enceladus, my counselor, explain to my daughter what wisdom is. The fiery giant came forward. His eyes glowed like diamonds. Piper loathed his face. She'd seen it too many times in her dreams when her father was held captive. You need not worry, princess, Enceladus said. We have taken Delphi. Apollo was driven out of Olympus in shame. The future is closed to the gods. They stumbled forward blindly. As for tempting fate... He gestured to his left, and a smaller giant shuffled forward. He had ratty gray hair, a wrinkled face, and eyes that were milky with cataracts. Instead of armor, he wore a tattered sackcloth tunic. His dragon-scale legs were as white as frost. He didn't look like much, but Piper noticed that the other monsters kept their distance. Even poor Furion leaned away from the old giant. This is Thune, Enceladus said. Just as many of us were born to kill certain gods, Thune was born to kill the three fates. He will strangle the old ladies with his bare hands. He will shred their yarn and destroy their loom. He will destroy fate itself. King Porphyrian rose and spread his arms in triumph. No more prophecies, my friends. No more futures foretold. The time of Gia shall be our era, and we will make our own destiny. The crowd cheered so loudly, Piper felt as if she were crumbling to pieces. 
Then she realized someone was shaking her awake. Hey, Annabeth said. We made it to Sparta. Can you get ready? Piper sat up groggily, her heart still pounding. Yeah, she gripped Annabeth's arm. But first, there's something you need to hear. Chapter 19 Piper When she recounted her dream for Percy, the ship's toilets exploded. No way are you two going down there alone, Percy said. Leo ran down the hall waving a wrench. Man, did you have to destroy the plumbing? Percy ignored him. Water ran down the gangway. The hall rumbled as more pipes burst and sinks overflowed. Piper guessed that Percy hadn't meant to cause so much damage, but his glowering expression made her want to leave the ship as soon as possible. We'll be all right, Annabeth told him. Piper foresaw the two of us going down there, so that's what needs to happen. Percy glared at Piper like it was all her fault. And this Mimus dude, I'm guessing he's a giant? Probably, she said. Porphyrion called him our brother. And a bronze statue surrounded by fire, Percy said. And those other things you mentioned. Mackies? Mackay, Piper said. I think the word means battles in Greek, but I don't know how that applies exactly. That's my point, Percy said. We don't know what's down there. I'm going with you. No, Annabeth put her hand on his arm. If the giants want our blood, the last thing we need is a boy and girl going down there together. Remember? They want one of each for their big sacrifice. Then I'll get Jason, Percy said. And the two of us... Seaweed Brain, are you implying that two boys can handle this better than two girls? No, I mean... No, but... Annabeth kissed him. We'll be back before you know it. Piper followed her upstairs before the whole lower deck could flood with toilet water. An hour later, the two of them stood on a hill overlooking the ruins of ancient Sparta. They'd already scouted the modern city, which strangely reminded Piper of Albuquerque. A bunch of low, boxy, whitewashed buildings sprawled across a plain at the foot of some purplish mountains. Annabeth had insisted on checking the archaeology museum, then the giant metal statue of the Spartan warrior in the public square, then the National Museum of Olives and Olive Oil. Yes, that was a real thing. Piper had learned more about olive oil than she ever wanted to know, but no giants attacked them. They found no statues of chained gods. Annabeth seemed reluctant to check the ruins on the edge of town, but finally they ran out of places to look. There wasn't much to see. According to Annabeth, the hill they stood on had once been Sparta's Acropolis, its highest point and main fortress. But it was nothing like the massive Athenian Acropolis Piper had seen in her dreams. The weathered slope was covered with dead grass, rocks, and stunted olive trees. Below, 
ruins stretched out for maybe a quarter mile. Limestone blocks, a few broken walls, and some tiled holes in the ground like wells. Piper thought about her dad's most famous movie, King of Sparta, and how the Spartans were portrayed as invincible supermen. She found it sad that their legacy had been reduced to a field of rubble and a small modern town with an olive oil museum. She wiped the sweat from her forehead. You'd think if there was a 30-foot-tall giant around, we'd see him. Annabeth stared at the distant shape of the Argo II floating above downtown Sparta. She fingered the red coral pendant on her necklace, a gift from Percy when they started dating. You're thinking about Percy, Piper guessed. Annabeth nodded. Since she'd come back from Tartarus, Annabeth had told Piper a lot of scary things that had happened down there. At the top of her list, Percy controlling a tide of poison and suffocating the goddess Aklis. He seems to be adjusting, Piper said. He's smiling more often. You know he cares about you more than ever. Annabeth sat, her face suddenly pale. I don't know why it's hitting me so hard all of a sudden. I can't quite get that memory out of my head, how Percy looked when he was standing at the edge of chaos. Maybe Piper was just picking up on Annabeth's uneasiness, but she started to feel agitated as well. She thought about what Jason had said last night. Part of me wanted to close my eyes and stop fighting. She had tried her best to reassure him, but still she worried. Like that Cherokee hunter who changed into a serpent, all demigods had their share of bad spirits inside. Fatal flaws. Some crises brought them out. Some lines shouldn't be crossed. If that was true for Jason, how could it not be true for Percy? The guy had literally been through hell and back. Even when he wasn't trying, he made the toilets explode. What would Percy be like if he wanted to act scary? Give him time. She sat next to Annabeth. The guy is crazy about you. You've been through so much together. I know. Annabeth's gray eyes reflected the green of the olive trees. It's just... Bob the Titan. He warned me there would be more sacrifices ahead. I want to believe we can have a normal life someday. But I allowed myself to hope for that last summer, after the Titan War. Then Percy disappeared for months. Then we fell into that pit. A tear traced its way down her cheek. Piper, if you'd seen the face of the god Tartarus, all swirling darkness, devouring monsters and vaporizing them, I've never felt so helpless. I try not to think about it. Piper took her friend's hands. They were trembling badly. She remembered her first day at Camp Half-Blood, when Annabeth had given her a tour. Annabeth had been shaken up about Percy's disappearance, and though Piper was pretty disoriented and scared herself, comforting Annabeth had made her feel needed, like she might actually have a place among these crazy, powerful demigods. Annabeth Chase was the bravest person she knew. If even she needed a shoulder to cry on once in a while, well... 
Piper was glad to offer hers. Hey, she said gently. Don't try to shut out the feelings. You won't be able to. Just let them wash over you and drain out again. You're scared. Gods, yes, I'm scared. You're angry. At Percy for frightening me, she said. At my mom for sending me on that horrible quest in Rome. At, well, pretty much everybody. Gia, the giants, the gods for being jerks. At me? Piper asked. Annabeth managed a shaky laugh. Yes, for being so annoyingly calm. It's all a lie. And for being a good friend. Huh. And for having your head on straight about guys and relationships and... I'm sorry. Have you met me? Annabeth punched her arm, but there was no force to it. I'm stupid, sitting here talking about my feelings when we have a quest to finish. The chained god's heartbeat can wait. Piper tried for a smile, but her own fears welled up inside her. For Jason and her friends on the Argo, too. For herself. If she wasn't able to do what Aphrodite had advised. In the end, you will only have the power for one word. It must be the right word, or you will lose everything. Whatever happens, she told Annabeth, I'm your friend. Just remember that, okay? Especially if I'm not around to remind you, Piper thought. Annabeth started to say something. Suddenly, a roaring sound came from the ruins. One of the stone-lined pits, which Piper had mistaken for wells, spewed out a three-story geyser of flames and shut off just as quickly. What the heck? Piper asked. Annabeth sighed. I don't know, but I have a feeling it's something we should check out. Three pits lay side by side like finger holes on a recorder. Each one was perfectly round, two feet in diameter, tiled around the rim with limestone. Each one plunged straight into darkness. Every few seconds, seemingly at random, one of the three pits shot a column of fire into the sky. Each time, the color and intensity of the flames were different. They weren't doing this before. Annabeth walked a wide arc around the pits. She still looked shaky and pale, but her mind was now obviously engaged in the problem at hand. There doesn't seem to be any pattern. The timing, the color, the height of the fire. I don't get it. Did we activate them somehow? Piper wondered. Maybe that surge of fear you felt on the hill. Uh, I mean, we both felt. Annabeth didn't seem to hear her. There must be some kind of mechanism. A pressure plate. A proximity alarm. Flames shot from the middle pit. Annabeth counted silently. The next time, a geyser erupted on the left. She frowned. That's not right. It's inconsistent. It has to follow some kind of logic. Piper's ears started to ring. Something about these pits. Each time one ignited, a horrible thrill went through her. Fear, panic. 
but also a strong desire to get closer to the flames. It isn't rational, she said. It's emotional. How can fire pits be emotional? Piper held her hand over the pit on the right. Instantly, flames leaped up. Piper barely had time to withdraw her fingers. Her nails steamed. Piper! Annabeth ran over. What were you thinking? I wasn't. I was feeling. What we want is down there. These pits are the way in. I'll have to jump. Are you crazy? Even if you don't get stuck in the tube, you have no idea how deep it is. You're right. You'll be burned alive. Possibly. Piper unbuckled her sword and tossed it into the pit on the right. I'll let you know if it's safe. Wait for my word. Don't you dare, Annabeth warned. Piper jumped. For a moment, she was weightless in the dark the sides of the hot stone pit burning her arms. Then the space opened up around her. Instinctively, she tucked and rolled, absorbing most of the impact as she hit the stone floor. Flames shot up in front of her, singeing her eyebrows, but Piper snatched up her sword, unsheathed it, and swung before she'd even stopped rolling. A bronze dragon head, neatly decapitated, wobbled across the floor. Piper stood, trying to get her bearings. She looked down at the fallen dragon head and felt a moment of guilt, as if she'd killed Festus, but this wasn't Festus. Three bronze dragon statues stood in a row, aligned with the holes in the roof. Piper had decapitated the middle one. The two intact dragons were each three feet tall. Their snouts pointed upward and their steaming mouths open. They were clearly the source of the flames, but they didn't seem to be automatons. They didn't move or try to attack her. Piper calmly sliced off the heads of the other two. She waited. No more flames shot upward. Piper? Annabeth's voice echoed from far above like she was yelling down a chimney. Yeah? Piper shouted. Thank the gods! You okay? Yeah, Hold on a sec. Her eyesight adjusted to the dark. She scanned the chamber. The only light came from her glowing blade in the pits above. The ceiling was about thirty feet high. By all rights, Piper should have broken both legs in the fall, but she wasn't going to complain. The chamber itself was round, about the size of a helicopter pad. The walls were made of rough-hewn stone blocks chiseled with Greek inscriptions, thousands and thousands of them, like graffiti. At the far end of the room, on a stone dais, stood the human-sized bronze statue of a warrior, the god Ares, Piper guessed, with heavy bronze chains wrapped around his body, anchoring him to the floor. On either side of the statue loomed two dark doorways, each ten feet high, with a gruesome stone face carved over the archway. The faces reminded Piper of gorgons, except they had lion's manes instead of snakes for hair. Piper suddenly felt very much alone. Annabeth, she called. It's a long drop, but it's safe to come down. Maybe, uh, you have a rope you could fasten so we can get back up? On it, 
A few minutes later, a rope dropped from the center pit. Annabeth shinnied down. Piper McLean, she grumbled. That was without a doubt the dumbest risk I've ever seen anyone take, and I date a dumb risk taker. Thank you. Piper nudged the nearest decapitated dragon head with her foot. I'm guessing these are the dragons of Ares. That's one of his sacred animals, right? And there's the chain god himself. Where do you think those doorways? Piper held up her hand. Do you hear that? The sound was like a drumbeat, with a metallic echo. It's coming from inside the statue. Piper decided. The heartbeat of the chained god. Annabeth unsheathed her dragon bone sword. In the dim light, her face was ghostly pale, her eyes colorless. I, I don't like this, Piper. We need to leave. The rational part of Piper agreed. Her skin crawled, her legs ached to run, but something about this room felt strangely familiar. The shrine is ramping up our emotions, she said. It's like being around my mom, except this place radiates fear, not love. That's why you started feeling overwhelmed on the hill. Down here, it's a thousand times stronger. Annabeth scanned the walls. Okay, we need a plan to get the statue out. Maybe haul it up with the rope, but wait. Piper glanced at the snarling stone faces above the doorways. A shrine that radiates fear. Ares had two divine sons, didn't he? Phobos and Deimos. Annabeth shivered. Panic and fear. Percy met them once in Staten Island. Piper decided not to ask what the twin gods of panic and fear had been doing in Staten Island. I think those are their faces above the doors. This place isn't just a shrine to Ares; it's a temple of fear. Deep laughter echoed through the chamber. On Piper's right, a giant appeared. He didn't come through either doorway; he simply emerged from the darkness as if he'd been camouflaged against the wall. He was small for a giant, perhaps twenty-five feet tall. Which would give him enough room to swing the massive sledgehammer in his hands. His armor, his skin, and his dragon-scale legs were all the color of charcoal. Copper wires and smashed circuit boards glittered in the braids of his oil-black hair. Very good, child of Aphrodite, the giant smiled. This is indeed the temple of fear. And I am here to make you believers. Chapter Twenty, Piper. Piper knew fear, but this was different. Waves of terror crashed over her. Her joints turned to jelly. Her heart refused to beat. Her worst memories crowded her mind. Her father tied up and beaten on Mount Diablo. Percy and Jason fighting to the death in Kansas, the three of them drowning in the Nymphium in Rome, herself standing alone against Keone and the Boreads. Worst of all, 
she relived her conversation with her mother about what was to come. Paralyzed, she watched as the giant raised his sledgehammer to smash them flat. At the last moment, she leaped to one side, tackling Annabeth. The hammer cracked the floor, peppering Piper's back with stone shrapnel. The giant chuckled. Oh, that wasn't fair. He hefted his sledgehammer again. Annabeth, get up! Piper helped her to her feet. She pulled her toward the far end of the room, but Annabeth moved sluggishly, her eyes wide and unfocused. Piper understood why. The temple was amplifying their personal fears. Piper had seen some horrible things, but it was nothing compared to what Annabeth had experienced. If she was having flashbacks of Tartarus, enhanced and compounded with all her other bad memories, her mind wouldn't be able to cope. She might literally go insane. I'm here, Piper promised, filling her voice with reassurance. We will get out of this. The giant laughed. A child of Aphrodite leading a child of Athena? Now I've seen everything. How would you defeat me, girl? With makeup and fashion tips? A few months ago, that comment might have stung, but Piper was way past that. The giant lumbered toward them. Fortunately, he was slow and carrying a heavy hammer. Annabeth, trust me, Piper said. Uh, a plan, she stammered. I go left, you go right. If we... Annabeth, no plans. What? what No plans. Just follow me. The giant swung his hammer, but they dodged it easily. Piper leaped forward and slashed her sword across the back of the giant's knee. As the giant bellowed in outrage, Piper pulled Annabeth into the nearest tunnel. Immediately, they were engulfed in total darkness. Fools! The giant roared somewhere behind them. That is the wrong way! Keep moving! Piper held tight to Annabeth's hand. It's fine. Come on! She couldn't see anything. Even the glow of her sword was snuffed out. She barreled ahead anyway, trusting her emotions. From the echo of their footfalls, the space around them must have been a vast cavern, but she couldn't be sure. She simply went the direction that made her fear the sharpest. Piper, it's like the House of Night, Annabeth said. We should close our eyes. No, Piper said. Keep them open. We can't try to hide. The giant's voice came from somewhere in front of them. Lost forever. Swallowed by the darkness. Annabeth froze, forcing Piper to stop too. Why did we just plunge in? Annabeth demanded. We're lost. We did what he wanted us to. We should have bided our time, talked to the enemy, figured out a plan... That always works. Annabeth, I never ignore your advice. Piper kept her voice soothing. But this time I have to. We can't defeat this place with reason. You can't think your way out of your emotions. 
The giant's laughter echoed like a detonating depth charge. Despair, Annabeth Chase. I am Mimus, born to slay Hephaestus. I am the breaker of plans, the destroyer of the well-oiled machines. Nothing goes right in my presence. Maps are misread. Devices break. Data is lost. The finest minds turn to mush. I... I faced worse than you, Annabeth cried. Oh, I see. The giant sounded much closer now. Are you not afraid? Never. Of course we're afraid, Piper corrected. Terrified. The air moved. Just in time, Piper pushed Annabeth to one side. Crash! Suddenly, they were back in the circular room, the dim light almost blinding now. The giant stood close by, trying to yank his hammer out of the floor where he'd embedded it. Piper lunged and drove her blade into the giant's thigh. Mimus let go of the hammer and arched his back. Piper and Annabeth scrambled behind the chained statue of Ares, which still pulsed with a metallic heartbeat. Thump, thump, thump. The giant Mimus turned toward them. The wound on his leg was already closing. You cannot defeat me, he growled. In the last war, it took two gods to bring me down. I was born to kill Hephaestus, and would have done so if Ares hadn't ganged up on me as well. You should have stayed paralyzed in your fear. Your death would have been quicker. Days ago, when she faced Keone on the Argo too, Piper had started talking without thinking, following her heart no matter what her brain said. Now she did the same thing. She moved in front of the statue and faced the giant, though the rational part of her screamed, Run, you idiot! This temple, she said. The Spartans didn't chain Ares because they wanted his spirit to stay in their city. You think not? The giant's eyes glittered with amusement. He wrapped his hands around his sledgehammer and pulled it from the floor. This is the temple of my brothers, Deimos and Phobos. Piper's voice shook, but she didn't try to hide it. The Spartans came here to prepare for battle, to face their fears. Ares was chained to remind them that war has consequences. His power, the spirits of battle, the Makai, should never be unleashed unless you understand how terrible they are, unless you felt fear. Mimus laughed. A child of the love goddess lectures me about war. What do you know of the Makai? We'll see. Piper ran straight at the giant, unbalancing his stance. At the sight of her jagged blade coming at him, his eyes widened and he stumbled backward, cracking his head against the wall. A jagged fissure snaked upward in the stones. Dust rained from the ceiling. Piper, this place is unstable, Annabeth warned. If we don't leave, don't think about escape. Piper ran toward their rope, which dangled from the ceiling. She leaped as high as she could and cut it. 
Piper, have you lost your mind? Probably, she thought. But Piper knew this was the only way to survive. She had to go against reason, follow emotion instead, keep the giant off balance. That hurt. Mimas rubbed his head. You realize you cannot kill me without the help of a god, and Ares is not here. The next time I face that blustering idiot, I will smash him to bits. I wouldn't have had to fight him in the first place if that cowardly fool Damison had done his job. Annabeth let loose a guttural cry. Do not insult Damison! She ran at Mimas, who barely managed to parry her dragon blade with the handle of his hammer. He tried to grab Annabeth, and Piper lunged, slashing her blade across the side of the giant's face. Gah! Mimas staggered. A severed pile of dreadlocks fell to the floor along with something else, a large fleshy thing lying in a pool of golden ichor. My ear! Mimas wailed. Before he could recover his wits, Piper grabbed Annabeth's arm, and together they plunged into the second doorway. I will bring down this chamber, the giant thundered. The Earth Mother shall deliver me, but you shall be crushed. The floor shook. The sound of breaking stone echoed all around them. Piper, stop, Annabeth begged. How... How are you dealing with this? The fear, the anger. Don't try to control it. That's what the temple is about. You have to accept the fear, adapt to it, ride it like the rapids on a river. How do you know that? I don't know it. I just feel it. Somewhere nearby, a wall crumbled with a sound like an artillery blast. You cut the rope, Annabeth said. We're going to die down here. Piper cupped her friend's face. She pulled Annabeth forward until their foreheads touched. Through her fingertips, she could feel Annabeth's rapid pulse. Fear can't be reasoned with. Neither can hate. They're like love. They're almost identical emotions. That's why Ares and Aphrodite like each other. They're twin sons. Fear and panic were spawned from both war and love. But I don't... This doesn't make sense. No, Piper agreed. Stop thinking about it. Just feel. I hate that. I know. You can't plan for feelings. Like with Percy and your future. You can't control every contingency. You have to accept that. Let it scare you. Trust that it'll be okay anyway. Annabeth shook her head. I don't know if I can. Then for right now, concentrate on revenge for Damison. Revenge for Bob. A moment of silence. I'm good now. Great, because I need your help. We're going to run out there together. Then what? I have no idea. Gods, I hate it when you lead. Piper laughed, which surprised even her. Fear and love really were related. At that moment, she clung to the love she had for her friend. Come on. 
They ran in no particular direction and found themselves back in the shrine room, right behind the giant Mimas. They each slashed one of his legs and brought him to his knees. The giant howled. More chunks of stone tumbled from the ceiling. Weak mortals! Mimas struggled to stand. No plan of yours can defeat me! That's good, Piper said, because I don't have a plan. She ran toward the statue of Ares. Annabeth, keep our friend occupied. Oh, he's occupied. Gah! Piper stared at the cruel bronze face of the war god. The statue thrummed with a low metallic pulse. The spirits of battle, she thought. They're inside, waiting to be freed. But they weren't hers to unleash, not until she'd proven herself. The chamber shook again. More cracks appeared in the walls. Piper glanced at the stone carvings above the doorways, the scowling twin faces of fear and panic. My brothers, Piper said, sons of Aphrodite, I give you a sacrifice. At the feet of Ares, she set her cornucopia. The magic horn had become so attuned to her emotions it could amplify her anger, love, or grief and spew forth its bounty accordingly. She hoped that would appeal to the gods of fear, or maybe they would just appreciate some fresh fruits and vegetables in their diets. I'm terrified, she confessed. I hate doing this, but I accept that it's necessary. She swung her blade and took off the bronze statue's head. No! Mimas yelled. Flames roared up from the statue's severed neck. They swirled around Piper, filling the room with a firestorm of emotions. Hatred, bloodlust, and fear, but also love. Because no one could face battle without caring for something. Comrades, family, home. Piper held out her arms, and the Makai made her the center of their whirlwind. We will answer your call, they whispered in her mind. Once only, when you need us, destruction, waste, carnage shall answer. We shall complete your cure. The flames vanished along with the cornucopia, and the chained statue of Ares crumbled into dust. Foolish girl! Mimas charged her, Annabeth at his heels. The Makai have abandoned you! Or maybe they've abandoned you, Piper said. Mimas raised his hammer, but he'd forgotten about Annabeth. She jabbed him in the thigh, and the giant staggered forward, off balance. Piper stepped in calmly and stabbed him in the gut. Mimas crashed face-first in the nearest doorway. He turned over just as the stone face of panic cracked off the wall above him and toppled down for a one-ton kiss. The giant's cry was cut short. His body went still. Then he disintegrated into a twenty-foot pile of ash. Annabeth stared at Piper. What just happened? I'm not sure. Piper, you were amazing, but those fiery spirits you released. The Makai. 
How does that help us find the cure we're looking for? I don't know. They said I could summon them when the time comes. Maybe Artemis and Apollo can explain. A section of the wall calved like a glacier. Annabeth stumbled and almost slipped on the giant's severed ear. We need to get out of here. I'm working on it, Piper said. And, uh, I think this ear is your spoil of war. Gross. Would make a lovely shield. Shut up, Chase. Piper stared at the second doorway, which still had the face of fear above it. Thank you, brothers, for helping to kill the giant. I need one more favor. An escape. And believe me, I am properly terrified. I offer you this, uh, lovely ear as a sacrifice. The stone face made no answer. Another section of the wall peeled away. A starburst of cracks appeared in the ceiling. Piper grabbed Annabeth's hand. We're going through that doorway. If this works, we might find ourselves back on the surface. And if it doesn't? Piper looked up at the face of fear. Let's find out. The room collapsed around them as they plunged into the dark. Chapter 21 Reyna At least they didn't end up on another cruise ship. The jump from Portugal had landed them in the middle of the Atlantic, where Reyna spent her whole day on the Lido deck of the Azores Queen, shooing little kids off the Athena Parthenos, which they seemed to think was a water slide. Unfortunately, the next jump brought Reyna home. They appeared ten feet in the air, hovering over a restaurant courtyard that Reyna recognized. She and Nico dropped onto a large birdcage, which promptly broke, dumping them into a cluster of potted ferns along with three very alarmed parrots. Coach Hedge hit the canopy over a bar. The Athena Parthenos landed on her feet with a thump, flattening a patio table and flipping a dark green umbrella which settled onto the Nike statue in Athena's hand, so the goddess of wisdom looked like she was holding a tropical drink. Gah! Coach Hedge yelled. The canopy ripped, and he fell behind the bar with a crash of bottles and glasses. He recovered well. He popped up with a dozen miniature plastic swords in his hair, grabbed the soda gun, and served himself a drink. I like it! He tossed a wedge of pineapple into his mouth. But next time, kid, can we land on the floor and not ten feet above it? Nico dragged himself out of the ferns. He collapsed in the nearest chair and waved off a blue parrot that was trying to land on his head. After the fight with Lycaon, Nico had discarded his shredded aviator jacket. His black skull-patterned T-shirt wasn't in much better shape. Reyna had stitched up the gashes on his biceps, which gave Nico a slightly creepy Frankenstein look, but the cuts were still swollen and red. Unlike bites, werewolf claw marks wouldn't transmit lycanthropy, but Reyna knew firsthand that they healed slowly and burned like acid. I've got to sleep. Nico looked up in a daze. 
Are we safe? Raina scanned the courtyard. The place seemed deserted, though she didn't understand why. This time of night, it should have been packed. Above them, the evening sky glowed a murky terracotta, the same color as the building's walls. Ringing the atrium, the second-story balconies were empty, except for potted azaleas hanging from the white metal railings. Behind a wall of glass doors, the restaurant's interior was dark. The only sound was the fountain gurgling forlornly and the occasional squawk of a disgruntled parrot. This is Barachina, Reina said. What kind of bear? Hedge opened a jar of maraschino cherries and chugged them down. It's a famous restaurant, Reina said, in the middle of Old San Juan. They invented the piña colada here, back in the 1960s, I think. Nico pitched out of his chair, curled up on the floor, and started snoring. Coach Hedge belched. Well, it looks like we're staying for a while. If they haven't invented any new drinks since the 60s, they're overdue. I'll get to work. While Hedge rummaged behind the bar, Reyna whistled for Arm and Argentum. After their fight with the werewolves, the dogs looked a little worse for wear, but Reyna placed them on guard duty. She checked the street entrance to the atrium. The decorative ironwork gates were locked. A sign in Spanish and English announced that the restaurant was closed for a private party. That seemed odd, since the place was deserted. At the bottom of the sign were embossed initials. H-T-K. These bothered Reina, though she wasn't sure why. She peered through the gates. Calle Fortaleza was unusually quiet. The blue cobblestone pavement was free of traffic and pedestrians. The pastel-colored shop fronts were closed and dark. Was it Sunday or some sort of holiday? Reina's unease grew. Behind her, Coach Hedge whistled happily as he set up a row of blenders. The parrots roosted on the shoulders of the Athena Parthenos. Reina wondered whether the Greeks would be offended if their sacred statue arrived covered in tropical bird poop. Of all the places, Reina could have ended up. San Juan. Maybe it was a coincidence, but she feared not. Puerto Rico wasn't really on the way from Europe to New York. It was much too far south. Besides, Reina had been lending Nico her strength for days now. Perhaps she'd influenced him subconsciously. He was drawn to painful thoughts, fear, darkness. And Reina's darkest, most painful memory was San Juan. Her biggest fear? Coming back here. Her dogs picked up on her agitation. They prowled the courtyard, snarling at shadows. Poor Argentum turned in circles, trying to aim his sideways head so he could see out of his one ruby eye. Reina tried to concentrate on positive memories. She'd missed the sound of the little coqui frogs, singing around the neighborhood like a chorus of popping bottle caps. She'd missed the smell of the ocean, the blossoming magnolias and citrus trees, the fresh-baked bread from the local panaderias. Even the humidity felt comfortable and familiar, like the scented air from a dryer vent. Part of her wanted to open the gates and explore the city. 
She wanted to visit the Plaza de Armas, where the old men played dominoes, and the coffee kiosk sold espresso so strong it made your ears pop. She wanted to stroll down her old street, Calle San Jose, counting and naming the stray cats, making up a story for each one, the way she used to do with her sister. She wanted to break into Baracina's kitchen and cook up some real mofongo with fried plantains and bacon and garlic, a taste that would always remind her of Sunday afternoons, when she and Hilla could briefly escape the house and, if they were lucky, eat here in the kitchen, where the staff knew them and took pity on them. On the other hand, Reina wanted to leave immediately. She wanted to wake up Nico, no matter how tired he was, and force him to shadow travel out of here. Anywhere but San Juan. Being so close to her old house made Reina feel ratcheted tight like a catapult winch. She glanced at Nico. Despite the warm night, he shivered on the tile floor. She pulled a blanket out of her pack and covered him up. Reina no longer felt self-conscious about wanting to protect him. For better or worse, they shared a connection now. Each time they shadow-traveled, his exhaustion and torment washed over her, and she understood him a little better. Nico was devastatingly alone. He'd lost his big sister, Bianca. He'd pushed away all other demigods who'd tried to get close to him. His experiences at Camp Half-Blood, in the Labyrinth, and in Tartarus had left him scarred, afraid to trust anyone. Reina doubted she could change his feelings, but she wanted Nico to have support. All heroes deserved that. It was the whole point of the Twelfth Legion. You joined forces to fight for a higher cause. You weren't alone. You made friends and earned respect. Even when you mustered out, you had a place in the community. No demigod should have to suffer alone the way Nico did. Tonight was July 25th. Seven more days until August 1st. In theory, that was plenty of time to reach Long Island. Once they completed their mission, if they completed their mission, Reyna would make sure Nico was recognized for his bravery. She slipped off her backpack. She tried to place it under Nico's head as a makeshift pillow, but her fingers passed right through him as if he were a shadow. She recoiled her hand. Cold with dread, she tried again. This time, she was able to lift his neck and slide the pillow under. His skin felt cool, but otherwise normal. Had she been hallucinating? Nico had expended so much energy traveling through shadows, perhaps he was starting to fade permanently. If he kept pushing himself to the limit for seven more days... The sound of a blender startled her out of her thoughts. You want a smoothie? asked the coach. This one is pineapple, mango, orange, and banana, buried under a mound of shaved coconut. I call it the Hercules. I... I'm all right. Thanks. She glanced up at the balconies ringing the atrium. It still didn't seem right to her that the restaurant was empty. A private party, HTK. Coach, I think I'll scout the second floor. I don't like... A wisp of movement caught her eye. The balcony on the right, a dark shape. Above that, at the edge of the roof, 
Several more silhouettes appeared against the orange clouds. Reyna drew her sword, but it was too late. A flash of silver, a faint whoosh, and the point of a needle buried itself in her neck. Her vision blurred. Her limbs turned to spaghetti. She collapsed next to Nico. As her eyes dimmed, she saw her dogs running toward her, but they froze in mid-bark and toppled over. At the bar, the coach yelled, Hey! Another whoosh. The coach collapsed with a silver dart in his neck. Reyna tried to say, Nico, wake up! Her voice wouldn't work. Her body had been deactivated as completely as her metal dogs had. Dark figures lined the rooftop. Half a dozen leaped into the courtyard, silent and graceful. One leaned over Reyna. She could only make out a hazy smudge of gray. A muffled voice said, Take her. A cloth sack was wrestled over her head. Reyna wondered dimly if this was how she would die, without even a fight. Then it didn't matter. Several pairs of rough hands lifted her, like an unwieldy piece of furniture, and she drifted into unconsciousness. Chapter 22 Reyna The answer came to her before she was fully conscious. The initials on the sign at Barachina. H-T-K Not funny, Reyna muttered to herself. Not remotely funny. Years ago, Lupa had taught her how to sleep lightly, wake up alert, and be ready to attack. Now, as her senses returned, she took stock of her situation. The cloth sack still covered her head, but it didn't seem to be cinched around her neck. She was tied to a hard chair, wood by the feel of it. Cords were tight against the ribs. Her hands were bound behind her, but her legs were free at the ankles. Either her captors were sloppy, or they hadn't expected her to wake up so quickly. Reyna wriggled her fingers and toes. Whatever tranquilizer they'd used, the effects had worn off. Somewhere in front of her, footsteps echoed down a corridor. The sound got closer. Reyna let her muscles go slack. She rested her chin against her chest. A lock clicked. A door creaked open. Judging from the acoustics, Reyna was in a small room with brick or concrete walls, maybe a basement or a cell. One person entered the room. Reyna calculated the distance. No more than five feet. She surged upward, spinning so the chair legs smashed against her captor's body. The force broke the chair. Her captor fell with a painful grunt. Shouts from the corridor. More footsteps. Reyna shook the cloth sack off her head. She dropped into a backward roll, pulling her bound hands under her legs so her arms were in front of her. Her captor, a teen girl in gray camouflage, lay dazed on the floor, a knife at her belt. Reyna grabbed the knife and straddled her, pressing the blade against her captor's throat. Three more girls crowded the doorway. Two drew knives. The third knocked an arrow in her bow. For a moment, everyone froze. Her hostage's carotid artery pulsed under the blade. 
Wisely, the girl made no attempt to move. Reina ran scenarios on how she could overcome the three in the doorway. All of them wore gray camouflage T-shirts, faded black jeans, black athletic shoes, and utility belts, like they were going camping or hiking, or hunting. You're the hunters of Artemis, Reina realized. Take it easy, said the girl with the bow. Her ginger hair was shaved on the sides, long on top. She had the build of a professional wrestler. You've got the wrong impression. The girl on the floor exhaled, but Reina knew that trick, trying to loosen an enemy's hold. Reina pressed the knife tighter against the girl's throat. You've got the wrong impression, Reina said. If you think you can attack me and take me captive, where are my friends? Unharmed, right where you left them, the ginger girl promised. Look, it's three to one, and your hands are tied. You're right, Reina growled. Get another six of you in here, and it might be a fair fight. I demand to see your lieutenant, Thalia Grace. The ginger girl blinked. Her comrades gripped their knives uneasily. On the floor, Reina's hostage began to shake. Reina thought she might be having a fit. Then she realized the girl was laughing. Something funny? Reina asked. The girl's voice was a gravelly whisper. Jason told me you were good. He didn't say how good. Reina focused more carefully on her hostage. The girl looked about sixteen, with choppy black hair and startling blue eyes. Across her forehead glinted a circlet of silver. "You're Thalia," and I'd be happy to explain," Thalia said, "if you'd kindly not cut my throat." The hunters guided her through a maze of corridors. The walls were concrete blocks painted army green, devoid of windows. The only light came from dim fluorescence spaced every twenty feet. The passages twisted, turned, and doubled back, but the ginger-haired hunter Phoebe took the lead. She seemed to know where she was going. Thalia Grace limped along, holding her ribs where Reina had hit her with the chair. The hunter must have been in pain, but her eyes sparkled with amusement. Again, my apologies for abducting you. Thalia didn't sound very sorry. This lair is secret. The Amazons have certain protocols. The Amazons? You work for them? With them, Thalia corrected. We have a mutual understanding. Sometimes the Amazons send recruits our way. Sometimes, if we come across girls who don't wish to be maidens forever, we send them to the Amazons. The Amazons do not have such vows. One of the other hunters snorted in disgust. Keeping male slaves in collars and orange jumpsuits, I'd rather keep a pack of dogs any day. Their males aren't slaves, Kellen, Thalia chided, merely subservient. She glanced at Reina. The Amazons and hunters don't see eye to eye on everything, but since Gia began to stir, we have been cooperating closely, with Camp Jupiter and Camp Halfblood at each other's throats. Well. Someone has to deal with all the monsters. 
Our forces are spread across the entire continent. Raina massaged the rope marks on her wrists. I thought you told Jason you knew nothing of Camp Jupiter. That was true then, but those days are over, thanks to Hera's scheming. Thalia's expression turned serious. How is my brother? When I left him in Epirus, he was fine. Raina told her what she knew. She found Thalia's eyes distracting, electric blue, intense, and alert, so much like Jason's. Otherwise, the siblings looked nothing alike. Thalia's hair was choppy and dark. Her jeans were tattered, held together with safety pins. She wore metal chains around her neck and wrists, and her gray camo shirt sported a button that read, Punk is not dead. You are. Raina had always thought of Jason Grace as the all-American boy. Thalia looked more like the girl who robbed all-American boys at knife point in an alley. I hope he's still well, Thalia mused. A few nights ago, I dreamed about our mother. It wasn't pleasant. Then I got Nico's message in my dreams about Orion hunting you. That was even less pleasant. That's why you're here. You got Nico's message. Well, we didn't rush to Puerto Rico for a vacation. This is one of the Amazon's most secure strongholds. We took a gamble that we'd be able to intercept you. Intercept us? How? And why? In front of them, Phoebe stopped. The corridor dead-ended at a set of metal doors. Phoebe tapped on them with the butt of her knife, a complicated series of knocks, like Morse code. Thalia rubbed her bruised ribs. I'll have to leave you here. The hunters are patrolling the old city, keeping a lookout for Orion. I need to get back to the front lines. She held out her hand expectantly. My knife, please? Reyna handed it back. What about my own weapons? They'll be returned when you leave. I know it seems silly, the kidnapping and blindfolding and whatnot, but the Amazons take their security seriously. Last month, they had an incident at their main center in Seattle. Maybe you heard about it? A girl named Hazel Levesque stole a horse. The hunter Kellen grinned. Naomi and I saw the security footage. Legendary. Epic, agreed the third hunter. At any rate, Thalia said, we're keeping an eye on Nico and the satyr. Unauthorized males aren't allowed anywhere near this place, but we left them a note so they wouldn't worry. From her belt, Thalia unfolded a piece of paper. She handed it to Reyna. It was a photocopy of a handwritten note. I owe you one Roman Praetor. She will be returned safely. Sit tight. Otherwise, you'll be killed. XOX, the Hunters of Artemis. Reyna handed back the letter. Right. That won't worry them at all. Phoebe grinned. It's cool. I covered your Athena Parthenos with this new camouflage netting I designed. It should keep monsters, or even Orion, from finding it. Besides, if my guess is right, Orion isn't tracking the statue as much as he's tracking you. Reyna felt like she'd been punched between the eyes. How could you know that? 
Phoebe is my best tracker, Thalia said, and my best healer. And, well, she's generally right about most things. Most things, Phoebe protested. Thalia raised her hands in an I-give-up gesture. As for why we intercepted you, I'll let the Amazons explain. Phoebe, Kellen, Naomi, accompany Reyna inside. I have to see to our defenses. You're expecting a fight, Reyna noted. But you said this place was secret and secure. Thalia sheathed her knife. You don't know Orion. I wish we had more time, Preter. I'd like to hear about your camp and how you ended up there. You remind me so much of your sister, and yet... You know Hilla? Reyna asked. Is she safe? Thalia tilted her head. None of us are safe these days, Preter, so I really must go. Good hunting. Thalia disappeared down the corridor. The metal doors creaked open. The three hunters led Reyna through. After the claustrophobic tunnels, the size of the warehouse took Reyna's breath away. An airy of giant eagles could have done maneuvers under the vast ceiling. Three-story tall rows of shelves stretched into the distance. Robotic forklifts zipped through the aisles, retrieving boxes. Half a dozen young women in black pantsuits stood nearby, comparing notes on their tablet computers. In front of them were crates labeled Explosive Arrows and Greek Fire, 16-ounce Easy Open Pack, and Griffin Fillets, Free-Range Organic. Directly in front of Reyna, behind a conference table piled high with reports and bladed weapons, sat a familiar figure. Baby sister! Hilla rose. Here we are, home again, facing certain death again. We have to stop meeting like this. Chapter 23 Reyna Reyna's feelings weren't so much mixed. They were thrown into a blender with gravel and ice. Every time she saw her sister, she didn't know whether to hug her, cry, or walk away. Of course, she loved Hilla. Reyna would have been dead many times over if not for her sister. But their past together was beyond complicated. Hilla walked around the table. She looked good in her black leather pants and black tank top. Around her waist glittered a cord of gold labyrinthine links, the belt of the Amazon queen. She was 22 now, but she could have been mistaken for Reyna's twin. They had the same long, dark hair, the same brown eyes. They even wore the same silver ring with the torch and spear emblem of their mother, Bologna. The most obvious difference between them was the long white scar on Hilla's forehead. It had faded over the last four years. Anyone who didn't know better might have mistaken it for a worry line. But Reyna remembered the day Hilla got that scar in a duel aboard the pirate ship. Well, Hilla prompted, no warm words for your sister? Thank you for having me abducted, Reyna said. For shooting me with a tranquilizer dart, putting a bag over my head, and tying me to a chair. Hilla rolled her eyes. Rules are rules. As a preter, you should understand that. 
This distribution center is one of our most important bases. We have to control access. I can't make exceptions, especially not for my family. I think you just enjoyed it. That too. Reyna wondered if her sister was as cool and collected as she seemed. She found it amazing and a little scary how quickly Hilla had adapted to her new identity. Six years ago, she'd been a scared big sister, doing her best to shield Reyna from their father's rage. Her main skills had been running and finding them places to hide. Then, on Circe's island, Hilla had worked hard to be noticed. She wore flashy clothes and makeup. She smiled and laughed and always stayed perky, as if acting happy would make her happy. She'd become one of Circe's favorite attendants. After their island sanctuary burned, they were taken prisoner aboard the pirate's ship. Again, Hilla changed. She dueled for their freedom, out-pirated the pirates, gained the crew's respect so well that Blackbeard finally put them ashore, lest Hilla take over his ship. Now she'd reinvented herself again as queen of the Amazons. Of course, Reyna understood why her sister was such a chameleon. If she kept changing, she could never fossilize into the thing their father had become. Those initials on the reservation sign at Barachina... Reyna said. H-T-K. Hilla twice kill. Your new nickname. A little joke? Just checking to see if you were paying attention. You knew we would land in that courtyard. How? Hilla shrugged. Shadow travel is magic. Several of my followers are daughters of Hecate. It was a simple enough matter for them to pull you off course especially since you and I share a connection. Reyna tried to keep her anger in check. Hilla, of all people, should know how she would feel about being dragged back to Puerto Rico. You went to a lot of trouble, Reyna noted. The Queen of the Amazons and the Lieutenant of Artemis both rushing to Puerto Rico on a moment's notice to intercept us. I'm guessing that's not because you missed me. Phoebe, the ginger-haired hunter, chuckled. She's smart. Of course, Hilla said. I taught her everything she knows. Other Amazons started to gather around, probably sensing a potential fight. Amazons loved violent entertainment almost as much as pirates did. Orion, Reyna guessed. That's what brought you here. His name got your attention. I couldn't let him kill you, Hilla said. It's more than that. Your mission to escort the Athena Parthenos is important, but it's more than that, too. This is personal for you and for the hunters. What's your game? Hilla ran her thumbs along her golden belt. Orion is a problem. Unlike the other giants, Orion has been walking the earth for centuries. He takes special interest in killing Amazons, or hunters, or any female who dares to be strong. Why would he want that? A ripple of dread seemed to pass through the girls around her. Hilla looked at Phoebe. Do you want to explain? You were there. The hunter's smile faded. In the ancient times, Orion joined the hunters. He was Lady Artemis' best friend. He had no rivals at the bow, 
except for the goddess herself and perhaps her brother, Apollo. Raina shivered. Phoebe looked no more than fourteen. To think she knew Orion three or four thousand years ago. What went wrong? she asked. Phoebe's ears reddened. Orion crossed the line. He fell in love with Artemis. Hilla sniffed. Always happens with men. They promise friendship. They promise to treat you as an equal. In the end, all they want is to possess you. Phoebe picked at her thumbnail. Behind her, the other two hunters, Naomi and Kellen, shifted uneasily. Lady Artemis rebuffed him, of course, Phoebe said. Orion became bitter. He started going on longer and longer trips by himself in the wilderness. Finally, I'm not sure what happened. One day, Artemis came back to camp and told us Orion had been killed. She refused to speak of it. Hilla frowned, which accentuated the white scar across her brow. Whatever the case, when Orion rose again from Tartarus, he was Artemis's bitterest enemy. No one can hate you with more intensity than someone who used to love you. Reyna understood that. She thought back to a conversation she'd had with the goddess Aphrodite two years ago in Charleston. If he's such a problem, Reyna said, why doesn't Artemis simply slay him again? Phoebe grimaced. Easier said than done. Orion is sneaky. Whenever Artemis is with us, he stays far away. Whenever we hunters are on our own, like we are now, he strikes without warning and disappears again. Our last lieutenant, Zoe Nightshade, spent centuries trying to track him down and kill him. The Amazons have also tried, Hilla said. Orion doesn't distinguish between us and the hunters. I think we all remind him too much of Artemis. He sabotages our warehouses, disrupts our distribution centers, kills our warriors. In other words, Reyna said dryly, he's getting in the way of your plans for world domination. Hilla shrugged. Exactly. That's why you rushed here to intercept me, Reyna said. You knew Orion would be right behind me. You're setting up an ambush. I'm the bait. The other girls all found somewhere else to look besides Reyna's face. Oh, please, Reyna chided. Don't develop a guilty conscience now. It's a good plan. How do we proceed? Hilla gave her comrades a lopsided smile. I told you my sister was tough. Phoebe, you want to explain the details? The hunter shouldered her bow. Like I said, I believe Orion is tracking you, not the Athena Parthenos. He seems especially good at sensing the presence of female demigods. I guess you'd say we're his natural prey. Charming, Reyna said. So my friends, Nico and Gleason Hedge, are they safe? I still don't see why you travel with males, Phoebe grumbled. But my guess is that they are safer without you around. I did my best to camouflage your statue. With luck, Orion will follow you here straight into our line of defenses. And then? Reyna asked. Hilla gave her the sort of cold smile that used to make Blackbeard's pirates nervous. Thalia and most of her hunters are scouting the perimeter of Viejo San Juan. 
As soon as Orion gets close, we'll know. We've set traps at every approach. I have my best fighters on alert. We'll snare the giant. Then, one way or another, we'll send him back to Tartarus. Can he be killed? Reyna asked. I thought most giants could only be destroyed by a god and demigod working together. We intend to find out, Phyllis said. Once Orion is taken down, your quest will be much easier. We'll send you on your way with our blessings. We could use more than your blessings, Reyna said. Amazons ship things all around the world. Why not provide safe transport for the Athena Parthenos? Get us to Camp Half-Blood before August 1st. I can't, Hilla said. If I could, sister, I would, but surely you felt the anger radiating from the statue. We Amazons are honorary daughters of Ares. The Athena Parthenos would never tolerate our interference. Besides, you know how the fates operate. For your quest to succeed, you have to deliver the statue personally. Reyna must have looked crestfallen. Phoebe shoulder-bumped her like an over-friendly cat. Hey, not so glum. We'll help you as much as we can. The Amazon Service Department has repaired those metal dogs of yours. And we have some cool parting gifts. Kellen handed Phoebe a leather satchel. Phoebe rummaged inside. Let's see. Healing potions? Tranquilizer darts like the ones we used on you? Hmm, what else? Oh, yeah! Phoebe triumphantly produced a rectangle of folded silvery cloth. A handkerchief? Reyna asked. Better. Back up a little. Phoebe tossed the cloth on the floor. Instantly, it expanded into a ten-by-ten ten camping tent. It's air-conditioned, Phoebe said. Sleeps four. It has a buffet table and sleeping bags inside. Whatever extra gear you put in it will collapse with the tent. Um... Within reason. Don't try to stick your giant statue in there. Kellen snickered. If your male traveling companions get annoying, you could always leave them inside. Naomi frowned. That wouldn't work, would it? Anyway, Phoebe said, these tents are great. I have one just like it. Use it all the time. When you're ready to close it up, the command word is Acteon. The tent collapsed into a tiny rectangle. Phoebe picked it up, stuffed it into the satchel, and handed the bag to Reyna. I... I don't know what to say, Reyna stammered. Thank you. Aw, Phoebe shrugged. It's the least I can do for... Fifty feet away, a side door banged open. An Amazon ran straight toward Hilla. The newcomer wore a black pantsuit, her long auburn hair pulled back in a ponytail. Reyna recognized her from the battle at Camp Jupiter. Kinsey, isn't it? The girl gave her a distracted nod. Preter? She whispered something in Hilla's ear. Hilla's expression hardened. I see. She glanced at Reyna. Something is wrong. We've lost contact with the outer defenses. I'm afraid Orion... Behind Reyna, the metal doors exploded. Chapter 24 Reyna
Reyna reached for her sword, then realized she didn't have one. Get out of here! Phoebe readied her bow. Kellen and Naomi ran to the smoking doorway, only to be cut down by black arrows. Phoebe screamed in rage. She returned fire as Amazons rushed forward with shields and swords. Reyna! Hilla pulled her arm. We must leave. We can't just... My guards will buy you time, Hilla shouted. Your quest must succeed. Reyna hated it, but she ran after Hilla. They reached the side door and Reyna glanced back. Dozens of wolves, gray wolves like the ones in Portugal, surged into the warehouse. Amazons hurried to intercept them. The smoke-filled doorway was piled with bodies of the fallen. Kellen, Naomi, Phoebe. The ginger-haired hunter who'd lived for thousands of years now sprawled, unmoving. Her eyes wide with shock, an oversized black and red arrow buried in her gut. The Amazon Kinsey charged forward, long knives flashing. She leaped over the bodies and into the smoke. Hilla pulled Reyna into the passageway. Together, they ran. They'll all die, Reyna yelled. There must be something. Don't be stupid, sister. Hilla's eyes were bright with tears. Orion outfoxed us. He's turned the ambush into a massacre. All we can do now is hold him back while you escape. You must get that statue to the Greeks and defeat Gia. She led Reyna up a flight of stairs. They navigated a maze of corridors, then rounded a corner into a locker room. They found themselves face to face with a large gray wolf, but before the beast could even snarl, Hilla punched it between the eyes. The wolf crumpled. Over here! Hilla ran to the nearest row of lockers. Your weapons are inside. Hurry! Reyna grabbed her knife, her sword, and her pack. Then she followed her sister up a circular metal stairwell. The top dead-ended at the ceiling. Hilla turned and gave her a stern look. I won't have time to explain this, all right? Stay strong. Stay close. Reyna wondered what could be worse than the scene they'd just left. Hilla pushed open the trap door and they climbed through, into their old home. The great room was just as Reyna remembered. Opaque skylights glowed on the twenty-foot ceilings. The stark white walls were devoid of decoration. The furniture was oak, steel, and white leather, impersonal and masculine. Both sides of the room were overhung with terraces, which had always made Reyna feel like she was being watched, because often she was. Their father had done everything he could to make the centuries-old hacienda feel like a modern home. He'd added the skylights, painted everything white to make it brighter and airier, but he'd only succeeded in making the place look like a well-groomed corpse in a new suit. The trapdoor had opened into the massive fireplace. Why they even had a fireplace in Puerto Rico, Reyna had never understood. But she and Hilla used to pretend the hearth was a secret hideout where their father couldn't find them. They used to imagine they could step inside and go to other places. Now, Hilla had made that true. She had linked her underground lair to their childhood home. Hilla! I told you we don't have time! But I own the building now.
I put the deed in my name. You did what? I was tired of running from the past, Reyna. I decided to reclaim it. Reyna stared at her, dumbfounded. You could reclaim a lost phone or a bag at the airport. You could even reclaim a hazardous waste dump. But this house? And what had happened here? There was no reclaiming that. Sister, Hilla said, we're wasting time. Are you coming or not? Reyna eyed the balconies, half expecting luminous shapes to flicker at the railing. Have you seen them? Some of them. Papa? Of course not, Hilla snapped. You know he's gone for good. I don't know anything of the sort. How could you come back? Why? To understand, Hilla shouted. Don't you want to know how it happened to him? No, you can't learn anything from ghosts, Hilla. You of all people should realize... I'm leaving, Hilla said. Your friends are a few blocks away. Are you coming with me, or should I tell them you died because you got lost in the past? I'm not the one who took possession of this place. Hilla turned on her heel and marched out the front door. Reyna looked around one more time. She remembered her last day here, when she was ten years old. She could almost hear her father's angry roar echoing through the great room, the chorus of wailing ghosts on the balconies. She ran for the exit. She burst into warm afternoon sunlight and found that the street hadn't changed. The crumbling pastel houses, the blue cobblestones, dozens of cats sleeping under cars or in the shade of banana trees. Reyna might have felt nostalgic, except that her sister stood a few feet away, facing Orion. Well now, the giant smiled. Both daughters of Bologna together. Excellent. Reyna felt personally offended. She had worked up an image of Orion as a towering, ugly demon, even worse than Polybides, the giant who had attacked Camp Jupiter. Instead, Orion could have passed for human, a tall, muscular, handsome human. His skin was the color of wheat toast, his dark hair was undercut, swept into spikes on top. With his black leather breeches and jerkin, his hunting knife, and his bow and quiver, he might have been Robin Hood's evil, better-looking brother. Only his eyes ruined the image. At first glance, he appeared to be wearing military night-vision goggles. Then Reyna realized they weren't goggles. They were the work of Hephaestus, bronze mechanical eyes embedded in the giant's sockets. Focusing rings spun and clicked as he regarded Reyna. Targeting lasers flashed green to red. Reyna got the uncomfortable impression he was seeing more than her form, her heat signature, her heart rate, her level of fear. At his side, he held a black composite bow, almost as fancy as his eyes. Multiple strings ran through a series of pulleys that looked like miniature steam train wheels. The grip was polished bronze, studded with dials and buttons. He had no arrow knocked. He made no threatening moves. He smiled so dazzlingly, it was hard to remember he was an enemy, someone who'd killed at least half a dozen hunters and Amazons to get here. Hilla drew her knives. Reyna, go. I will deal with this monster. 
Orion chuckled. Hilla twice kill. You have courage. So did your lieutenants. They are dead. Hilla took a step forward. Reyna grabbed her arm. Orion, she said. You have enough Amazon blood on your hands. Perhaps it's time you try a Roman. The giant's eyes clicked and dilated. Red laser dots floated across Reyna's breastplate. Ah, the young Preter. I admit, I've been curious. Before I slay you, perhaps you'll enlighten me. Why would a child of Rome go to such lengths to help the Greeks? You have forfeited your rank, abandoned your legion, made yourself an outlaw. And for what? Jason Grace scorned you. Percy Jackson refused you. Haven't you been... What's the word? Dumped enough? Raina's ears buzzed. She recalled Aphrodite's warning two years ago in Charleston. You will not find love where you wish or where you hope. No demigod shall heal your heart. She forced herself to meet the giant's gaze. I don't define myself by the boys who may or may not like me. Brave words. The giant's smile was infuriating. But you are no different from the Amazons, or the Hunters, or Artemis herself. You speak of strength and independence. As soon as you face a man of true prowess, your confidence crumbles. You feel threatened by my dominance, and how it attracts you. So you run, or you surrender, or you die. Hilla shrugged off Reyna's hand. I will kill you, giant! I will chop you into pieces so small. Hilla, Reyna interrupted. Whatever else happened here, she could not watch her sister die. Reyna had to keep the giant focused on her. Orion, you claimed to be strong, yet you couldn't keep the vows of the hunt. You died rejected, and now you're running errands for your mother. So tell me again, how exactly are you threatening... Orion's jaw muscles clenched. His smile became thinner and colder. A good try, he admitted. You're hoping to unbalance me. You think perhaps if you keep me talking, reinforcements will save you. Alas, Preter, there are no reinforcements. I burned your sister's underground lair with her own Greek fire. No one survived. Hilla roared and attacked. Orion hit her with the butt of his bow. She flew backward into the street. Orion pulled an arrow from his quiver. Stop, Reyna yelled. Her heart hammered in her ribcage. She needed to find the giant's weakness. Burachina was only a few blocks away. If they could make it that far, Nico might be able to shadow travel them away. And the hunters couldn't all be dead. They'd been patrolling the entire perimeter of the old city. Surely some of them were still out there. Orion, you asked what motivates me. She kept her voice level. Don't you want your answer before you kill us? Surely it must puzzle you why women keep rejecting a big, handsome guy like you. The giant knocked his arrow. Now you have mistaken me for a narcissus. I cannot be flattered. Of course not, Reyna said. Hilla rose with a murderous look on her face, but Reyna reached out with her senses, trying to share with her sister the most difficult kind of strength, restraint. 
Still, it must infuriate you. First you were dumped by a mortal princess. Merope, Orion sneered. A beautiful girl, but stupid. If she'd had any sense, she would have understood I was flirting with her. Let me guess, Reyna said. She screamed and called for the guards instead. I was without my weapons at the time. You don't bring your bow and knives when you're courting a princess. The guards took me easily. Her father, the king, had me blinded and exiled. Just above Reyna's head, a pebble skittered across a clay-tiled roof. It might have been her imagination, but she remembered that sound from the many nights Hilla would sneak out of her own locked room and creep across the roof to check on her. It took all of Reyna's willpower not to glance up. But you got new eyes, she said to the giant. Hephaestus took pity on you. Yes. Orion's gaze became unfocused. Reyna could tell because the laser targets disappeared from her chest. I ended up on Delos, where I met Artemis. Do you know how strange it is to meet your mortal enemy and end up being attracted to her? He laughed. Praetor, what am I saying? Of course you know. Perhaps you feel for the Greeks as I felt for Artemis. A guilty fascination. An admiration that turns to love. But too much love is poison. Especially when that love is not returned. If you do not understand that already, Reina Ramirez Ariano, you soon will. Hilla limped forward, her knives still in hand. Sister, why do you let this beast talk? Let's put him down. Can you? Orion mused. Many have tried. Even Artemis's own brother, Apollo, was not able to kill me back in the ancient times. He had to use trickery to get rid of me. He didn't like you hanging out with his sister? Reyna listened for more sounds from the roofs, but heard nothing. Apollo was jealous. The giant's fingers curled around his bowstring. He drew it back, setting the bow's wheels and pulleys spinning. He feared I might charm Artemis into forgetting her vows of maidenhood. And who knows, without Apollo's interference, perhaps I would have. She would have been happier. As your servant, Hilla growled, your meek little housewife? It hardly matters now, Orion said. At any rate, Apollo inflicted me with madness, a bloodlust to kill all the beasts of the earth. I slaughtered thousands before my mother, Gia, finally put a stop to my rampage. She summoned a giant scorpion from the earth. It stabbed me in the back and its poison killed me. I owe her for that. You owe Gia, Reyna said, for killing you. Orion's mechanical pupils spiraled into tiny glowing points. My mother showed me the truth. I was fighting against my own nature and it brought me nothing but misery. Giants are not meant to love mortals or gods. Gia helped me accept what I am. Eventually, we all must return home, Praetor. We must embrace our past, no matter how bitter and dark. He nodded his chin toward the villa behind her. Just as you have done. You have your own share of ghosts, eh? Reyna drew her sword. You can't learn anything from ghosts, 
she had told her sister. Perhaps she couldn't learn anything from giants either. This is not my home, she said, and we are not alike. I've seen the truth. The giant sounded truly sympathetic. You cling to the fantasy that you can make your enemies love you. You cannot, Reyna. There is no love for you at Camp Half-Blood. Aphrodite's words echoed in her head. No demigod shall heal your heart. Reyna studied the giant's handsome, cruel face, his glowing, mechanical eyes. For a terrible moment, she could understand how even a goddess, even an eternal maiden like Artemis, might fall for Orion's honeyed words. I could have killed you twenty times by now, the giant said. You realize that, don't you? Let me spare you. A simple show of faith is all I need. Tell me where the statue is. Reyna almost dropped her sword. Where the statue is. Orion hadn't located the Athena Parthenos. The hunter's camouflage had worked. All this time, the giant had been tracking Reyna, which meant that even if she died right now, Nico and Coach Hedge might stay safe. The quest was not doomed. She felt as if she'd shed a hundred pounds of armor. She laughed. The sound echoed down the cobblestone street. Phoebe outsmarted you, she said. By tracking me, you lost the statue. Now my friends are free to continue their mission. Orion curled his lip. Oh, I will find them, Preter, after I deal with you. Then I suppose, Reyna said, we will have to deal with you first. That is my sister, Hilla said proudly. Together, they charged. The giant's first shot would have skewered Reyna, but Hilla was fast. She sliced the arrow out of the air and lunged at Orion. Reyna stabbed at his chest. The giant intercepted both of their attacks with his bow. He kicked Hilla backward into the hood of an old Chevy. Half a dozen cats scattered from underneath it. The giant spun, a dagger suddenly in his hand, and Reyna just managed to dodge the blade. She stabbed again, ripping through his leather jerkin, but only managed to graze his chest. You fight well, Preter, he admitted, but not well enough to live. Reyna willed her blade to extend into a pillum. My death means nothing. If her friends could continue their quest in peace, she was fully prepared to go down fighting. But first, she intended to hurt this giant so badly he would never forget her name. What about your sister's death? Orion asked. Does that mean something? Faster than Reyna could blink, he sent an arrow flying toward Hilla's chest. A scream built in Reyna's throat, but somehow Hilla caught the arrow. Hilla slid off the hood of the car and snapped the arrow with one hand. I am the queen of the Amazons, you idiot. I wear the royal belt. With the strength it gives me, I will avenge the Amazons you killed today. Hilla grabbed the front fender of the Chevy and flipped the entire car toward Orion, as easily as if she were splashing him with water in a swimming pool. The Chevy sandwiched Orion against the wall of the nearest house. Stucco cracked. A banana tree toppled. More cats fled. 
Reyna ran toward the wreckage, but the giant bellowed and shoved away the car. You will die together, he promised. Two arrows appeared knocked in his bow, the string fully drawn back. Then the rooftops exploded with noise. Die! Gleason Hedge dropped directly behind Orion, smacking his baseball bat over the giant's head so hard the Louisville slugger cracked in half. At the same time, Nico D'Angelo dropped in front. He slashed his Stygian sword across the giant's bowstring, causing pulleys and gears to zip and creak, the string recoiling with hundreds of pounds of force until it whacked Orion in the nose like a hydraulic bullwhip. Ow! Orion staggered backward, dropping his bow. Hunters of Artemis appeared along the rooftops, shooting Orion full of silver arrows until he resembled a glowing hedgehog. He staggered blindly, holding his nose, his face streaming with golden ichor. Someone grabbed Reyna's arm. Come on! Thalia Grace had returned. Go with her! Hilla ordered. Reyna's heart felt like it was shattering. Sister, you have to leave now. It was exactly what Hilla had said to her six years ago, the night they escaped their father's house. I'll delay Orion as long as possible. Hilla grabbed one of the giant's legs. She yanked him off balance and tossed him several blocks down the Calle San Jose to the general consternation of several dozen more cats. The hunters ran after him along the rooftops, shooting arrows that exploded in Greek fire, wreathing the giant in flames. Your sister's right, Thalia said. You need to go. Nico and Hedge fell in alongside her, both looking very pleased with themselves. They had apparently gone shopping at the Baracina souvenir shop, where they'd replaced their dirty, tattered shirts with loud tropical numbers. Nico. Reyna said. You look... Not a word about the shirt, he warned. Not one word. Why did you come looking for me? She demanded. You could have gotten away free. The giant has been tracking me. If you had just left... You're welcome, Cupcake, the coach grumbled. We weren't about to leave without you. Now let's get out of... He glanced over Reyna's shoulder, and his voice faltered. Reyna turned. Behind her, the second-story balconies of her family house were crowded with glowing figures, a man with a forked beard and rusted conquistador armor, another bearded man in 18th-century pirate clothes, his shirt peppered with gunshot holes, a lady in a bloody nightgown, a U.S. Navy captain in his dress whites, and a dozen more Reyna knew from her childhood all of them glaring at her accusingly, their voices whispering in her mind. Traitor. Murderer. No. Reyna felt like she was ten years old again. She wanted to curl up in the corner of her room and press her hands over her ears to stop the whispering. Nico took her arm. Reyna, who are they? What do they... I can't, she pleaded. I... I can't. She'd spent so many years building a dam inside her to hold back the fear. Now it broke. Her strength washed away. 
It's all right. Nico gazed up at the balconies. The ghosts disappeared, but Reyna knew they weren't really gone. They were never really gone. We'll get you out of here, Nico promised. Let's move. Thalia took Reyna's other arm. The four of them ran for the restaurant and the Athena Parthenos. Behind them, Reyna heard Orion roaring in pain, Greek fire exploding. And in her mind, the voices still whispered, Murderer, traitor, you can never flee your crime. Chapter 25 Jason Jason rose from his deathbed so he could drown with the rest of the crew. The ship was tilting so violently he had to climb the floor to get out of sickbay. The hull creaked. The engine groaned like a dying water buffalo. Cutting through the roar of the wind, the goddess Nike screamed from the stables, You can do better, Storm! Give me a hundred and ten percent! Jason climbed the stairs to the middle deck. His legs shook, his head spun. The ship pitched to port, knocking him against the opposite wall. Hazel stumbled out of her cabin, hugging her stomach. I hate the ocean. When she saw him, her eyes widened. What are you doing out of bed? I'm going up there, he insisted. I can help. Hazel looked like she wanted to argue. Then the ship tilted to starboard, and she staggered toward the bathroom, her hand over her mouth. Jason fought his way to the stairs. He hadn't been out of bed in a day and a half, ever since the girls got back from Sparta, and he'd unexpectedly collapsed. His muscles rebelled at the effort. His gut felt like Michael Varus was standing behind him, repeatedly stabbing him and yelling, Die like a Roman! Die like a Roman! Jason forced down the pain. He was tired of people taking care of him, whispering how worried they were. He was tired of dreaming about being a shish kebab. He'd spent enough time nursing the wound in his gut. Either it would kill him or it wouldn't. He wasn't going to wait around for the wound to decide. He had to help his friends. Somehow, he made it above deck. What he saw there made him almost as nauseous as Hazel. A wave the size of a skyscraper crashed over the forward deck, washing the front crossbows and half the port railing out to sea. The sails were ripped to shreds. Lightning flashed all around, hitting the sea like spotlights. Horizontal rain blasted Jason's face. The clouds were so dark, he honestly couldn't tell if it was day or night. The crew was doing what they could, which wasn't much. Leo had lashed himself to the console with a bungee cord harness. That might have seemed like a good idea when he rigged it up, but every time a wave hit, he was washed away, then smacked back into his control board like a human paddle ball. Piper and Annabeth were trying to save the rigging. Since Sparta, they'd become quite a team, able to work together without even talking, which was just as well, since they couldn't have heard each other over the storm. Frank... At least Jason assumed it was Frank, had turned into a gorilla. He was swinging upside down off the starboard rail, using his massive strength and his flexible feet to hang on while he untangled some broken oars. Apparently, 
The crew was trying to get the ship airborne, but even if they managed to take off, Jason wasn't sure the sky would be any safer. Even Festus, the figurehead, was trying to help. He spewed fire at the rain, though that didn't seem to discourage the storm. Only Percy was having much luck. He stood by the center mast, his hands extended like he was on a tightrope. Every time the ship tilted, he pushed in the opposite direction, and the hull stabilized. He summoned giant fists of water from the ocean to slam into the larger waves before they could reach the deck, so it looked like the ocean was hitting itself repeatedly in the face. With the storm as bad as it was, Jason realized the ship would have already capsized or been smashed to bits if Percy wasn't on the job. Jason staggered toward the mast. Leo yelled something, probably, Go downstairs! But Jason only waved back. He made it to Percy's side and grabbed his shoulder. Percy nodded like, Sup? He didn't look shocked or demand that Jason go back to sickbay, which Jason appreciated. Percy could stay dry if he concentrated, but obviously he had bigger things to worry about right now. His dark hair was plastered to his face. His clothes were soaked and ripped. He shouted something in Jason's ear, but Jason could only make out a few words. Thing down! Stop it! Percy pointed over the side. Something is causing the storm? Jason asked. Percy grinned and tapped his ears. Clearly, he couldn't hear a word. He made a gesture with his hand like diving overboard. Then he tapped Jason on the chest. You want me to go? Jason felt kind of honored. Everybody else had been treating him like a glass vase, but Percy, well, he seemed to figure that if Jason was on deck, he was ready for action. Happy to, Jason shouted. But I can't breathe underwater. Percy shrugged. Sorry, can't hear you. Then Percy ran to the starboard rail, pushed another massive wave away from the ship, and jumped overboard. Jason glanced at Piper and Annabeth. They both clung to the rigging, staring at him in shock. Piper's expression said, Are you out of your mind? He gave her an okay sign, partly to assure her that he would be fine, which he wasn't sure about, partly to agree that he was in fact crazy, which he was sure about. He staggered to the railing and looked up at the storm. Winds raged. Clouds churned. Jason sensed an entire army of venti swirling above him, too angry and agitated to take physical form, but hungry for destruction. He raised his arm and summoned a lasso of wind. Jason had learned long ago that the best way to control a crowd of bullies was to pick the meanest, biggest kid and force him into submission. Then the others would fall in line. He lashed out with his wind rope, searching for the strongest, most ornery Ventus in the storm. He lassoed a nasty patch of storm cloud and pulled it in. You're serving me today. Howling in protest, the Ventus encircled him. The storm above the ship seemed to lessen just a bit, as if the other Venti were thinking, Oh, crud, that guy means business. Jason levitated off the deck, encased in his own miniature tornado. Spinning like a corkscrew, he plunged into the water. 
Jason assumed things would be calmer underwater. Not so much. Of course, that could have been due to his mode of travel. Riding a cyclone to the bottom of the ocean definitely gave him some unexpected turbulence. He dropped and swerved with no apparent logic, his ears popping, his stomach pressed against his ribs. Finally, he drifted to a stop next to Percy, who stood on a ledge jutting over a deeper abyss. Hey, Percy said. Jason could hear him perfectly, though he wasn't sure how. What's going on? In his Ventus air cocoon, his own voice sounded like he was talking through a vacuum cleaner. Percy pointed into the void. Wait for it. Three seconds later, a shaft of green light swept through the darkness like a spotlight, then disappeared. Something's down there, Percy said, stirring up this storm. He turned and sized up Jason's tornado. Nice outfit. Can you hold it together if we go deeper? I have no idea how I'm doing this, Jason said. Okay, Percy said. Well, just don't get knocked unconscious. Shut up, Jackson. Percy grinned. Let's see what's down there. They sank so deep that Jason couldn't see anything except Percy swimming next to him in the dim light of their gold and bronze blades. Every so often, the green searchlight shot upward. Percy swam straight toward it. Jason's ventus crackled and roared, straining to escape. The smell of ozone made him lightheaded, but he kept his shell of air intact. At last, the darkness lessened below them. Soft white luminous patches, like schools of jellyfish, floated before Jason's eyes. As he approached the seafloor, he realized the patches were glowing fields of algae surrounding the ruins of a palace. Silt swirled through empty courtyards with abalone floors. Barnacle-covered Greek columns marched into the gloom. In the center of the complex rose a citadel larger than Grand Central Station, its walls encrusted with pearls, its domed golden roof cracked open like an egg. Atlantis? Jason asked. That's a myth, Percy said. Uh, don't we deal in myths? No, I mean, it's a made-up myth not like an actual true myth. So this is why Annabeth is the brains of the operation, then. Shut up, Grace. They floated through the broken dome and down into shadows. This place seems familiar. Percy's voice became edgy. Almost like I've been here. The green spotlight flashed directly below them, blinding Jason. He dropped like a stone, touching down on the smooth marble floor. When his vision cleared, he saw that they weren't alone. Standing before them was a twenty-foot-tall woman in a flowing green dress, cinched at the waist with a belt of abalone shells. Her skin was as luminous white as the fields of algae. Her hair swayed and glowed like jellyfish tendrils. Her face was beautiful but unearthly, her eyes too bright, her features too delicate, her smile too cold, as if she'd been studying human smiles and hadn't quite mastered the art. Her hands rested on a disc of polished green metal, about six feet in diameter, sitting on a bronze tripod. 
It reminded Jason of a steel drum he'd once seen a street performer play at the Embarcadero in San Francisco. The woman turned the metal disc like a steering wheel. A shaft of green light shot upward, churning the water, shaking the walls of the old palace. Shards from the domed ceiling broke and tumbled down in slow motion. You're making the storm, Jason said. Indeed I am. The woman's voice was melodic, yet it had a strange resonance, as if it extended past the human range of hearing. Pressure built between Jason's eyes. His sinuses felt like they might explode. Okay, I'll bite, Percy said. Who are you and what do you want? The woman turned toward him. Why, I am your sister, Perseus Jackson, and I wanted to meet you before you die. Chapter 26 Jason Jason saw two options, fight or talk. Usually, when faced with a creepy 20-foot-tall lady with jellyfish hair, he would have gone with fight, but since she called Percy brother, that made him hesitate. Percy, do you know this... individual? Percy shook his head. Doesn't look like my mom, so I'm gonna guess we're related on the godly side. You a daughter of Poseidon? Miss, uh... The pale lady raked her fingernails against the metal disc, making a screeching sound like a tortured wail. No one knows me, she sighed. Why would I assume my own brother would recognize me? I am Kimopolia. Percy and Jason exchanged looks. So, Percy said, we're going to call you Kim, and you'd be a, hmm, Nereid then? Minor goddess? Minor? By which, Jason said quickly, he means under the drinking age, because obviously you're so young and beautiful. Percy flashed him a look. Nice save. The goddess turned her full attention to Jason. She pointed her index finger and traced his outline in the water. Jason could feel his captured air spirit rippling around him, as if it were being tickled. Jason Grace, said the goddess, son of Jupiter. Yeah, I'm a friend of Percy's. Kim's narrowed. So it's true. These times make for strange friends and unexpected enemies. The Romans never worshipped me. To them, I was a nameless fear a sign of Neptune's greatest wrath. They never worshipped Kimopolia, the goddess of violent sea storms. She spun her disc. Another beam of green light flashed upward, churning the water and making the ruins rumble. Uh, yeah, Percy said. The Romans aren't big on navies. They had, like, one rowboat, which I sank. Speaking of violent storms, you're doing a first-rate job upstairs. Thank you, said Kim. 
thing is, our ship is caught in it, and it's kind of being ripped apart. I'm sure you didn't mean to. Oh, yes, I did. You did. Percy grimaced. Well, that sucks. I don't suppose you'd cut it out then if we asked nicely. No, the goddess agreed. Even now, the ship is close to sinking. I'm rather amazed it's held together this long. Excellent workmanship. Sparks flew from Jason's arms into the tornado. He thought about Piper and the rest of the crew, frantically trying to keep the ship in one piece. By coming down here, he and Percy had left the others defenseless. They had to act soon. Besides, Jason's air was getting stale. He wasn't sure if it was possible to use up a Ventus by inhaling it, but if he was going to have to fight, he'd better take on Kim before he ran out of oxygen. The thing was, fighting a goddess on her home court wouldn't be easy. Even if they managed to take her down, there was no guarantee the storm would stop. So, Kim, he said, what could we do to make you change your mind and let our ship go? Kim gave him that creepy alien smile. Son of Jupiter, do you know where you are? Jason was tempted to answer, underwater. You mean these ruins? An ancient palace? Indeed, Kim said. The original palace of my father, Poseidon. Percy snapped his fingers, which sounded like a muffled explosion. That's why I recognized it. Dad's new crib in the Atlantic is kind of like this. I wouldn't know. Kim said. I am never invited to see my parents. I can only wander the ruins of their old domains. They find my presence disruptive. She spun her wheel again. The entire back wall of the building collapsed, sending a cloud of silt and algae through the chamber. Fortunately, the Ventus acted like a fan, blowing the debris out of Jason's face. Disruptive? Jason said. You? My father does not welcome me in his court, Kim said. He restricts my powers. This storm above? I haven't had this much fun in ages. Yet, it is only a small taste of what I can do. A little goes a long way, Percy said. Anyway, to Jason's question about changing your mind... My father even married me off, Kim said, without my permission. He gave me away like a trophy to Briaris, a hundred-handed one, as a reward for supporting the gods in the war with Kronos, eons ago. Percy's face brightened. Hey, I know Briaris. He's a friend of mine. I freed him from Alcatraz. Yes, I know. Kim's eyes glinted coldly. I hate my husband. I was not at all pleased to have him back. Oh, so is Briaris around? Percy asked, hopefully. Kim's laugh sounded like dolphin chatter. He's off at Mount Olympus in New York, 
shoring up the gods' defenses. Not that it will matter. My point, dear brother, is that Poseidon has never treated me fairly. I like to come here, to his old palace, because it pleases me to see his works in ruins. Someday soon, his new palace will look like this one, and the seas will rage unchecked. Percy looked at Jason. This is the part where she tells us she's working for Gia. Yeah, Jason said, and the Earth Mother promised her a better deal once the gods are destroyed, blah, blah, blah. He turned to Kim. You understand that Gia won't keep her promises, right? She's using you, just like she's using the giants. I am touched by your concern, said the goddess. The Olympian gods, on the other hand, have never used me, eh? Percy spread his hands. At least the Olympians are trying. After the last Titan War, they started paying more attention to the other gods. A lot of them have cabins now at Camp Half-Blood. Hecate, Hades, Hebe, Hypnos, uh, and probably some that don't begin with H2. We give them offerings at every meal, cool banners, special recognition in the end-of-summer program. And have I gotten such offerings? Kim asked. Well, no. We didn't know you existed, but... Then save your words, brother. Kim's jellyfish tentacle hair floated toward him, as if anxious to paralyze new prey. I have heard so much about the great Percy Jackson... The giants are quite obsessed with capturing you. I must say, I don't see what the fuss is about. Thanks, sis, but if you're going to try to kill me, I gotta warn you it's been tried before. I've faced a lot of goddesses recently. Nike, Atlas, even Nyx herself. Compared to them, you're not scaring me. Also, you laugh like a dolphin. Kim's delicate nostrils flared. Jason got his sword ready. Oh, I won't kill you, Kim said. My part of the bargain was simply to get your attention. Someone else is here, though, who very much wants to kill you. Above them, at the edge of the broken roof, a dark shape appeared, a figure even taller than Kimopolia. The son of Neptune, boomed a deep voice. The giant floated down. Clouds of dark, viscous fluid, poison perhaps, curled from his blue skin. His green breastplate was fashioned to resemble a cluster of open, hungry mouths. In his hands were the weapons of a retiarius, a trident, and a weighted net. Jason had never met this particular giant, but he'd heard stories. Polybides, he said, the anti-Poseidon. The giant shook his dreadlocks. A dozen serpents swam free, each one lime green with a frilled crown around its head. Basilisks. Indeed, son of Rome, the giant said. But if you'll excuse me, my immediate business is with Perseus Jackson. I tracked him all the way across Tartarus. Now, here in his father's ruins, 
I mean to crush him once and for all. Chapter 27 Jason Jason hated basilisks. The little scum-suckers loved to burrow under the temples in New Rome. Back when Jason was a centurion, his cohort always got the unpopular chore of clearing out their nests. A basilisk didn't look like much, just an arm-length serpent with yellow eyes and a white frill collar. But it moved fast and could kill anything it touched. Jason had never faced more than two at a time. Now a dozen were swimming around the giant's legs. The only good thing, underwater, basilisks wouldn't be able to breathe fire, but that didn't make them any less deadly. Two of the serpents shot toward Percy. He sliced them in half. The other ten swirled around him, just out of Blade's reach. They writhed back and forth in a hypnotic pattern, looking for an opening. One bite... One touch was all it would take. Hey, Jason yelled. How about some love over here? The snakes ignored him. So did the giant, who stood back and watched with a smug smile, apparently happy for his pets to do the killing. Hemopolia! Jason tried his best to pronounce her name right. You have to stop this! She regarded him with her glowing white eyes. Why would I do that? The Earth Mother has promised me unrestricted power. Could you make me a better offer? A better offer. He sensed the possibility of an opening, room to negotiate. But what did he have that a storm goddess would want? The basilisks closed in on Percy. He blasted them away with currents of water, but they just kept circling. Hey, basilisks, Jason yelled. Still no reaction. He could charge in and help, but even together, he and Percy couldn't possibly fight off ten basilisks at once. He needed a better solution. He glanced up. A thunderstorm raged above, but they were hundreds of feet down. He couldn't possibly summon lightning at the bottom of the sea, could he? Even if he could... Water conducted electricity a little too well. He might fry Percy. But he couldn't think of a better option. He thrust up his sword. Immediately, the blade glowed red hot. A diffuse cloud of yellow light billowed through the depths, like someone had poured liquid neon into the water. The light hit Jason's sword and sprayed outward in ten separate tendrils, zapping the basilisks. Their eyes went dark. Their frills disintegrated. All ten serpents turned belly up and floated dead in the water. Next time, Jason said, look at me when I'm talking to you. Polybides' smile curdled. Are you so anxious to die, Roman? Percy raised his sword. He hurled himself at the giant, but Polybides swept his hand through the water leaving an arc of black, oily poison. Percy charged straight into it faster than Jason could yell, Dude, what are you thinking? Percy dropped Riptide. He gasped, clawing at his throat. The giant threw his weighted net, and Percy collapsed to the floor, 
hopelessly entangled as the poison thickened around him. Let him go! Jason's voice cracked with panic. The giant chuckled. Don't worry, son of Jupiter. Your friend will take a long time to die. After all the trouble he's caused me, I wouldn't dream of killing him quickly. Noxious clouds expanded around the giant, filling the ruins like thick cigar smoke. Jason scrambled backward, not fast enough, but his ventus proved a useful filter. As the poison engulfed him, the miniature tornado spun faster, repelling the clouds. Hemopolia wrinkled her nose and waved away the darkness, but otherwise it didn't seem to affect her. Percy writhed in the net, his face turning green. Jason charged to help him, but the giant blocked him with his huge trident. Oh, I can't let you ruin my fun, Polybides chided. The poison will kill him eventually, but first come the paralysis and hours of excruciating pain. I want him to have the full experience. He can watch as I destroy you, Jason Grace. Polybides advanced slowly, giving Jason plenty of time to contemplate the three-story tall tower of armor and muscle bearing down on him. He dodged the trident and, using his ventus to shoot forward, jabbed his sword into the giant's reptilian leg. Polybides roared and stumbled, golden ichor pluming from the wound. Kim! Jason yelled. Is this really what you want? The storm goddess looked rather bored, idly spinning her metal disc. Unlimited power? Why not? But is it any fun? Jason asked. So you destroy our ship. You destroy the entire coastline of the world. Once Gia wipes out human civilization, who's left to fear you? You'll still be unknown. Polybides turned. You are a pest, son of Jupiter. You will be crushed. Jason tried to summon more lightning. Nothing happened. If he ever met his dad, he'd have to petition for an increased daily allowance of bolts. Jason managed to avoid the prongs of the trident again, but the giant swung the other end around and smacked him in the chest. Jason reeled back, stunned and in pain. Polybides came in for the kill. Just before the trident would have perforated him, Jason's ventus acted on its own. It spiraled sideways, whisking Jason thirty feet across the courtyard. Thanks, buddy, Jason thought. I owe you some air freshener. If the Ventus liked that idea, Jason couldn't tell. Actually, Jason Grace, Kim said, studying her fingernails, now that you mention it, I do enjoy being feared by mortals. I am not feared enough. I can help with that. Jason dodged another swipe of the trident. He extended his gladius into a javelin and poked Polybides in the eye. Aug! The giant staggered. Percy writhed in the net, but his movements were getting sluggish. Jason needed to hurry. He had to get Percy to sickbay, and if the storm kept raging above them, there wouldn't be any sickbay to get him to. He flew to Kim's side. 
you know gods depend on mortals. The more we honor you, the more powerful you get. I wouldn't know. I've never been honored. She ignored Polybides, who was now stampeding around her, trying to swat Jason out of his whirlwind. Jason did his best to keep the goddess between them. I can change that, he promised. I will personally arrange a shrine for you on Temple Hill in New Rome, your first ever Roman shrine. I'll raise one at Camp Half-Blood as well, right on the shore of Long Island Sound. Imagine being honored and feared, and feared by both Greeks and Romans. You'll be famous. Stop talking! Polybides swung his trident like a baseball bat. Jason ducked. Kim did not. The giant slammed her in the ribcage so hard that strands of her jellyfish hair came loose and drifted through the poison water. Polybides' eyes widened. I'm sorry, Kimopolia. You shouldn't have been in the way. In the way? The goddess straightened. I am in the way? You heard him, Jason said. You're nothing but a tool for the giants. They'll cast you aside as soon as they're through destroying the mortals. Then, no demigods, no shrines, no fear, no respect. Lies! Polybides tried to stab him, but Jason hid behind the goddess's dress. Chemopalea, when Gia rules, you will rage and storm without restraint. Will there be mortals to terrorize? Kim asked. Well, no! Ships to destroy? Demigods to cower in awe? Um... Help me, Jason urged. Together, a goddess and demigod can kill a giant. No! Polybides suddenly looked very nervous. No, that's a terrible idea. Gia will be most displeased. If Gia wakes, Jason said... The mighty Chemopalea can help us make sure that never happens. Then all demigods will honor you big time. Will they cower? Kim asked. Tons of cowering. Plus your name in the summer program. A custom-designed banner. A cabin at Camp Half-Blood. Two shrines. I'll even throw in a Chemopalea action figure. No! Polybides wailed. Not merchandising rights! Kimopalia turned on the giant. I'm afraid that deal beats what Gia has offered. Unacceptable! The giant bellowed. You cannot trust this vile Roman! If I don't honor the bargain, Jason said, Kim can always kill me. With Gia, she has no guarantee at all. That, Kim said, is difficult to argue with. As Polybides struggled to answer, Jason charged forward and stabbed his javelin into the giant's gut. Kim lifted her bronze disc from its pedestal. Say goodbye, Polybides. She spun the disc at the giant's neck. Turned out, the rim was sharp. Polybides found it difficult to say goodbye since he no longer had a head. Chapter 28 Jason
Poison is a nasty habit. Chemopolia waved her hand, and the murky clouds dissipated. Secondhand poison can kill a person, you know. Jason wasn't too fond of firsthand poison either, but he decided not to mention that. He cut Percy out of the net and propped him against the temple wall, enveloping him in the airy shell of the Ventus. The oxygen was getting thin, but Jason hoped it might expel the poison from his friend's lungs. It seemed to work. Percy doubled over and began to retch. Ugh, thanks. Jason exhaled with relief. You had me worried there, bro. Percy blinked, cross-eyed. I'm still a little fuzzy, but did you... promise Kim an action figure? The goddess loomed over them. Indeed he did, and I expect him to deliver. I will, Jason said. When we win this war, I'm going to make sure all the gods get recognized. He put a hand on Percy's shoulder. My friend here started that process last summer. He made the Olympians promise to pay you guys more attention. Kim sniffed. We know what an Olympian promise is worth. Which is why I'm going to finish the job. Jason didn't know where these words were coming from, but the idea felt absolutely right. I'll make sure none of the gods are forgotten at either camp. Maybe they'll get temples or cabins or at least shrines. Or collectible trading cards, Kim suggested. Sure. Jason smiled. I'll go back and forth between the camps until the job is done. Percy whistled. You're talking about dozens of gods. Hundreds, Kim corrected. Well then, Jason said, it might take a while, but you'll be first on the list, Kimopolia, the storm goddess who beheaded a giant and saved our quest. Kim stroked her jellyfish hair. That will do nicely. She regarded Percy. Though I am still sorry I won't see you die. I get that comment a lot, Percy said. Now about our ship? Still in one piece, said the goddess. Not in very good shape, but you should be able to make it to Delos. Thank you, Jason said. Yeah, Percy said. And really, your husband Briaris is a good dude. You should give him a chance. The goddess picked up her bronze disc. Don't push your luck, brother. Briaris has fifty faces. All of them are ugly. He's got a hundred hands, and he's still all thumbs around the house. Okay, Percy relented. Not pushing my luck. Kim turned over the disc, revealing straps on the bottom side like a shield. She slipped it over her shoulders, Captain America style. I will be watching your progress. Polybides was not boasting when he warned that your blood would awaken the Earth Mother. The giants are very confident of this. My blood personally? Percy asked. Kim's smile was even creepier than usual. I am not an oracle, but I heard what the seer Phineas told you in the city of Portland. 
you will face a sacrifice that you may not be able to make, and it will cost you the world. You have yet to face your fatal flaw, my brother. Look around. All works of gods and men eventually turn to ruins. Would it not be easier to flee into the depths with that girlfriend of yours? Percy put his hands on Jason's shoulder and struggled to his feet. Juno offered me a choice like that, back when I found Camp Jupiter. I'll give you the same answer. I don't run when my friends need me. Kim turned up her palms. And there is your flaw, being unable to step away. I will retreat to the depths and watch this battle unfold. You should know that the forces of the ocean are also at war. Your friend Hazel Levesque made quite an impression on the merpeople and on their mentors, Aphros and Bythos. The fish pony dudes, Percy muttered. They didn't want to meet me. Even now they are waging war for your sake, Kim said, trying to keep Gia's allies away from Long Island. Whether or not they will survive, that remains to be seen. As for you, Jason Grace, your path will be no easier than your friends. You will be tricked. You will face unbearable sorrow. Jason tried to keep from sparking. He wasn't sure Percy's heart could take the shock. Kim, you said you're not an oracle? They should give you the job. You're definitely depressing enough. The goddess let loose her dolphin laugh. You amuse me, son of Jupiter. I hope you live to defeat Gia. Thanks, he said. Any pointers on defeating a goddess who can't be defeated? Kimopalia tilted her head. Oh, but you know the answer. You are a child of the sky, with storms in your blood. A primordial god has been defeated once before. You know of whom I speak. Jason's insides started swirling faster than the Ventus. Oranos, the first god of the sky. But that means... Yes. Kim's alien features took on an expression that almost resembled sympathy. Let us hope it does not come to that. If Gia does wake, well, your task will not be easy. But if you win, remember your promise, Pontifex. Jason took a moment to process her words. I'm not a priest. No? Kim's white eyes gleamed. By the way, your Ventus servant says he wishes to be freed. Since he has helped you, he hopes you will let him go when you reach the surface. He promises he will not bother you a third time. A third time? Kim paused as if listening. He says he joined the storm above to take revenge on you, but had he known how strong you've become since the Grand Canyon, he never would have approached your ship. The Grand Canyon? Jason recalled that day on the Skywalk, when one of his jerk classmates turned out to be a wind spirit. Dylan? Are you kidding me? I'm breathing Dylan? Yes, Kim said. That seems to be his name. Jason shuddered. 
I'll let him go as soon as I reach the surface. No worries. Farewell, then, said the goddess, and may the fates smile upon you, assuming the fates survive. They needed to leave. Jason was running out of air. Dylan air. Gross. And everyone on the Argo, too, would be worried about them. But Percy was still woozy from the poison, so they sat on the edge of the ruined Golden Dome for a few minutes to let Percy catch his breath. Or catch his water. Whatever a son of Poseidon catches when he's at the bottom of the ocean. Thanks, man, Percy said. You saved my life. Hey, that's what we do for our friends. But, uh, the Jupiter guy saving the Poseidon guy at the bottom of the ocean? Maybe we can keep the details to ourselves? Otherwise, I'll never hear the end of it. Jason grinned. You got it. How you feeling? Better. I... I have to admit, when I was choking on that poison, I kept thinking about Aklis, the misery goddess in Tartarus. I almost destroyed her with poison. He shivered. It felt good, but in a bad way. If Annabeth hadn't stopped me... But she did, Jason said. That's another thing friends have to do for each other. Yeah. Thing is, as I was choking just now, I kept thinking, this is payback for Aklis. The fates are letting me die the same way I tried to kill that goddess. And, honestly, a part of me felt I deserved it. That's why I didn't try to control the giant's poison and move it away from me. That probably sounds crazy. Jason thought back to Ithaca, when he was despairing over the visit from his mom's spirit. No, I think I get it. Percy studied his face. When Jason didn't say any more, Percy changed the subject. What did Kim mean about defeating Gia? You mentioned Oranos. Jason stared at the silt swirling between the columns of the old palace. The Sky God... The Titans defeated him by calling him down to the Earth. They got him away from his home territory, ambushed him, held him down, and cut him up. Percy looked like his nausea was coming back. How would we do that with Gia? Jason recalled a line from the prophecy. To storm or fire, the world must fall. He had an idea what that meant now. But if he was right... Percy wouldn't be able to help. In fact, he might unintentionally make things harder. I don't run when my friends need me, Percy had said. And there is your flaw, Kim had warned, being unable to step away. Today was July 27th. In five days, Jason would know if he was right. Let's get to Delos first, he said. Apollo and Artemis might have some advice. Percy nodded, though he didn't seem satisfied with that answer. Why did Kimapalia call you a Pontiac? Jason's laugh literally cleared the air. Pontifex. It means priest. Oh. Percy frowned. Still sounds like a kind of car. The new Pontifex XLS. Will you have to wear a collar and bless people? Nah, Romans used to have a Pontifex Maximus, 
who oversaw all the proper sacrifices and whatnot, to make sure none of the gods got mad, which I offered to do. I guess it does sound like a Pontifex's job. So you meant it? Percy asked. You're really going to try building shrines for all the minor gods? Yeah, I never really thought about it before, but I like the idea of going back and forth between the two camps, assuming, you know, we make it through next week and the two camps still exist. What you did last year on Olympus, turning down immortality and asking the gods to play nice instead? That was noble, man. Percy grunted. Believe me, some days I regret the choice. Oh, you want to turn down our offer? Okay, fine. Zap! Lose your memory. Go to Tartarus. You did what a hero should do. I admire you for that. The least I can do, if we survive, is continue that work. Make sure all the gods get some recognition. Who knows? If the gods get along better, maybe we can stop more of these wars from breaking out. That would most definitely be good, Percy agreed. You know, you look different. Better different. Does your wound still hurt? My wound? Jason had been so busy with the giant and the goddess, he'd forgotten about the sword wound in his gut, even though he'd been dying from it in sickbay only an hour ago. He lifted his shirt and pulled away the bandages. No smoke. No bleeding. No scar. No pain. It's gone, he said, stunned. I feel completely normal. What the heck? You beat it, man, Percy laughed. You found your own cure. Jason considered that. He guessed it must be true. Maybe putting aside his pain to help his friends had done the trick. Or... Maybe his decision to honor the gods at both camps had healed him, giving him a clear path to the future. Roman or Greek, the difference didn't matter. Like he told the ghosts at Ithaca, his family had just gotten bigger. Now he saw his place in it. He would keep his promise to the storm goddess. And because of that, Michael Varus's sword meant nothing. Die a Roman! No. If he had to die, he would die a son of Jupiter, a child of the gods, the blood of Olympus. But he wasn't about to let himself get sacrificed, at least not without a fight. Come on. Jason clapped his friend on the back. Let's go check on our ship. <laughs>